proud to announce WrestleCopia brand and the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, which you can find over at www.wrestlecopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com, WrestleCopia.com. You may have heard me mention the WrestleCopia brand in passing on a variety of our shows. You might be asking, what is WrestleCopia? Well, the name derives from the words wrestle for wrestling and copia, which is defined as having plenty or an abundance of. It's abundance of wrestling history over at WrestleCopia.com as the podcast never continues to grow with a variety of podcasts. Everything from our show, The Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we take a trip down memory lane to wrestling history's past as we analyze and dissect complete years of wrestling history from your favorite promotions, to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within, an in-depth look and weekly breakdown of the entire Raw vs. Nitro War. TR Shocks the World, where host Tom Robinson makes his long-awaited return to the wrestling airwaves. Tom does everything from break down the current product to share inside stories and memories from years gone by. It's discretion advised as TR shocks the world with his strong opinions, hilarious impressions, and so much more. The WrestleCopia News Network is a special feature podcast. You can expect more late-breaking news, timely discussions, and tributes to the fallen legends on future episodes of WCNN. We've also got other podcasts being prepped for their debuts, including a territory-based show we like to call The Money and the Miles. There's an old saying in the world of professional wrestling that nothing in this business is real except the money made and the miles traveled. In this podcast, we discuss the territory era with shows focusing on everything from show reviews to yearly breakdowns to episodes focusing on some of the rare, lesser known territories and outlaw promotions of yesteryear. Stop on over to WrestleCopia.com for all the latest shows and follow us on Twitter at WrestleCopia. That's on Twitter at WrestleCopia for all the latest news and information on the podcast network. Turn it on and rip the knob off. Guys, and welcome back to the Wrestling Memory Grenade, episode number 57. A very special 1993 breakdown of the WWF, as well as Ask Us Anything episode of the Grenade here this week. A hybrid show of sorts, and I am your host and under the weather, Ray Russell. So just bear with me this week, guys. Unfortunately, one of the kids brought home a very aggressive cold bug prior to spring break, and over that time, it worked its way through some of the kids. And then my wife got it early last week, and I thought to myself, sweet, at least I escaped it. Or so I thought, by Thursday night, it was evident that it was going to hit me next. And I was fairly uh, non-functional on Friday and Saturday. Even thought about taking this week off to let the vocals heal properly. But after already taking last week off to prepare for our next project, 1987 in the WWF, I didn't want to skip two weeks in a row unless it was absolutely something I had to do. So here I am back and ready to roll, and welcome back to our listeners out there. 
I hope you guys had a very refreshing week off from our schedule here on The Grenade. As the last time we talked, episode 56, we finished up 1993 in the WWF with the December weeks of TV, everything leading into 1994. I hope you had time during this week off to go back, catch up, check out some of our other shows on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. But we are back and ready to break down all of 1993, the fallout, everything leading into 1994. Plus, we're going to give away a few awards. We may even have a special guest co-host here to join us as we take a look back at 1993, the year in review, and what's to come in 1994. So a little more on that later in the show. And then, yes, guys, it's time for Ask Us Anything, where I'll be answering all of your questions. I asked our loyal listeners to send in your questions through email, send them in through DM on Twitter or Facebook, and get this, our listeners, they listen. So yes, we did get a few repeat questions, but some really fun ones in there for sure. I can't wait to answer your questions. Coming up later in the episode, it's Ask Us Anything here on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And a special reminder, next week, right here on the show, we begin our journey through 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation as we set the stage. We go back and look at the fallout from 1986, the return of Andre the Giant, the major injuries to both Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and the Dynamite Kid, Honky Tonk Man Swift heel turn, the evil referee Danny Davis, WrestleMania 3 right around the corner, plus epic feuds of the time involving Ricky Steamboat and the Macho Man Randy Savage, Adrian Adonis and Rowdy Roddy Piper, and Hulk Hogan, and Paul Mr. Wonderful Orndorff, Orndorff, dude. Lots of new talent have recently arrived here in the WWF heading into 1987, and even more on the way, including some new tag teams. We're going to take a look at the Can-Am Connection, and very soon a brand new team, you may have heard of them, Demolition. But before we get to 1987, we're going to finish out 1993 here, even talk a little early 1994, see what some of the guys were doing heading into the new year. And as always, you guys can listen to the Wrestling Memory Grenade as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network on WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com. And all of your favorite podcast streaming apps from Apple to Spotify, Google Pod, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Audible on Amazon, iHeartRadio, and so many more. Now also on the Facebook app here in the United States under our RSS feed. And don't forget, guys, the Wrestling Memory Grenade still looking for a brand new co-host. In fact, WrestleCopia, the podcast network, looking for new co-hosts, full-time, part-time guest co-hosts from other shows. Come plug your podcast here at WrestleCopia. Let's have some fun conversation in the process. It's all about creating new content for the listeners. And all you need to get started is a microphone, the ability to use Skype Messenger, and a little free time to record some shows. It's all it takes, guys. So you can contact me anytime about becoming a co-host here as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network by emailing me at WrestleCopia at gmail.com. That's WrestleCopia at gmail.com. Or DMing me on Twitter at WrestlingGrenade. And speaking of Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter at WrestlingGrenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade, home of the free prize giveaway. Also follow and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash WrestlingGrenade. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook for your chance to enter and win all future free prize giveaways here on the show, our current giveaway, a real memory grenade of wrestling history's past as we cover four different decades of wrestling history with four wrestling magazines. 
from the Boxing and Wrestling Magazine going back to 1952 to two Wrestling Review Magazines from 1966 and 1974, plus a 1984 magazine with Hulk Hogan on the cover stomping the life out of Mr. Antonio Inoki over in New Japan. That's four magazines, one winner. And that winner will be announced next week as part of the inaugural 1987 in the WWF episode. All you have to do in order to be entered into each and every future free prize giveaway is simply follow us on Twitter, follow and like us on Facebook. And right there, you're automatically entered into each and every future free prize giveaway. It's that easy. So head on over to social media and follow Wrestling Grenade for your chance to win. Also, now is a great time to tell you about our YouTube channel, which can be found over at youtube.com slash Grenade. Subscribe now to our YouTube channel. I have added tons of new videos the last couple of weeks. Tons, guys. Do you hear me? Tons. We just about wrap up the WWF versus USWA War of 93 in those videos, plus, plus tons of new 1993 WWF footage, including harder-to-find exclusive content. And I've been posting a lot of clips of said content over on Twitter and some of it also on Facebook, but you can see all of the videos in their entirety over at youtube.com slash wrestlinggrenade. And I've even began adding some WWF 1987 videos, including a confrontation between Andre the Giant and WWF champion Hulk Hogan from Madison Square Garden going back to January 19th, 1987, before the two would come face-to-face on syndicated TV superstars, Hulk Hogan out there celebrating a win over Kamala in the middle of the ring when he's confronted and presented the belt by Andre the Giant in very interesting fashion. And hey guys, the Grenade's not only going to be posting videos of what we're talking about here on the show, there's also going to be other random videos popping up from time to time from the territories and beyond. And just the other day, I added a really fun promo going back to April of 1981 from Stan Hansen and manager Classy Freddie Blassie as they prepare for an upcoming rematch with WWF champion Bob Backlund inside the steel cage. So you never know what you're going to find on the Wrestling Memory Grenade channel on YouTube, so subscribe now. Once again, youtube.com slash wrestlinggrenade. And also, now is a great time to be a patron, a WrestleCopia patron, that is, as we unveil our revamped and all-new WrestleCopia Patreon account. And you guys can access that account by going to patreon.com slash wrestlecopia. Over a dozen tiers to choose from, but the $5 all-access tier, you want to talk about revamped, guys. Listen to everything you get with the $5 all-access tier. You get all of my insanely detailed show notes, and they are insanely detailed, guys, including early access to said show notes prior to some of the shows dropping. You also get early access to many of our WrestleCopia podcasts. Listen days, sometimes more than a week early, before the rest of the listeners have the opportunity. But it doesn't end there. Unedited versions of TR Shocks the World with Tom Robinson and our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series. For those of you out there who enjoy our watch-alongs here on The Grenade, well, we've got a ton more for you there in our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series covering WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday night's main event, Hey, Clash 6, Flair vs. Steamboat, March to WrestleMania 9, the USA Special, so much more. And those shows a little more off script as we get a little more loose for our patrons. And now just added to the $5 all-access tier. Yes, even more content for $5, guys. 
remastered versions of the earliest episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade, enhanced sound quality, and new content, initially edited out of our original broadcast of the shows. You heard me right. Remastered versions of the earliest episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade will continue to add those. What I did was I went back, took the original recording from scratch, edited the sound quality, much better sound quality, guys. And yes, there was lots of content that I initially edited out of the show. Well, it's been edited back in. So new content as well. So for $5, that all-access tier gets you all of my insanely detailed show notes, early access to many of our WrestleCopia podcasts, unedited versions of TR Shocks the World with Tom Robinson, the Patreon-exclusive watch-along series of events, and now remastered episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade, complete with enhanced audio and new content that was originally edited out. All of that for the low, low price of just $5. And remember, guys, no subscriptions. Cancel any time. Give it a go for a month, and I think you'll like the content we offer. And every penny of it goes back into the podcast network. So please help us pay some of the bills to keep the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, TR Shocks the World, and more up and running for the years to come. And with all of that out of the way, before we wrap up 1993 in the WWF, I must give some thanks. What I thank you for, for Thanksgiving, for my Pokemon! To several people for several different reasons. And I'll start right off by saying thank you to Mr. Richard Land, who helped us locate some of the footage for the first half of 1993 that I couldn't locate on my own. Very big thank you there to Mr. Richard Land, who is also now the editor of the HistoryOfWWE.com website, which has also been a big help along the way. Another shout out to Howie D. Hi, Howie. Big thanks to Howie D out of Las Vegas. Lots of fun face-to-face sound bites from the West Coast that may have been lost to time had it not been for Howie D sharing his original copies of those promos with us. So a big thank you to Howie D for that and so much more. Lots of insight and input from Howie along the way. And I can't go any further without thanking my former co-host Stephen X. Stat for participating in many of the episodes from the first half of 1993. Steve was here for the ride up through July of the year. Big thank yous to the likes of Lex Luger, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, Jerry the King Lawler, Rikishi, who was fought two of the head shrinkers at this time, and Brett the Hitman Hart. Thanks to all those guys, Luger, Duggan, Lawler, Rikishi, Brett the Hitman Hart, all of which liked, retweeted, and responded to several of my posts to help gain insight into certain parts of 1993. Big thank you to all of those guys. And a very big and a very special thank you to all of our patrons out there because it is you who keeps the WrestleCopia Podcast Network alive. From our very first patron, Victor, to our most recent, Alex, you guys know who you are. A very heartfelt thank you and much appreciation for your support. It lets me know I'm doing something right, guys, and I can't thank you guys enough. Also, I can't go on without mentioning the constant encouragement from the listeners out there like Brian from Twitter. And I'll even go back and insert the name Howie D here again as well. Lots, lots of encouragement from these guys. But Brian, and you know who you are, brother, always filled with a nice, kind, uplifting word or two when times were tough. And of course, my brother Jesse, a very big supporter of the WrestleCopia podcast network, a big supporter of the Grenade. A special thank you to him as well. And 
Brian, Howie D, to my brother, and, and beyond. It's that encouragement and, and that support that just a few kind words or retweets that keeps my drive going each and every week. And I'll admit that there are days where it can be tough running a machine like this by myself. But it's your guys' kind words and support that aid me in making this show what it is each and every week. So thank you guys so very much. You know, our numbers really began to pick up with the King of the Ring watch-along episode. And since the July 93 episode here of the WWF, our numbers have essentially doubled within the first 30 days of listeners per episode. Hell, from the time the show drops, it's, it's actually doubled within the first seven days of listeners. So, so we've doubled our listening base here in 2022. And I think I found a good balance of sound bites, comedy, results, news, etc. But I'm all ears and always open to your thoughts and ideas. And we're still on the hunt for a replacement co-host, don't forget, guys. So don't be shy and drop me a line. And I know there are a ton of podcasts with respectable names from the wrestling business who do tremendous numbers. But I take great pride in charting in every week at 92, 111, even 130. I'm in great company when I look around and I see my podcasts are doing fairly well and in great company with the likes of Hurricane Helms, Briscoe and Bradshaw, and, and so many more. And our sister show, Monday Warfare, doing absolutely phenomenal internationally. Number 15 on the international market is Monday Warfare. Unbelievable and very, very humbled. And living proof that hard work, consistency, and effort pay off. I want to thank you all, all of my listeners, so very much. It may not be the showdown at the OK Corral, but it was the WWF versus WCW. Raw versus Nitro, the Monday Night War, the Ratings War, the NWO, the Attitude Era. While everyone discusses who won the war, it's truly the battles within the war that made this weekly episodic rivalry so exciting. We break it all down, from episode reviews to backstage news to those ever-important TV ratings. It's Monday Warfare, the Battles Within, exclusively as part of the WrestleCopia brand, available on WrestleCopia.com and all of your favorite podcast streaming apps. All right, and before we do the awards and take a look back through 1993 and a little peek into 1994, I mentioned at the top of the program that we had a special co-host joining us here for this segment of the show, and that man is none other than Former co-host of the show, Steve at Xstat. Steve, welcome back to the show here. As we close out 1993 in the WWF, I thought it would only be fitting to bring you back aboard for this episode as you were here for the first seven months of the ride. Of course, you covered everything from January all the way through July. It seems like you got on that Lex Express bus and just, just kept going. But Steve, seriously, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being a part of the 1993 review. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a while, and I'm glad to be back, man. Yeah, and uh, it's just good to have you here, Steve, because you were a part of the first seven months here in the uh, WWF in 1993, yeah. and uh, it's only fitting to let you close out the year and kind of talk about a few things as we, well, we don't move on to 1994, I'm happy to say that, but we Thank do you. get ready for 1987 in the WWF, and I thought it would be just you know gratifying if we put a nice big bow on 1993 by going back 
taking a look at the remnants of the roster, what's left here from where we started in January 93 as we head now into January of 1994. And I knew there'd be a major turnover, but wow, man, looking at this roster, it's like a completely different company here by the end of 93. So we're going to look at the few names left that were here a year ago and then discuss what some of the bigger names will be doing heading into uh, 1994. And then from there, guys, we'll hand out a few year-end awards for 1993, around a half dozen or so. And then it's time for the Ask Us Anything portion of the show. So if you're ready, Steve, we'll get going here with the uh, what's left of 1993, the roster. Ready to roll. The roster that we started with, well, I, I pulled up the old roster that I, I gave out, I put out online at the beginning uh, that looked at all the talent that was here in December of 92, January of 93. Then I began deleting names from that list. And this is what we have left of that roster right here in front of me right now. Steve, I'm sure you can see the list. Uh, very few names left, even less than I would have figured. We walked in with something like maybe 50-ish names, 45 names heading into the year. And we're down to about a half a dozen or so. Well, okay, maybe a full dozen still here after just uh, just a year ago. Wow, <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I'm uh, just looking at it, and it's like we have one main heel uh, left. <sighs> wow. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a hell of turnover. It's the biggest turnover I can ever think of during the uh, Hulkamania era, or I guess Hogan's gone, so really the new generation era. But of the 80s and 90s, this has to be the biggest turnover I can think of in the history of the WWF. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Um pretty remarkable for that time frame it's almost like they hit a reset button it, it's like after king of the ring hogan's gone we're just going in a totally new direction whatever happens happens we're going to stick to it and go with it this time and uh this is what you get and if you guys are listening to the show which obviously you are you guys can go to our social media accounts on facebook or twitter i'm posting a picture of this chart here so you guys can get a real good idea of what's left here. And you can follow along as I talk about this here, Steve, because we start right off with the main eventers and who's left of the main event scene. And of course, Brett, the Hitman Hart, still running strong here. Randy Savage was never really a full-time wrestler throughout 1993 until he started the feud with Crush here in the fall. So Randy Savage still part of the roster, but for the first nine months, he really was more doing broadcasting than wrestling, though he is still here. The Undertaker, of course, he was here all year long, unfortunately for him. Spent about eight months feuding with the Giant Gonzalez. And then Lex Luger, who started at the Royal Rumble back in 1993, went from heel to face, but he's still here. Although, again, he wasn't here when the year actually started. That's what I'm really focused on right now is who was already set and, and ready to go heading into 1993. So you can argue Lex Luger's still here, but again, he didn't debut until a month into the, the year of 1993. And over on the heel side, it's just Yokozuna, who, and think about this for a minute, Steve, made his debut on TV back in the first part of November of 1992. Yokozuna was two months into the company, and now he's their only main main event heel left. I know they had a lot of issues, you know, after us after Survivor Series where guys were just leaving right before, but it's just amazing that they would get stuck in a position where they really only have the one main heel. I guess you could put Razor over there. Um, and that's how he started the year. Right. I and mean, he got the title match at the Rumble, but it was a quick, well, about seven month face term, but you know, it was six months. But I guess you could put him over there to kind of even it out. But other than that, 
I'm not putting Giant, Giant Gonzalez there. I know he's feeding with Taker, but whew, slim pickings. Pretty yeah, bad. And again, Gonzalez didn't debut until the Royal Rumble, and Gonzalez gone, you know, by the fall, by that Intercontinental Battle Royal. No more Giant Gonzalez. He's not here anymore. So it, it really is just Yokozuna. And then we can yeah. we can move on to the upper mid card here, whatever you want to call it, the intercontinental type spot on the show. And we got five names still here, holdovers from nineteen ninety two. Shawn Michaels still running strong, though there was a couple months there in the fall where he was gone from the company. At least he took his belt and went home. But we still have Shawn Michaels here in the company. Bam Bam Bigelow, who also only came in on Halloween. October 31st was his first match in 1992 TV. So Bammer only a couple months into the company here before heading into 1993. But Bam Bam Bigelow still here. Shawn Michaels, as I mentioned. Crush, who's now a heel, but he's still here. Tatanka, who spent six weeks on the shelf with the Ludwig Borga and Yokozuna injury angle. But Tatanka's still here. And then Razor Ramon, who went from main event heel, like you said at the beginning of the year, de facto, especially after Flair left, uh, main event heel Razor Ramon, who moved to that next man up, sort of, so to speak. He's not necessarily the main eventer, but he's right underneath that. But now a baby face is the bad guy who is hot as hell, I got to say, here in the, uh, the end of 1993 as the Intercontinental Champion. Yeah, he, he definitely got over, I think, that big face turn and then DiBiase doing the favor at SummerSlam and then obviously winning that Battle Royal. He was uh, white hot there for a little bit. I, I can't say that they didn't capitalize because they put him in the position that he needed to be in because he wasn't going to be your world champ at that point. If dumb, probably, they probably could have. And then we move on to the mid card. Another five guys here, five or six guys still here from the beginning of the year, but there's a lot of asterisks here as uh, we look at Bob Backlund, who was here. Remember what he did at the Royal Rumble in 1993? That big push he was going to get, we saw that slowly decrease until after SummerSlam, Backlund was sent home. As they got rid of the B shows, there were only A show house shows. Vince had no need for guys like Bob Backlunds and Virgils, and these guys were no longer a part of the company. They were just there whenever they needed uh, somebody to fill in at a high school gym show or a fairgrounds or a charity event. Then we would see Bob Backlund come back into play. It wasn't until Mr. Perfect quit the company back around Survivor Series that they had to bring Bob Backlund back on the road full-time. So Backlund was here in 93, but there were a couple months where he really wasn't. And then Marty Jannetty, yes, he was here at the Royal Rumble, but then fired. Yes! And Marty Jannetty gone until May, comes back and wins the IC title. But in between there, Jannetty gone from the company as well, though he is still here at the end of the year. Doink the Clown, still here. Uh, Tremendous run for Matt Bourne for the first nine months or so. And then, boom, we switch things up. He turns babyface. Ray Apollo comes in. And uh, the rest, as they say, is unfortunate history. Uh, so the character <laughs> is here all year round. But Matt Bourne, you know, it's pretty much over once Matt Bourne was gone from there. And then Owen Hart. Owen Hart starts out, well, he's still a babyface at the end of the year, I guess, technically. But Owen Hart here year round. He came in. He was part of high energy at the beginning of the year. He's still here. Now he's getting a push. I put him in the mid-card here because he hasn't really escalated to, well, the next next level just yet, but he's, he's on his way there, especially by the Royal Rumble. IRS, he's been here all year, unfortunately. I've had to watch IRS for 12 months, but it is what it is. And uh, he's starting to fizzle out a little bit. Uh, really nothing, not much for IRS to do beyond Royal Rumble 94, but IRS still here. And then the model who came back full-time at the taping, for the Intercontinental Battle Royal. But before that, Martell really hadn't been around since the Royal Rumble as well. So Martell was gone from the Rumble 
all the way until the end of September, uh, outside of a few shows in Canada and maybe maybe one of the European tours. The Rick Martel wasn't part of the company. So as I'm saying this, like I said, a lot of asterisks here. Yes, these guys were here in January and they're here here in December, but they were gone for quite a while in between. Yeah, and we also, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to it, but all the influx of talent that came in around, you know, mid right after Hogan left. Right. Kind of tells you that you don't necessarily need these people. I hate to say that about somebody like the model or, or you know, even Marty Jannetty, because he could definitely go. But, I mean, they had a lot of new people come in, too. So it, it is mind-boggling, though. Like, you have, what is that, six guys here? And four of them are, like, basically there for some of the year, but not all of the year. You had two people in your mid-card that was there beginning to end. And even Owen missed a, a month or so with that knee injury, and then he just doesn't seem to be on TV very much right. until – what after SummerSlam? Yeah. So, um, you can make him a little red too because he was kind of in and out. It seemed like too, but just crazy. You could tell like Vince had a lot going on, uh, you know, with the trial and not the trial, but just the, the thought of that and that hanging over him. It just seems very, I don't know, disorganized and kind of almost feels like a territory where guys are just coming and going. Yeah, we're done with these guys for this month. Let's move, bring in some more people, and then they're out, and then back some more. So, uh, very weird. Ninety three is a weird year when it comes to the roster for sure. Yeah, it absolutely is. And then another thing I noticed was we started the year with maybe ten, maybe twelve wrestlers on the lower card, the the job guy status uh, here on the chart, uh, and and all of a sudden all of these guys are gone from the company. From Damian Demento, thank God, I'm not arguing that. Jimmy Powers, Jim Brunzel, all the way down the line, all these guys who were here, Skinner at the beginning of the year, Repo Man, was, yeah, on the on the lower card, uh, they're not here anymore. They're all gone. The only guys we have left on that list are the Brooklyn Brawler, who's just there forever. Of course, he was Kim Chi at the beginning of the year. He re, uh, once Kim Chi was done, he came back as the Brooklyn Brawler. Did a little bit of MVP here before he even parlayed into the the middle doink, the interim doink in between Matt Bourne and Ray Apollo. So. Brooklyn Brawler, a jack-of-all-trades this year, but he's really pretty much the only guy on the lower end that, that's been here all year, and he's had a contract where he's been with the company at least since the mid-'80s. Now, a lot, of, a lot of rumors out there, so I'll leave those for, for social media. <laughs> Anybody wants to have those conversations to be had, but uh, the only other name on this list still here to some degree is Virgil, and Virgil was part of the big giant mass exodus after SummerSlam, or I should say in August. Uh, when they cut about 16 talents, not just wrestlers, but announcers and other other talent as well. But Virgil's been back here and there for TV tapings to do a job. Again, much like Bob Backlund, throughout the fall, he'd maybe stop in and do a job on a house show if it was one of those high school shows, charity events, things like that. So Virgil, he's been around for the last four months, but no longer full-time with the company. So really, they've depleted their entire job guy or lower card whoever is here right now in that status, uh, they weren't here a year ago. Crazy. So did they just like penny pinch and use guys locally? You know, just your normal well, I mean, job. We have, we have like our, yeah, I mean, we have Tom our normal Stones job guys and, and things like that, but I, I meant name value wise, like our Skinners, right. guys that were established and things like we've lost all of those. There's none of those left on the roster whatsoever. And I don't can't really think off the top of my head, how many we have right now in the company. I mean, I mean, as an actual talent, like a, like a Bastion Booger who, for better or worse, has pretty much done jobs, you know, for everyone other than beating the kid throughout the fall. Because I guess Vince McMahon wanted to prove a point that small guys just can't beat the big guys, no matter who they are. 
it's kind of a changing of the guard because, you know, even after this, I guess they had some, but it was never like it was where you knew, like, if you're going to get a decent squash match, if you had certain people come out, those days are over. And it seems like it ended in 93 uh, for the most part. And they tried a resurgence of that later on, especially in 96 when they came out with all those ridiculous gimmicks for all those guys, especially a lot of Jim Cornette's old Smoky Mountain guys. Uh, but uh, T.L. Hopper wasn't exactly lighting the WWF rings on fire <laughs> as, a, as a plumber. No, definitely not. <laughs> this is very interesting, and I go back and I look at the tag team division here in 1993, and yes, a lot of new teams have come in. Well, we saw Well Done in and out. We saw the Quebecers uh, burst onto the scene, of course, uh, the Smoky Guns been on a mission, but none of those teams were here at the beginning of the year. And if you don't count the Steiners, because technically they weren't here until 1993. They made their in-ring debut in January of 93. Now, the Sticklers will say, yeah, but they cut their first promo on primetime right before. Okay, let's, let's include the Steiners just for a moment as the teams who were here at the beginning of the year. The only other teams here at the beginning of 1993 are the Bushwhackers, who have been part-time for a very long time at this point in the company. So there have been months, and I mean months, thankfully, that the Bushwhackers yeah. weren't even here in 1993. So you can't really count them, and I really don't even want to count the Steiners because they weren't established here in the WWF until January of 93, but let's count the Steiners, and then you have the Head Triggers, who once again only made their debut in something like maybe October of 1992, so they've been here two, two and a half months, heading into the month. So if you count guys who have been here, teams who have been here prior to 93, the entire tag team division is the Head Shrinkers. Wow. Far cry from like 1988. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, absolutely. Wow. Even like 1990, I would take 90 over over this by far. That's wild. Again, it just goes to show like they were in total reset mode. Penny pension, saving money, do what they got to do to get through the year. And the problem that I think I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where we're discussing it in length or in detail, but you know. This they got in this funk in '93 and couldn't get out of it till at least what '96, '97. I think people. Where, I think a lot of people would say somewhere in '96, even though they were uh, very worried about uh, losing their ass and maybe even going out of business thanks to WCW at the time and Nitro and the NWO and everything that came along with that. Uh, at the same time, I still think they turned a corner as far as finding what they wanted out of some of the characters they had. Yeah. I, I would say 96, 100% back at it in 97, but uh, it's just crazy how hard it is to get yourself out of a funk once you put yourself in that hole. And then uh, at the bottom of the chart, I have the managers still here. A lot of the managers rolled over from 92. Harvey Whippleman, of course, he's been here this year, managed Giant Gonzalez and Mr. Hughes, both already gone from the company. So he gets stuck with Adam Baum in the fall, uh, basically purchasing him from Johnny Polo. Uh, just so just so Harvey would have somebody to manage, he, he did get gifted well done after SummerSlam, but they were gone a couple months later due to Stephen Dunn's injury. <laughs> so Harvey Whippleman basically at this point stuck with just Adam Baum. We know Quang right around the corner at Royal Rumble 94. But uh, yeah, Harvey, uh, Adam Baum and Quang coming up in 94. Afa, he came in with the head shrinkers in uh, the fall of 92. Mr. Fuji has been here forever. And uh, no matter how many budget cuts they did, it seemed like they always kept Fuji around. So Vince must have really loved him some Mr. Fuji. And then uh, Paul Bear, the manager of The Undertaker, going nowhere at this point either. 
So some of the managers still here. So uh, we go back and we look. And I said, as I as I ran, rambled all this off right now to you, Steve. When I got done looking the first time, I said to myself, "Who was here pre 1992? Not pre 1993." Now we've just established some of the guys that were here moving in to the year of 93, but who was here for a full year or more before 1993? Who was really established here in the company uh, that's been here more than, than a year before 1993? And I came up with this list, maybe five guys, Steve, five guys. You go back, you look at Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels, The Undertaker, the Macho Man, who's part-time here, but he's here. IRS, of all people, IRS, Erwin R. Scheister, and then Owen, by a couple months, the new foundation debuted in, in very late 1991, and I really hate to even throw Owen into the list here, but it's like five guys have been here for more than a year before this 1993 run. That's it. That's all we're left with. If you go back two years, you can only identify five guys as part of being, uh, being part of the WWF. Virgil was there. He, okay. He did that turn in 91, right? We can go with Virgil. He got white hot there for a little bit in 91, that title turn. I don't know about white hot, but he got over. He was over. He was over. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he got some loud pops, which is amazing. The fact that Virgil got some loud pops tells you how good uh, the booking was on that one. Oh, yeah. I I mean, we've talked about it before, how over Virgil was at one point in 1991. It really happened, folks. I promise. It definitely did. It was gone by fall of 91, but. (laughs) <laughs> they totally butchered it. Well, uh, once he beat DiBiase, where was Virgil going to go from there? He was going to get over on his, on his promos? I don't know. Uh, maybe. <laughs> now he would. Now, yeah, now. Guess what? Me. <laughs> I mean, because before, you know, just WWF, they always had their main guys. Like, people came and went, absolutely, but you still had five or six main guys and then you had your tag teams that you knew was going to be there year round all year year over year and then you get to 92 93 and it's just they're throwing shit at the wall and hopefully it sticks that's what it feels like you know we we've talked in the past about scott steiner and comments he made about vince mcmahon going on trial the steroid trial of 1994 and kind of blaming that for the reason vince's mind wasn't really all in with the company and and we've read it in the observer uh, other wrestlers have talked about it. Bruce Pritchard has even kind of alluded. He would never give away Vince completely, but he's kind of alluded that there was a lot of shit going on, you know, in Vince's mind at the time. And maybe he didn't have full focus on the actual storylines and other things going on on the on-screen product. And uh, because of that, we get some of this here in 1994. And I'll talk about it when we get there. But uh, it's it's unfortunate for a lot of guys in the company who kind of flounder and they really started off hot or intriguing anyway to the fans when they first arrived. And there's really nothing for them here for a very long period of time uh, in 1994. And we're, that's what we're going to do next. Before we give out the awards, I just wanted to kind of look at where everybody was here from 1993, December of 93, where they were heading to into 1994. That way I don't feel terrible. That's terrible. But about, about not covering 1994. Cause I did get a few people out there to request, Hey, Hey Ray, can you, can you extend the show to at least go through WrestleMania 10? And I thought about it because I said, you know what? The Royal Rumble, it's kind of fun, kind of a fun show. Mm-hmm. WrestleMania 10, that would be great. I'd love to do that. But you know what? There's all that TV in between that I just, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing. 
So uh, I don't blame. I, I, can't, I couldn't do it either. <laughs> so the <I'm>, show, sure. <laughs> so uh, what what I'm going to do is instead kind of just look at where everybody was here in the, at least the first quarter of 1994. That way, I don't feel terrible uh, about uh, not not following through with, with some of the requests about uh, going through WrestleMania 10. That's not terrible. As I as I look at some of the roster, and we're going to go over most of the roster really quickly because a lot of guys, like I said, had nothing to do. Uh, well, right. Right, before you get started, yeah, Vince McMahon got acquitted. What was it? Shortly before or shortly after? Was it the Royal Rumble or was it later on in the year of '94? Uh, it was later on because the the uh, the trial doesn't even start until after Royal Rumble, much later. So, okay, all right, because I, I just remember I've, I've watched Raw from '94. That's about the only TV I can watch. Um, I remember Macho Man getting really hyped for Vince getting acquitted. Like there was a lot of lawyer jokes and that sort of stuff. Right, right, and that would that would carry on all the way till Halloween because Vince never forgets. Of course, he comes out on Halloween Raw, nineteen ninety four, dressed as what a prisoner. Of course, <laughs> it's classic. Shoving it to the government, in, huh? yeah. Rubbing it in. So, uh, speaking of ninety four, we'll get to ninety four here. We'll kind of look at some of the guys what they were doing heading into the new year. Of course, Bam Bam Bigelow and Doink the Clown. The feud started almost immediately after SummerSlam on TV. Of course, that was Matt Bourne. Doink the Clown, not Ray Apollo, who uh, actually this all ties in for Bammer because Bam Bam Bigelow, not a fan of Matt Bourne. Bourne thinks that Bigelow may have been one of the guys that got him fired from the company. In fact, he says Bigelow is the guy that ratted him out for uh, smoking weed in the hallways of the hotel. And uh, Matt Bourne obviously eventually goes away. And who comes in to replace him but a friend of Bam Bam Bigelow's. In fact, he, he's the one that went to Vince McMahon and said, hey, give this guy a try, Ray Apollo. And then Bigelow and Doink wind up feuding at least through WrestleMania 10, and I think the house shows beyond as well. So that's what those two guys are going to be doing here. They've been doing it for four months now, and it continues on. The Macho Man Randy Savage and Crush, that feud started obviously again in the fall, and that'll continue on through WrestleMania 10 with the Falls Count Anywhere match. Brett and Owen, we saw that uh, it began at Survivor. Well, technically, I guess it started before the Survivor Series. Subtle hints, Steve, subtle hints. But... (laughs) Uh, full-blown started Survivor Series. We know it's really going to kick off at the Royal Rumble here in 94. Brett and Owen seemed to feud the entire year, which is unbelievable. Yeah, Bob Backlund factors in there late in the year, but Brett and Owen really feud for most of 1994. The saving grace of 94. Of course, Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon. We've seen that really heat up lately. I love the angle with the uh, Razor's Edge on the concrete by Shawn on Razor near the end of the year. So happy that fit into 1993, and I got to watch that. Uh, really good stuff there. But Sean and Razor, we know the epic ladder match coming up at WrestleMania 10. I was one of the lucky ones, lucky enough to not only go to one of the practice shows, the shows where they were practicing the match prior to the pay-per-view, but they were trying other spots as well. So they were doing all the spots you saw at the pay-per-view plus more. So, and not only that, I just happened to be third row ringside for that particular show. And I got to find my old uh, pictures I took of that match, but uh, really cool stuff to be able to witness Basically, essentially the same match, maybe even a better version of the match because it was longer and more ridiculous. Yeah, I was going to ask which one was better. Uh, you know, I could be biased. I only saw the one I saw, you know, live once. I, you know, I never got to see it again. I wish they had those out there on tape. That would be tremendous. But I just remember it being absolutely fantastic. And the finish was identical. So when I saw Sean get trapped in the ropes at the pay-per-view, even though I already knew the business wasn't real, I was like, hey, now, come on. <laughs> That would be weird. I don't know how old you was, but if you know if you're like a six or seven year old kid who doesn't know any better, and you go to the house show and you see the finish, and then 
you're watching the pay-per-view, it's like, hey, I've seen this before. What the hell is going on? Sean really struggles with those ropes, I got to tell you. <laughs> right. If you didn't know then, he knows now, right? The, uh, it's, all, it's a work. <laughs> uh, we'll take a look real quick at what The Undertaker does here in 94. Of course, we know he, he goes into the Royal Rumble, wrestles Yokozuna for the title in a casket match, and then he dies for the first time. It's the first time The Undertaker dies. And he ascends into wherever the hell Undertakers ascend into, returns to avenge the fake Undertaker at SummerSlam before going back into a feud and avenging his, his loss to Yokozuna at the Survivor Series with Chuck Norris as special enforcer at ringside. Walker, oh Texas Ranger. Jared taking the, the nice kick and sell job. Jared <laughs> swears that was a legit kick. Like he really ate that kick. I wouldn't be surprised. Hell, I don't know. Does Jarrett like to lie? I, I don't listen to him enough or know him enough like that as far as his the way he is, but I don't, I don't think, know why you, know, you lie I, about I don't that. think Jarrett lies on purpose, but, you know, he's he's wrestler. He's he's uh, third generation, and he's got that carny. <laughs> he's got that carny in him anyway. And remember, his dad's Jerry Jarrett. So he, he it's his truth. Doesn't mean it is the truth. It's just Jarrett's truth. He's probably told the story so many times. Yeah, you know how it works. He just believes it now. That's, that's it, brother. <laughs> would you so, would you take a legit kick from Chuck Norris in some cowboy boots? Well, he's eighty. He's eighty some years old now, so absolutely. I would do it just to say I did it. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I took I've, Chuck done a, Norris's kick. I've done a lot of stupid things just to say I did it. Of course, most of that I was in my twenties, but yeah, absolutely. I would do it too. It'd be amazing. Uh, look at the other end of that Royal Rumble title match, Yokozuna. What does he do in '94? Well. You'd be surprised, Steve, unless you're really big on 94. You, you don't realize until you realize when you go through this that he didn't do a whole lot. Yeah, he beats The Undertaker at the Royal Rumble. Yes, he goes on to WrestleMania and not only wrestle Lex Luger, but also Bret Hart loses the title. And then what happens to him? He's out there with a, a little mini feud with Earthquake on TV before Quake leaves the company again. He's, he's beating Mabel on the house shows, tagging with Crush out of nowhere for a tag team title match at King of the Ring with the Head Shrinker, so they're trying to keep him involved, but he's not really doing much of anything uh, meaningful. And then he doesn't even appear, and I didn't even really realize this until I got to this, but doesn't even appear at SummerSlam 94, not even on the show. He goes from being the main event WWF champion in 93 to not even on the show in 1994. Wow. <laughs> it just goes to show that you got to get your shit together, buddy. So you could be, could you point to this like they tried in '94 to get him to lose the weight instead of gaining it? Do you think that's what it was? Well, I think so. they absolutely tried to get him to lose weight because if you go on and you go through the fall, he's wrestling the Undertaker on all the house shows in the casket match before Survivor Series, where he does the job, and they write him out, and we don't see him again until WrestleMania 11. So he's gone from November until whatever the hell WrestleMania was in '95. The end of March, beginning of April, whatever the hell it was, he's gone for that long period of time. Supposed to be losing weight, obviously he gains. He comes it. back. He comes back bigger than ever. My right. goodness. So wow. if this was to teach him a lesson, he lesson not learned. You dropped the belt. You went from main event and two manias in a row to not even making a pay per view. I mean, I don't know what more Vince and company could have done. Like, what else could you do? I'd say they tried their best because, you know, they clearly they loved the guy. He was a good guy. He, he had mm -hmm. not just a great personality, but he was a good uh, businessman. He was a good uh, company man. Unfortunately, he had some vices that were uh, very unhealthy, to say the least. And it led to, you know, his demise, unfortunately. Yeah, it's very sad.
Uh, you had the world at your fingertips, and you you eat it away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, we'll take a look at your guy, Lex Luger. We'll take a look at him real quick, see what he does here in 1994. Of course, 1993, a pretty big bomb. Not necessarily all his fault, but quite a bit of it just not really good. The narcissist never took off. I don't care what anybody says. Was never over. Didn't even really get booed. It was just one of those gimmicks where nobody cared. Oh, it's Lex Luger. It seems like it would be cool, but the narcissist gimmick just never really did anything with it. Then out of nowhere, a Brett Babyface turn. Yay! Made in the USA, or an American original, as Vince McMahon would call him here in the end of 93. Lex Luger uh, explodes onto the scene on July 4th. And then all summer long, it's the call to action campaign. He's getting over like hell, or at least TV would lead you to believe he's getting over like hell. And then SummerSlam comes and <laughs> it's the AEW explosion match all over again. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Luger yeah. do- doesn't win the belt, but you know, that was, you know, they say initially Vince had planned for him to win the title at SummerSlam, but Bruce Pritchard argues that Jim Ross argues that even Jim Cornette has come out and argued that in recent months. And, and that's because they said that Vince McMahon always believed that the money was in the chase for the title and not holding the title. What Vince wanted to do at some point during this call to action campaign was he planned this count out. And Luger, yes, Luger's, don't get me wrong, Luger's attitude played into this as well. But, but once that attitude came about and it was obvious that things weren't going exactly the way they wanted, Vince turned this into a positive or so he thought. And his plan at that point was to do the count out at SummerSlam and then uh, give Lex Luger Ludwig Borga for the fall and then come back to Yokozuna and give Luger the belt possibly at WrestleMania 10. Was it the chase? Was it just like he sold the money in the chase for just Luger? In this instance, oh, yes. In, the, in this instance, okay. I, I don't know, man. I, I get it. I probably I buy it. I, that's probably what they were trying to do. But when have they ever done that? Where you put all that money and effort and try to make this guy a superhero overnight, essentially, just for him to win by countout like that. That just kills him. I don't care what you do. Yeah, it, it killed even, him. For, even, you know, even, it's like I told the story when I did the SummerSlam watch along, Steve. I know you weren't here for that, but uh, I think I've mentioned this story to you in the past. I'm sitting there in my living room. It's the first time my brother's ever with me to watch a, a pay-per-view live. So he was in the room and my cousins were over. Basically, everybody that was a wrestling fan in my family, this is the only time we ever sat down in the same room at the same time to watch a pay-per-view. All of us. And, uh, yeah, I would say that was a, a huge fizzle back in 1993, not just now in hindsight, looking back and going, boy, did they kill him? I mean, we realized it as it was happening. Yeah. I remember I got that pay-per-view myself and I remember when he won by count out, I'm like, are you serious? Like, and I was eight years old at the time. So I didn't know any different. You know, I was actually seven. So, uh, I bought the pay-per-view to see Lex win the title. I, I wasn't like a massive Lex Luger fan but you kind of buy into it you get into the story and you know the call to action campaign like yeah the night's night even during the show they kind of build it up you know him showing up in the in the bus and then they go out and interview his bus driver and he actually cut a hell of a promo I thought like I thought he did an excellent job for what he was supposed to do there and he comes out and wins by count out and they're all celebrating I'm like even as a seven-year-old, I was just thinking, why the heck are you celebrating? He didn't win nothing. He won the match, but he didn't win the belt. Who cares? And I was pissed. Like, 
I didn't care at that point. I said, well, if he ain't doing it now, he's never going to do it. So, and then by the time the Royal Rumble comes around, like, I was behind Brett. I, I like Brett at the time. So, uh, that was, to me, it's stupid. At least give him the run. If it doesn't work, do something at Survivor Series if you want to change course. But at least give it a shot with the belt to have it give an opportunity because there's no way to recover from that, I don't think. No, and I, I dare say he never recovers from that, at least not here in the WWF. No, definitely not. And, uh, you were fortunate enough to leave the show after July, so you missed out on the epic Ludwig Borga Lex Luger feud, which went absolutely nowhere for months on end. And I, I've said this before on the show, and I'll say it again. Yes, Ludwig Borga had a phenomenal look, totally bought into yes. the look and the badass character. But like you know, like Jim Cornette said, like everybody's like, then the bell rang. But you don't really realize that in the Ludwig Borga squash matches because he's legitimately beating the shit out of guys he can take advantage of. However. When he gets in the ring with a Tatanka or a Lex Luger or someone he has to actually protect and have a match with, you realize pretty quickly, this guy stinks. He talks about America stinks. No, Ludwig Borga, the wrestler, he stinks. <laughs> uh, the only good match he had was with Scott Steiner. And that's because Scott Steiner just beat the fuck out of him right back. And that's what made it a great match. I that, that's a, that was a hidden gem for me. I'd forgotten that match even happened. So when I went, when I went and watched that match on Raw, you know, I don't remember, September, October, whenever it was, that was some good shit, pal. <laughs> yeah, he sucked. I remember I used to hype up his SummerSlam match, and then one day I was watching SummerSlam, and I was talking to you. I was like, man, he sucked, and this match is nowhere near as good as I thought it was. Yeah, and it if, if you can't Marty, look good against Marty Jannetty, there's, there's a fucking just, problem. <laughs> yeah, you're just flying around for the guy Marty is, and all he's doing is shitty punches, and I'm like, it, he was cool to me, like, as a kid, I thought he looked awesome, and he was intimidating, and I loved the face-to-face -face promo between him and Lex, where Lex is like, there's an old saying, you can love it or leave it. So I always enjoy that. I still remember it. I remember the delivery of Lex, and uh, I thought it was really good. But, yeah, now it's like Borg is trash. Trash person, trash wrestler, million-dollar look, 10-cent production, you know, whatever. He sucked. So I'm glad I missed it. So the narcissist was a complete bomb, if you ask me. The call to action campaign, great job. So July and August, Luger's on the rise. He's he's fucking ready to peak. I don't know about Hulk Hogan level over, but he's ready to peak. And then they do the count out job. And then immediately, Steve, the very next night during Raw tapings, or, or during TV tapings anyway, Lex Luger supposedly injures his back in a match with Shawn Michaels. And Luger's out for all of September. So here's a guy who didn't win the title, who won on a count out, he isn't over, and now he can't even do TV for a month. So there's no Lex Luger in all of September. He returns in October, but I didn't realize this. Remember, I know, I know you, I know you uh, left the show before this, but I'm sure you remember Luger's the one that, that wrestles Pierre and takes Pierre out of the Survivor Series. Yeah. Okay. Well, as I'm doing these shows back in, back in the fall episodes of 1993, I'm realizing, wait a minute. Is this the first time that Lex Luger has wrestled on fucking TV since he turned babyface on the 4th of July? Yes, yes. Lex Luger wrestled a total of two times on television between July 4th and the end of the year. And those times were against Pierre the Quebecers, which was, I think, er, somewhere early in November. And then mm -hmm. he, he, he did a squash match here, I think, the final week of Raw here in December. So Hulk Hogan, he is not. And his promos sure aren't going to get him over. 
uh, by themselves anyway. So trotting Luger out there to do two matches in a matter of six months on TV, not a good idea to keep your guy over. Wow. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I agree. Like, that's just stupid. The narcissist was stupid. I mean, he's egotistical. Like, his promo from WrestleMania 8 for the WBF was, like, tremendous. Almost felt like 1989 Lex Luger. Yeah. So if he would have it was it was Lex Luger. Yeah. If he would have ended the delivery, I, that's the biggest thing for me with the narcissist is however he was cutting his promos. I don't know who told him to do that. That was his idea of what, but my God, they were terrible. The slow delivery, the the pacing, like it was just horrible. Yeah. But if they would just let him come in as Lex Luger being Lex Luger, he's narcissistic enough. You don't have to name him that. Just let him do his thing, and he's going to get over as a heel. Well, I think that was the problem. Vince took a great character, which is not necessarily a character. It really was Lex Luger to a degree, but he had to turn it into a cartoon. Yeah, you know, and that's that's where he went wrong. He he should have just let yeah. Lex be Lex. He would have got over as a heel all on his own. But instead, he had to you know turn it into that, that Titan cartoon character, and then this is what we end up with. His best promo was that WWF promo. <laughs> I real fat man, and I mean I mean in WWF his WWF run like that promo was uh, it just oozed like this dude is a piece of shit like that you just see him and look at him and the way he talks like. <laughs> It, it just felt real and authentic. Like it, he probably does look down on people for being fat and out of shape and not looking like him. So it, like I bought that promo. I didn't buy any of the narcissist ones. Some of the made in the USA ones. That's fine. I guess. I mean, he probably believed some of it, but I um, mean, that 89 Luger is what we needed in WWF with the right push. And I think it would have been phenomenal. Yeah. And I, I, what he got. And I go back to the Survivor Series watch-along I did when I was talking to the listeners out there about the story Bruce Pritchard told about, remember that opening vignette where Lex Luger's sitting at home with his wife and his two kids, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and they say, have a happy Thanksgiving, and, and the whole vignette lasts a good 10 seconds? Bruce Pritchard told the story of filming that and how that 10-second promo took five hours to film. Because Lex Luger didn't want to be home. He had been out carousing every night, cheating on his wife, getting drunk, doing all these other things on the road. And now he is being forced, forced, Steve, to come home to his family for the holidays to film this vignette. This 10-second vignette, which took five hours. And uh, Luger was so upset for being there. He, he got into it with his son, yelling at his son because his son wasn't cooperating. His son begins to cry. His face is all puffy. They have to take a time out. His wife's mad at him for making his son cry. So. They get into it, and, and then all of a sudden, you see, have a happy Thanksgiving. And uh, Bruce said they never really got a great take. That was just the best one that they got out of five hours. In fact, near the end of it, Vince McMahon calls Bruce and goes, are you guys done yet? And, and Bruce is like, <laughs> no. And Vince is like, why the fuck is it taking five hours to do this? And it's <laughs> because we're presenting Lex Luger is the exact opposite of what he is, basically. <laughs> do it at a strip club with him and all his honeys, and it'll probably be, you could be done in 30 seconds. Well, yeah, they're going to cooperate, pal, especially for a couple bucks. Yeah, wow. That's sad. And uh, But that's Lex Luger in 93. Let's look at what Lex does here in 1994. Of course, he goes on to become co-winner. They, I love the story they told because, really, Lex got moved away from Yokozuna after SummerSlam. He signed that contract where he couldn't get another rematch for the title. So all of December, Jim Cornette's fighting with Jack Tunney, keeping 
Luger out of the Royal Rumble. So as December concludes, we don't know if Luger's going to make it to the Rumble, but by early January, yes, we know, Jack Tunney allows Lex Luger into the Royal Rumble match. He goes on to co-win with Bret Hart, and they both wrestle Yokozuna at WrestleMania for the WWF title. Of course, Luger gets disqualified by an evil, cheating heel referee, Mr. the returning Mr. Perfect, who basically screwed Lex over after Lex had cheated a pin perfect uh, a year ago at WrestleMania 9. The other cool part about that Rumble decision was Fuji got to bring two of his henchmen. So you got Tenru and Kabuki in there to... And more. And that was more underlying business because Vince had tried to make a deal to come over to Japan and work with War. So they grabbed a couple guys from War, Tenru and Kabuki, the biggest names in the in the promotion, obviously, to come over and work the Rumble. But classic Vince fashion or whoever came up with this idea, they use it, like you said, as Mr. Fuji's henchman to keep Luger from winning. Although that didn't yeah. really work out. No, they attacked him and everything. So they did well with that. I thought that was cool. I didn't I didn't remember that part being negotiated. Uh, I think they even announced that on like a superstars or something after they say Luger's gonna be in the match. So uh I thought that was pretty cool. I never knew that. Right. And so we learned Lex Luger's allowed in the Royal Rumble. He goes on to co win with Bret Hart. The crowd was not happy about that. Neither was I. Uh actually I was rooting for Luger there. I just I had enough of Bret Hart in that position at the time. I liked Bret with what he was doing with some of the other guys in 93. And uh, just kind of want to see Luger finally get what, what it was coming to him after, you know, he, everything fizzles out at SummerSlam. But uh, both guys go on to WrestleMania 10, like I said, to wrestle Yoko. So Luger's little story there with Yoko ends at WrestleMania 10. He's supposed to move on to feud with Mr. Perfect once again. Uh, but the and he quits almost immediately, cuts one promo on Raw, and then quits the company again. So Luger is left to fall back on Crush. So Luger is uh, getting ready to feud with Crush here, and through no fault of his own uh, Crush, no Kurt Hennig, Steve. Oh, definitely not. Why did Kurt, why did Henning quit? Like, did he just like come back? Like, I'm, I don't want to do this shit. Like, uh, you know, without going back into it, I don't remember. It's always one of the two things where they say cash or creative, and with Kurt Hennig, it was always cash or creative. So it may not have been, maybe he didn't like where they were going with it. Maybe he didn't think he was going to be doing jobs to Luger. Or uh, maybe the money wasn't there that he thought was going to be there. I mean, we know, we know the, uh, the whole Lloyds of London thing as well. I know there, was, there were deals at some point throughout his WWF tenure, and I could have the years wrong too, where he thought that Vince agreed to pay back Lloyds of London if he came back. And there was a lot of stuff like that going on. So uh, there's a lot, gotcha. of, a lot of weird things going on with Kurt Hennig throughout 92, 93, all the way until he debuts in WCW. Because if you go back and read The Observers, I swear, Kurt Hennig was set to debut in WCW from, like, December of 93 until he arrives <laughs> in WCW. It's kind of like the Piper stuff. Everybody, Piper's going to WCW, then Vince would call him. I'm sure he did the same with uh, Hennig. Uh, but I did remember what I was going to ask. I know we've spent a lot of time on Lex, but... I, I'm sure you watched it, the Hidden Gym, where they announced him as the champion prior to WrestleMania 10. Um, I remember why I watched it, it like when they did it. I don't know if the crowd was confused or like, well, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this for? But you could almost hear a pin drop when he got announced as champion. Right. It didn't get the reaction that I thought. So I'm wondering if like Vince heard that and is like, this just isn't working. <laughs> like, there's no doubt about it. Like, we're done. We're just going to move on. Sorry, Lex. 
You yeah, think well, that played you, a factor into well, it? Well, I mean, you, you you can't really argue that uh, narrative because look at what they do with him following WrestleMania and Yokozuna. Again, I'm not knocking Mr. Perfect. I'm I'm fine with that storyline, but there's no Kurt Hennig anymore. So, well, just, just give him Crush because unfortunately Crush is the the next one in line as far as heels go here. And uh, then eventually uh, they do the storyline with Ted DiBiase over the summer. Is Lex Luger uh, joining Ted DiBiase? Is he, is he sold out? to the million dollar man. Of course, it turns out to be Luger's buddy Tatanka who turns heel and then in the Luger stuck wrestling Tatanka for the remainder of the year. That didn't do him any favors either. No, definitely not. Tatanka is still talking about that. <laughs> I will say it was a great, I thought it was a good story. You probably seen the swerve coming a mile away, but I wasn't old enough to realize what the hell was going on. And they did an gr- excellent job of portraying Lex as the one who sold out. So it surprised me. I remember it. I thought it was great. I thought it was a good story. That's kind of what the Tonka's known for is selling out more than anything else. That and the streak, I guess. But I thought that was a good story over the summer. Yeah, no, I mean, now I, I've made the joke before, and it's it's kind of it's kind of real, too, that, that I've done my best to avoid 1993 all these years until now, except for Raw. I can watch Raw. I can watch the pay-per-views. But I've done my best to avoid 1993 otherwise, basically for almost 30 years. Well, if that's what I can say about 93, I can say that times 10 for 94. Never have I went back and watched any of the TV outside of maybe the Raws uh, in 1994 in an extremely long time. Uh, What I do remember from the last time I ever watched any of that, which was probably in the 90s, was I thought they did do a very good job playing it up that uh, a guessing game. But yes, I I personally, I don't want to say I saw it coming a mile away, but my guess was that this is too obvious that Tatanka is going to be the one that turns at SummerSlam. So when it happened, uh, my brother, my cousins kind of looked at me like, wow, how did you know? Like, I'm a great booker. Obviously, I just kind of thought outside the box is all I did. But I, I remember thinking on TV anyway, they did a great job. The casual fan may not have seen it coming. Yeah, I was too young. I, I probably would have picked up on it now, but I was too young to put two and two together. Like, Why is Tatanka accusing him of selling out? Like, that's really the key. If you pick up on that, you're going to pick up on the whole story. But if not, uh, you're you're on for the ride. And I was, so I, I'm happy about that. Uh, it was cool. So Dave Meltzer reports in the fall of 1993 that Medusa, formerly of WCW, formerly of the AWA, Medusa is headed to the World Wrestling Federation to feud with Luna Vachon to give Luna something to do now that Sherry's gone from the company, which is a pretty big deal. I love Medusa in WCW. Uh, but she's going to come in under a new name, Alundra Blaze. And by later in the fall, we find out there's going to be a women's championship returning to the WWF. We haven't seen that since uh, the end of 88, beginning in 89, when Rock and Robin was removed from the company. So Alundra Blaze comes back, and she wins the title on an episode of All Americans, Steve, by defeating <laughs> Heidi Lee Morgan. We get highlights, all, all 15 seconds of them, on the following Raw. And uh, no women's division, and uh, Luna Vachon, is, is she's stuck in a feud right now with Dink, Dink the Clown. So, uh, yeah, Alundra Blaze comes in and has nobody really to work with, so what do they do? She doesn't do anything for the first month and a half she's champion, and then uh, eventually she'll work Heidi Lee Morgan on some of the house shows, Leilani Kai around WrestleMania 10 and those house shows. I do remember attending that house show, may have even been, I think this was the WrestleMania Revenge Tour show. And um, they had announced the Lundra Blades versus Luna Vachon, but instead we got Leilani Kai again from WrestleMania 10. So I guess it was kind of like the revenge tour there. 
Uh, but so she's working Heidi Lee Morgan, Leilani. Finally, Luna uh, has some matches with Delundra throughout the early summer of 1994 before Bull Nakano comes in and they, they tear the house down with some pretty damn good matches. And I was a big fan of Bull Nakano. So, uh, yeah, Lundra Blaze didn't really do a whole lot for the first seven months in the company. After It's kind of like WCW, before <laughs> yeah, WCW, yeah. before she goes to WCW and drops <laughs> the belt in the garbage, and then you don't hear from her again for another year. Yeah, yeah, I, I was going to say it sounds awfully familiar to a WCW run. Probably might get some heat for this, but I was never like a huge women's wrestling fan. I'm still not. Like I enjoy a good match here and there. It's just not my favorite. I don't know why, but man, I love their matches with Bull Nakano. They're stiff. The moves are cool. Um, Bull Nakano is a hell of a worker. Uh, very entertaining. She's intimidating to see. Once you've seen her, you like you'll never forget her. She just has a look that I wouldn't say endearing, but it's not something you're gonna forget. Um, clearly, with that hair and the face paint and everything else, and um, it's like it doesn't matter who's in the ring. Once the bell rings and you have a good match in front of you, you can appreciate it. And Alondra Blaze and Bull Nakano was that. I mean, they were just awesome, awesome matches. So up until now, everybody we've talked about, they, they've had something to do here in 1994. We talked about all the big names, obviously Macho Man, Brett Nolan, Shawn Michaels, Razor Ramon, The Undertaker, Yokozuna, Lex Luger. Well, now here it comes. It's the rest of the roster here in 1994 and this is where i was talking about things just fall apart where maybe they had some plans or ideas for guys even even if it was just something small uh we we would see that in in years uh prior but unfortunately here in 1994 things just the wheels just fall off here if you're not in the upper card it would would feel like on the roster because tatanka he was scheduled to feud with ludwig borga probably i'm assuming through wrestlemania time anyway uh, but Ludwig Borga's gone. He injures himself at Madison Square Garden in a match with Rick Steiner prior to the Royal Rumble, the week of Royal Rumble 94, and he never returns to a WWF ring. So Ludwig Borga's gone, and with, and with Borga out, Tatanka flounders. He has nothing to do until his eventual heel turn uh, at SummerSlam. So Tatanka doesn't really do much of anything for about eight months here in 1994. That's okay. They could have started another winning streak for him. <laughs> they could have. They could have done a lot of things, uh, but uh, but turning him heel, it made me want to not see Tatanka for another eight months. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, I, I tend to agree. He's getting a little heavy, you know, and kind of getting out of shape a little bit. Whatever aura or mystique he had early on, you know, ninety two, ninety three, that run in ninety three, like it, Borga and Yoko just flattened it really at the end of 93 there, and he never really recovered. The heel turn was probably a last-ditch effort to get something out of him. Yeah, not much for Tatanka. Not a, not a huge fan. Uh, not much for Tatanka. Not much for Double J Jeff Jarrett. They spend eight weeks, eight vignettes, to bring Double J Jeff Jarrett into the WWF. He's going to use the WWF, Steve. And instead, he doesn't do much of anything for all of 1994. This guy comes in, you look at him immediately, you think, well, he's, he's going to be in that intercontinental level of talent. But instead, I mean, most of the summer and fall, he spends uh, working with the likes of Doink the Clown and, and Mabel uh, <laughs> of Men on a Mission. So Jeff Jarrett, again, another guy who doesn't do anything for the first half of 94 and then spends the rest of the year working with Doink the Clown and Mabel on the house shows. Uh, before finally, finally, finally getting something to do uh, going into Royal Rumble 95 with Razor Ramon in the Intercontinental title. 
who do you come in the rumble and mess with? Was he wrestling with Savage? Yeah, and, and Savage flings him out. Right. Yeah, he wasn't there very long, and then that was kind of it. He was in that ten man at Mania that got canceled. So um, yeah, he was just another guy that was there doing nothing, uh, treading water. You have to think they they had plans for him eventually. They just didn't know what they were or when they were going to be. I mean, they made sure to try to work him on the, the pay per views, like you said. He was part of the King of the Ring. He was. Uh, Wrestled Mabel at SummerSlam. Again, there was no storyline there. And usually by, by 94, they tried to have some kind of a, an angle for guys at that level on the show. Uh, but he gets the win, so they're, they're at least trying to keep him out there and keep him active. But just nothing for Double J for most of the entire year of 94. And speaking of nothing for guys, nothing for Adam Bomb either, who will eventually be turned face because they just have nothing for him. Adam Bomb going to turn on his manager, Harvey Whippleman, and... Uh, Stablemate Quang, uh, a nice summer feud for Adam Bomb and Quang coming up in 1994. <laughs> <laughs> Said no one ever. Uh, the model Rick Martel goes absolutely nowhere, comes back in immediately. One of the final two in the Intercontinental Title Battle Royal with Razor Ramon. They have the big match the next week. And by the end of 93, he's, he's an afterthought and it continues on into 1994. IRS, uh, basically his push finishes up here with Razor Ramon and the Intercontinental Title. I can't really think of anything big that he did beyond that. It's like they, other than the undertaker thing that they do the following year, IRS is just there. Yeah. Looks back up with Ted DiBiase and does nothing. Just kind of stands there as part of the million dollar corporation. Yeah. Pretty much. He handles the money and taxes. Bob Backlund. <laughs> they, 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 yeah, that's probably why he was there. They were using him for tax, tax purposes. <laughs> Bob Backlund, we saw the vignettes at the end of 92. He comes in and sets that record at Royal Rumble 93. By the, the end of the summer, he's, he's sent home. By the end of the fall, he's brought back, and he's working full-time again for the company, which has got to be kind of cool, I guess, for Bob Backlund, but nothing for him until the heel turn in the summer of 1994. Eventually, he'll go on to win the belt at the Survivor Series, believe it or not, guys. Uh, just another name, nothing really for him here throughout the year. Newcomers to the company, we've seen the vignettes here in December of 93, Quang and Thurman Sparky Plug, they'll both make their debut, unannounced, by the way, at the Royal Rumble match in uh, 94, but uh, neither guy, immediately they become fodder on the roster, both of the guys undercard talent almost immediately upon debuting in the company. Your thoughts on any of these names I just rattle off? I got nothing. And, My friends for, call me Sparky. For, for, yeah, there you go. And you can call me Sparky, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he did get a nice little run there in the Rumble. He was in there about 10, 12 minutes, I think it was. So um, Quang missed it. Rick Steiner, that's about all he did in his career as Quang. <laughs> pretty much sums up his entire career. <laughs> as Quang. As Quang, yeah, as Quang. <laughs> Obviously, you go on to better days as Savio Vega. We'll see him next year in 95. You might, see, you might see him next year at 95. I, I won't. No, I won't either. I'm good on 95. <laughs> so that's pretty much all the singles guys. Now we'll look at the tag teams here and see what they're going to do here in 1994. You've got the Quebecers who are the tag team champions, been running strong since the middle of September. And man, are they really getting over as a, as a hell of a heel unit with Johnny Polo. Jacques Rougeau and Johnny Polo separated at birth, perhaps. I, I don't know. These guys both have kind of the same sense of humor, I think. And Pierre's just there for the ride. What a talent Pierre was, though, here. It's part of the Quebecers. Jacques Rougeau did all the promo talk with Johnny Polo. Uh, it was like a new and improved Jacques Rougeau, rejuvenated Jacques Rougeau here. Uh, this was definitely not the Mountie. So when he says, we're not the Mounties, he means it. Because uh, just like a different guy 
uh, here on the Quebecers. So, but the funny thing is, is, as over as they were and as big as they were by the end of the year, and they, they beat the Steiner brothers, and they're wrestling Brett and Owen at Royal Rumble, who do they wrestle at WrestleMania? Men on a mission. No real storyline or anything going into it. You figure this is where the Steiners are going to come back and get the revenge and recapture the belts. Nope. We learn that the Quebecers are wrestling men on a mission at WrestleMania 10, and it's almost immediately afterwards that they drop the belts to the baby-faced head trigger tag team, and then Jacques Rougeau must have pissed somebody off again because he's gone from the company, and Pierre will roll solo, really not ever appearing on TV, just doing jobs on the house shows all the way through the summer months. So uh, the Quebecers, just as fast as they came in, they're gone. Crazy. I, I never really noticed that. I didn't realize they were only there less than a year. Yeah, eight, eight nine-month uh, run on top, and then that, that was it. Just as quick as they I, came, they were gone. I remember I hated them, like, for the reasons why you would hate them. <laughs> like, I couldn't stand them, but it was the heat that they had. So they did their job, uh, definitely. They were entertaining, great in the ring, I thought. I thought their double teams and moves were better than Jacques and Raymond, for the most part. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and yeah, for, just, for as much as I uh, hated the Mountie, I love the Quebecers for that very reason. Their wrestling was, like, phenomenal. Very... Very innovative uh, for the tag team scene, especially in the WWF. Yeah. I love the Mountie gimmick and the way he did it. Just his entering was terrible, oh, for yeah, sure. It was, it was definitely not something I want to go back and watch. <laughs> definitely not. Uh, we talk about tag teams. We talk about the Steiner brothers, man. They come in. They beat every tag team in the company from the Head Shrinkers to the Beverly Brothers to Money Incorporated in a steel cage match right there on USA, the SummerSlam Spectacular. They beat the Heavenly Bodies at SummerSlam. They're riding high. They beat everybody. And then one of them fails a drug test, presumably for steroids, right after SummerSlam. And they're suspended for six weeks, leading to them dropping the belts by disqualification to the Quebecers. And the Steiner brothers really never recovered from that. No. They looked like little bitches at the Royal Rumble. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know. Like, that, that confused the hell out of me. Scott Steiner comes in. Scott Steiner goes out. Rick Steiner comes in. Rick Steiner goes out. It confused the hell they out of me. It, it, yeah, they looked like they were checked out. They didn't care. They didn't want to be there. Rick Steiner's elimination was just one of the most memorable memorable things to me, not because of the way he was eliminated, but the ease of which he went over, went out, and didn't even act like he gave a shit. Yeah, both of them. Who, Rick got the mist, and then Scott tried to protect him, but he just didn't even really do anything. Like, he didn't go after Quang. Like, oh, you just missed my brother and blinding him. I'm going to kick your ass. It was just like, eh. I'm going to go over here and get this guy, I guess. It was just very weird. I remember being, what the hell's going on with the Steiners? I remember that. Yeah, that was a it. that was a what the fuck just happened moment for me. Wham, bam, what the fuck just happened? I uh, I remember as it, as it was happening, thinking, what the hell is this? It's like I wasn't watching the Steiner, but this isn't the Steiners. I mean, they drew one in three. You knew that they were going to run ramp. They're they're going to kill everybody, or they're going to kill each other. Something cool is going to happen here, and then none of that happens. Yeah, you almost feel like it was going to be like a demolition moment, you know, where they might get their hands on each other and wrestle for a thing or two. But Sam Mu kind of saved him with that head spot, getting stuck in the ropes. That looked awesome. But yeah, other that, than that, that, that woke, like, that woke just, me up. Yeah, I was just like, that's one of the things that I remember the most about that Royal Rumble, just watching it. What really confused me was the Steiners. They just seemed out of it. And then Owen Hart had that big turn, and then he just gets dumped almost immediately as he gets in. I didn't understand that. I understand he was trying to get Diesel over, but 
why was Owen getting dumped that early? Why didn't he get a little bit longer run in the match? That was really my two biggest, like, what are we doing moments there. Uh, so the Steiners never really recovered. They don't even work WrestleMania 10. In fact, there was a house show right around that time where they were scheduled to wrestle possibly the Quebecers, I think it was, on the house show. But the big story there was is um, they didn't even appear. And they had been uh, advertised to appear at a signing earlier in the day, which I didn't get to make, and I, and I really wanted to in a bad way to get, get the Steiner Brothers uh, autographs. Uh, but I didn't get to go to get that done, and it kind of worked out because come to find out, the Steiners weren't even on the show, and they were replaced by Men on a Mission. And uh, you can imagine my surprise if I had got my grandfather to drive me somewhere to go get some autographs, and instead of Scott and Rick, it's, it's Moe and Mabel. I was going to ask, did they replace him on the card and at the yes, autograph yeah, that, that was Yeah, that was the other part of it. So the Steiners weren't there, replaced by Men on a Mission in both spots. Uh, so kind of a letdown there. And then Men on a Mission magically, for whatever reason, I have no idea, get the, uh, I guess by de facto, get the title shot at WrestleMania 10. They go on to take on the Quebecers. They don't get the job done there. They can't even lose on a pinfall for some reason. We get a count out instead with Men on a Mission going over, I guess, to keep the fans happy. WrestleMania 10 and all, I suppose, but not really anything else in the camp of Men on a Mission. I, I know Mo goes out for quite a while. Mabel does some singles things, which I'm sure Vince was very happy about. Men on a Mission really don't do anything again until they turn heel. And then Mabel jobbed to Jared at King of the Ring? SummerSlam. SummerSlam, yeah. Like, that didn't make any sense to me. Like A lot of the stuff, just thinking about it now, like a lot of it just is head scratchers and, you know, did not make much sense. As a WWF, you know, you're watching WWF, you never expect Jeff Jarrett to be Mabel. And then he does. And it's like, huh, okay, <laughs> like this is new. The big guys never lose, really, unless it's somebody like Hulk Hogan doing it. You know, it's, that's what you're trained to know. And then you see Jeff Jarrett. I'm like, oh, there's no way Jarrett's winning. And then he ends up winning. And it's like, well, that's dumb. Yeah, just very weird. Uh, another tag team, the Smoking Guns. They don't really do it. They came into came onto the scene right around June, May, June of '93, if I remember correctly. They don't really do anything all year long. They're not really feuding with anybody. They're kind of that underneath tag team. They don't really beat anybody, but they don't really lose to anybody very often either. Uh, I can't think of a damn thing they do in 1994, to be honest with you. One of them got hurt what towards the end, and they had to drop the belts. So that's how you got the kid and Sparky. Uh, Rumble 95, so yeah, I mean, nothing. The head shrinkers are the same. I guess they have the title run and Fatu messing with his boot. That shit didn't make any sense to me either, but yeah, tag wrestling was an afterthought in 94. So uh, I'm trying to do my 1994, uh, going into my memory banks here in 94. Were the guns champions when we did that tournament leading into Rumble 95? Because I remember the head shrinkers uh, wind up Winning the tag, turning babyface, getting Captain Lou as their manager, beating the Quebecers for the belts shortly after WrestleMania 10, holding those belts until the day before SummerSlam, where they randomly dropped the belts to Diesel and Shawn Michaels for what reason? I have no idea. An indie. That was uh, an indie. And Samu disappears from the uh, team shortly thereafter, replaced by the Barbarian as Sione, his, his real first name. Uh, so Fatu and Sione, the new head triggers later on. But they lose the belts to Sean and Diesel the day before SummerSlam, and the only reason I knew that going into the pay-per-view was the day of SummerSlam, Diesel and Sean just happened to be on Regis and Kathy Lee, and no, I, I never watched Regis and, Ka Regis and Kathy Lee, but I knew Sean, and Sean was going to be on there, and I was a giant fan, so I tuned in, 
turned it on, and all of a sudden they had the tag team titles. I said, what the hell, had, what the hell happened here? I know Diesel or Sean throws the belt down at Survivor Series, but I'm thinking that's what set it up for the tournament, right? The Guns didn't have the belt in between there. Wasn't that the next time we get the tag team title tournament where the Guns are injured? Yeah, it might be next time. I know the the Guns get the match after the Rumble. Right, because I believe they were injured. One of them were injured, like you said, but and they, they weren't able to in the tournament. tournament. Right, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's an injury both times. There's a tag team tournament, so it gets a little confusing there. So, yeah, but the the Guns really didn't do anything in all of 1994. The Head Shrinkers, I just covered them. They they go on to win the belts, drop the belts. Samu leaves uh, right around SummerSlam time. So I still I can't remember off the top of my head what exactly happened backstage leading to Samu quitting out of the blue like that. But I do remember them announcing that Samu got a hold of some bad raw fish. <laughs> oh, boy. Good stuff. That's believable. Yeah, well, you know. They come just like Bastion Booger having stomach issues so he couldn't join the rumble that's right <laughs> I, I think the only thing that SummerSlam that, that was the first wrestling show at the united center it was like brand new like a month old and they kind of popped the cherry there i guess pretty crazy yeah they do that quite often if they could get in there and do that vince loved to brag about shit like that and then of course they'd set records pal because nobody else had been there before to do it so. <laughs> that's right couple of guys I looked over, Steve, in the singles area, and that's because they start off the year as kind of a tag team, and that's Marty Jannetty and the one 2 3 kid who team up and out of nowhere defeat the Quebecers. Didn't see that one coming in January of 93. Defeat the Quebecers. Anything can happen in the World Wrestling Federation as Jannetty and the kid win the tag team titles only to lose them back before the Royal Rumble pay-per-view at Madison Square Garden. Of course, that handheld's out there, so you can actually go watch that match. Unfortunately, it was also during that match I think it was that match. I don't think it was the uh, New York Rumble. I could be wrong, but at some point during that Madison Square Garden show, not only does Ludwig Borga break his ankle, but the one, two, three kid suffers a legit leg injury as well, and that's why he misses the Rumble 94 match. But again, he was supposed to be part of that 10-man tag, the throwaway match at WrestleMania that doesn't really happen, and the kid doesn't do much of anything for the remainder of 94 that I can think of. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Was he, was he even at Survivor Series? He may have been on Razor's team. Oh, the Tin Man. Yes, the Tin Man. Yeah, okay, yes, he was. He does the, uh, the Diesel throws him up in the air. He drop kicks Diesel in the midair, but uh, winds up getting the jackknife, obviously. Okay, yeah, then he was in that opener. Yeah, but uh, for all intents and purposes, the kid, I mean, you have talent like the kid, and he does basically nothing for mm -hmm. the entire year, and that goes back to Jarrett and the kid and Marty Jannetty, who, yes, they win the tag team titles here, but Jannetty, again, in and out, because he is Marty Jannetty, after all. But just yeah. so many mid-carders here, you could find something for him to do outside of just throwing him in the ring and saying, here's a match. And we, we don't see a whole lot of that here. Yeah, pretty crazy. It's like they, they only have enough brain power to focus on the upper card and maybe the IC title. Yeah, but exactly. They already, had that. they already had that in place with Sean and Razor. They pretty much feuded him and the click. They kind of just feuded the whole year really sean and razor sean and diesel razor and diesel diesel and sean they had that already in place from 93 so they didn't have to do anything with it same with your title run you know you gave it to brett and then he already had owen in place from 93 and then everything else underneath is wasn't set up in 93 so there's really nothing for you sorry yeah so until tatanka's heel turn they have nothing for him nothing for Jarrett, nothing for Janetti, nothing for the kid nothing for the entire 
tag team division. Look at 1994. There were no storylines here in 1994 for any of the tag teams. Not the Quebecers, the Steiners, Men on a Mission, the Guns, Head Triggers. Nobody. There was no stories to be told here. Uh, so, so you have to think that the indictment had to play at least a small part in the mid-card, the tag team storylines being essentially dormant. Well, if you think about it, it's anything that wasn't already set up in 93 is just there. Yeah. Because you got like Tatanka and Bam Bam that gets transitioned into Bam Bam and Doink, which was already going on. Brett and Owen started in 93. Savage Sean and Crush. And Razor, so yes. Savage and Crush. Once those stories played out and they were over, they had nothing. <laughs> like, I guess the Undertaker and Undertaker stuff, but that was really the only thing that was new in 94 that actually had a story, whether it was good or not, is beyond the point. It's just outside of, like, Taker and Taker, then Tatanka and Luger, everything else was 93 that was set up in 93 and just carried into 94. Besides a few things like shit that nobody cares about, like Bob Backlund going heel and stupid. It's crazy. They can find something for Backlund, but they can't find anything for the one, two, three kid. Yeah, blows my mind. Figure that out. <laughs> but it is uh, awards time, guys. We're going to give away about a half a dozen awards here. And then on the other side, we're going to do Ask Us Anything. I know you guys have been waiting diligently for that uh, segment of the show. So it is upcoming here. But first, we're going to give away a few year-end awards for 1993 in the World Wrestling Federation. And up first, what else but the Wrestler of the Year. And to break the monotony, I did the very best I could to look over the roster and try to pick anyone but who I selected because I figured that's pretty much who everybody would pick. So I, I wanted to try to try to pick somebody else, but I just couldn't do it, Steve. Uh, absolutely, wrestler of the year in 1993 goes to one man and one man only, and that has to be Bret the Hitman Hart. No doubt Bret Hart, the superstar of the year, had Mr. Perfect uh, been pushed, I mean actually pushed, all year. He might have given Bret Hart a run for the money, but considering the fact that they really didn't do a whole lot for with Hennig after WrestleMania, yes, I know he was feuding with Shawn Michaels, but there were months there where they did nothing leading into SummerSlam. Uh, and then, of course, Hennig just kind of floundered and, and thrown away after that. Bret Hart, by far, uh, the wrestler of the year here in 1993. you got to look at all the pay-per-view matches and everything, top to bottom, uh, very believable in the ring, and really good stuff with Jerry Lawler. Just really good. Yeah, no argument there. None for me. I agree, though. If if, if WWF capitalized on how over Kurt Henning got after he beat Ric Flair on Raw and sent him packing, if, if they would have capitalized on that and pushed it and went with it and just ran with it because it was natural, I agree. I think Kenny could have definitely gave Brett a run for his money, but they clearly didn't do that. It almost feels like they did everything they could to kind of slow it down. Uh, for Kurt, but I know he was in feuds with Luger. He had the stuff with Sean, but you know, by April or May, he just kind of flatlined a little bit as far as being over and what he, he was doing the same jobber matches over and over. He didn't change anything. Uh, the match with Sean was terrible. Uh, it wasn't terrible. It just didn't live up to the expectations. The match with Luger, you figure it would be somewhat good. And it sucked. Um, his best matches was against Flair, obviously, and then Brett at King of the Ring. But I agree, those two would really be it as far as choices go. Tag team of the year, I think, uh, immediately of the Steiner brothers. I don't know if you can argue that. I mean, like I said, I already ran down every team. They, they, basically, beat, they basically beat every team, every heel team anyway, here in the WWF 1993 besides well done. And that's only because they never got an opportunity 
to do that. Well Done was gone before the Steiners came back from their suspension, so they escaped doing the job to Rick and Scott. I'm sure they're happy about that. Yeah, I'm sure they are. But the Steiner brothers, no doubt about it, some fun TV matches constantly, the Steiner screwdriver, all the different finishes from the top rope bulldog to the top rope DDT, the Frankensteiner, of course, really good stuff. They always came out there and brought 100%, whether it was a competitive match or a squash match, you were going to get 100% from the Steiners, no doubt about it. They go on to win the tag team titles. They beat every, like I said, every heel team in the company, including a cage match on TV. may have been the first cage match on USA. I can't really remember one before it, but they beat everybody, Steve. And then Scott Steiner solidified everything for me. And it wasn't even a tag team match, but just the uh, the match with Ludwig Borga. They just beat the shit out of each other, man. Just really good stuff. <laughs> yeah, really no argument there. Kudos to, what was it, Blake Beverly to eat that Frankensteiner at Royal Rumble. <laughs> just awesome. Yeah, it started there, and it just it just kept going. Yep. It, like, the Steiners were almost single-handedly trying to change the way the WWF operated as far as their matches go. They were going to do everything they could to bring that style, that Japan style, to WWF, and I thought they did a great job. They didn't really get toned down, from what I could tell, from the stuff that I watched. Um, they never really got into that, well, I'm in the WWF, I don't have to work as hard. I don't ever recall that happening until the Royal Rumble 94, and by then they were done. So No, definitely not. I mean, they even, you know, they went on their shoot interviews. They're not fans of working the Quebecers, but they had, I thought the match that they did on TV and any of the other stuff I've seen between the two teams, I thought it was pretty solid. They're not fans, obviously, uh, probably for other reasons, I, uh, namely probably Jacques Rougeau, I'd have to imagine. But uh, <laughs> It doesn't seem like the the easiest person to get along with. No, yeah. In fact, I've I've seen some other shooter as I'm preparing for 1987 the WWF. I've I've seen some shoot interviews with some of the guys and immediately even some of the nicest guys maybe not a big fan of Jacques Rougeau, so <laughs> he doesn't seem like for the person for everybody. Yeah, he's an acquired like taste for a, sure. Seems like he's having a good time but for himself. Right. It looks like he can, he could get overbearing sometimes. That's my guess. Very loud. So back in 1989 in the NWA, we came up with a, a monthly trophy, Steve, the VIP Jobber of the Month. And at the end of 1989, the winner of the VIP Jobber of the Year was none other than a man by the name of Lee Scott. Well, over, here, over here in the WWF, let's see if they can measure up to Lee Scott mm -hmm. as we look at the VIP Jobber of the Year here in 1993 for the World Wrestling Federation. Honorable mention to so many who, who weren't there straight through the entire year, but you got to look at Barry Horowitz, the Brooklyn Brawler, Mike Sharp, Jim Powers, Jimmy Brunzel, but also some of the lower tier guys. Some of them go on to be bigger names in the company, bigger names in wrestling down the line, but Tony DeVito, Glenn Ruth, and Chaz Ware, who went on to become the Headbangers, Gary Jackson, of course, Reno Riggins. Oh my God, Reno Riggins from, from the perm cut to the, the Davy Boy Smith dreadlocks to the uh, great Muda handspring elbow. Reno Riggins was... Trying a little bit of everything here in 1993, but Rich Myers and Mike Bell, Phil Apollo, Ross Greenberg, Mike Bucci, the future supernova, Mike Corey, Dan Dubiel, Mark Thomas, Brian Walsh, Bert Centeno, Tim McNini, Barry Hardy, Chris Duff. Okay, maybe not Chris Duffy. Uh, Dwayne Gill, just a serious consideration here for me. I, I almost wanted to give him the trophy because he was here all year. People don't realize he wasn't just Dwayne Gill. He was doing double duty on a lot of those uh, TV shows is half of the executioners as well, Pain and Agony. The executioners were typically Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy. 
And they also got to run as the Toxic Turtles there for uh, one of the TV tapings, trying out a new Ninja Turtle gimmick. So uh, Dwayne Gill, man, he was a hustler here in 1993. <laughs> Put in the work. I guess that's one of the benefits of working in the same area all year long. You can keep your, your jobber loop there in tow and not to really look for anybody. So you do get a lot of the same guys, but it's kind of cool. Like you said, you get to see guys like Supernova, DeVito from the Baldies, the Headbangers, some cool, some talent way before their talent. And uh, and more to come cool. here on this list, actually. Yeah, I, I agree. But how smart were Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy that not only were they Dwayne Gill and Barry Hardy, but they brought Executioner gear with them. So, hey, we, we, can do, we can do more if you want us to. And then they bring the Ninja Turtle costume and say, hey, we got another idea. And, yeah, it didn't work, but they're, they're trying. These guys get it. Like, if Barry Hardy and Dwayne Gill aren't marketable, maybe some of these other things are. We're going to just keep coming back at you. And uh, Vince must have uh, enjoyed their work as enhancement talent anyway, because they were there for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I said, I considered Dwayne Gill for the winner here, but it really came down to just two candidates for me. One of them, Scott Taylor, the future Scotty Too Hottie. What great jobs we saw him do all year long. What phenomenal enhancement talent. And the, uh, the big-time guys, they all knew that too, Steve, because they gave him shit tons of offense in their matches. They knew that they could go out there and he could make them look good, so they had no problem making him look good in the process as well. I always like that. You can tell when a jobber has respect from the, the, his peers because uh, they're the ones who get the offense. If it's a no-name, like, who the hell is this guy? i never seen him. They're going to get killed. But if it's, you know, like a Scott Taylor, Lee Scott, they're going to get a little bit of offense, and, they, and it's just because the guys want to give it to them, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, they certainly earned their respect. I think I think Scott Scott Taylor went out there and everybody he worked, he got a little bit of offense in, except for uh, most likely Ludwig Borga. Probably but that's uh, you know that's another story for another day. Uh, but the winner, <laughs> I think I think the winner here, Steve, I, I had to give it uh, to the future just incredible, the future Portuguese man of war Aldo Montoya here in 1993. He's been PJ Walker, and it's just just by a slight nod, really. Do I give it to PJ Walker over Scott Taylor uh, just because I mean, they gave him the win over IRS? He really looked like a little more polished than Scott Taylor here in 93, I guess I'd say. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. PJ so, was a little bit ahead of the game as far as that goes and getting ready compared to the rest of the guys. So a different criteria um, because in 89, you know, you you had guys getting destroyed over and over and you can kind of point and like, okay, that guy did it this month, but in WWF, it was a lot of the same. So you really have to look at potential and things like that and who stands out. And PJ Walker definitely did. And Scott Taylor, I mean, he looked great in the offense they gave him, but PJ Walker looked like a, a talent, an actual talent on the card in delivering some of the moves, the missile drop kicks off the top rope, the high cross bodies off the top rope, mm-hmm. just the thing of beauty. Uh, it's it's funny what he ends up becoming and, and just incredible. But here in 1993, he was a hell of a wrestler. And I had to give him VIP job of the year here. Can't argue that one. All right, we're going to go on to biggest bust of the year, Steve. Who <laughs> was the biggest bust of the year? Literally, and I said literally, the biggest bust of the year was the biggest wrestler in the company. It had to be the Giant Gonzalez. Yeah. Um Getting handed Undertaker like that and totally shit in the bed, really to no fault of his own. Probably should have never been a wrestler in the first place. Uh, he probably wouldn't have been if he wasn't seven seven. 
I would almost say also you could throw Lex Luger on this list. <laughs> he could be considered. Oh, um, absolutely. I the narcissist didn't work. Made in the USA didn't work. By the time 94 gets here, he basically lost whatever he gained from the call to action campaign. I guarantee Alexa's was getting paid a lot more than Giant Gonzalez. <laughs> so I'm sure Vince would probably agree that Luger was a big bust in 93. Nope. I can go with Giant Gonzalez, too. He, he's terrible. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good call there. I, th- I think if you ask The Undertaker, he would, he would side with the Giant Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He didn't yeah. have to pay the bills. And, and certain, certainly guys like Bastion Booger, Damian Demento, and, and Dink the Clown can thank guys like the Giant Gonzalez for making them a distant second in Biggest Bust. Yeah, yeah it, it's hard to go against Giant Gonzalez when he was there. We talked about this first half of the year, but who the hell gets put in a feud with somebody and then they bring in somebody else just so you don't have to feud with them until your match is SummerSlam? Like, I don't think that's ever been done before where they, they keep the feud going, but they replace him with somebody else to get to where they want to get to. Right. Yes. Absolutely. And sit, keep right. him at home. Like that's how bad you are. Like we don't even want you to be in the feud. You, you know, you know the guy you're feuding with pal. Yeah. He doesn't want to <laughs> wrestle you on the house show. So we're going to bring another guy in and he's going to work that guy. And you just oh, sit at home until SummerSlam. And then we'll finish wow. you up there. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that says it all. Uh, final award. Well, no, actually, I think we're going to do two more awards. It looks like here, uh, newcomer of the year. And the only rule here, Steve, is they had to start wrestling in the company in 1993. And that's, that's a long list of guys like Sluger, the Steiner brothers, Ludwig Borga, Matt Bourne, Doink the Clown, Diesel, the Quebecers, Men on a Mission, the, the Smoking Guns, Jeff Jarrett, Mr. Hughes, Adam Baum, Bastion Booger, Giant Gonzalez, of course, he could be the newcomer of the year and... The biggest bust? Yeah, probably not. Now, some <laughs> yeah. of these guys, they didn't come in until late in the year, like Jeff Jarrett. Mr. Hughes didn't really stay around for all that long. Cup of coffee, uh-huh. uh But you have to almost immediately whittle it down to Lex Luger, the Steiner's newcomer of the year. Now, you just talked about Luger possibly being biggest bust, so maybe you want to side with the Steiner's here. I don't really have a winner picked out for this one, Steve, so I'll let you pick one out. I, I he's only there nine months, but man, that doink gimmick <laughs> in the matches and just how well he portrayed the character was awesome. I can't say he's, I think he's the most memorable newcomer in 93 as far as wrestling goes. I mean, in 93, you kind of know what the Steiners are, you know what they're going to bring to the table. So I think by default, they're, they're the best workers that they brought in. And so by default, they would be the newcomer of the year because you, you know what you're going to get. But to me, like the most memorable, like people still talk about the Matt Bourne doing 30 years later, how memorable it was and people enjoy it. People look back on it fondly. Like if they did a clown gimmick any other time or any other place, it'd be forgotten. Probably would be nowhere near as good. But doing with Matt Bourne is still memorable, still talked about, still enjoyed. I remember how like you just kept on talking, like how how good it was just his facials and his selling and going in and out of his different personalities and the things like that with ease and making you believe I did. he was just on another level with that character. He totally bought in and made it what it was. So if I had to pick somebody, you know, just history and just looking back on it, I would probably go doink because I knew what I was going to get out of the Steiners. Yeah, I like the argument there. Uh, a dark horse certainly doink the clown getting the, the nod here as newcomer of the year, but I get what you're saying because with Luger, the first six months were a bust and the final four months six were a bust. Months. So there was like 
two months there where Lex Luger was getting pretty over, but it's probably because he never had to wrestle for those two months as well. But uh, at the same time, the Steiner brothers didn't really do anything for the final third of the year. But with Doink the Clown, Matt Bourne, he was doing something from the beginning of the year all the way really until Survivor Series because the actual, Matt Bourne wrestled the TV tapings at the end of September. So we still continued to watch him wrestle on WWF TV throughout October. And then all of the promos he was cutting on the video wall in November were also Matt Bourne because he had taped them back in September as well. So we really got to see Matt Bourne on TV all the way until the Survivor Series pay-per-view. So he was there for essentially 11 months if you're just counting TV time. And yeah, I just thought a phenomenal job. I, I, I got bummed out when he was turning babyface. I was uh, against it. And as I started watching some of his work as a babyface, though, when I was going back and doing September and October, I was like, you know what? Now, this isn't heel doink. It's not that good. But it's not really that bad. He's making, It was almost like a, a Jake the Snake babyface where, yeah, he's the good guy now, but is he really a good guy? And that, I really love that before Ray Apollo takes over and it becomes a fucking literal, no pun intended, but a clown show. Yeah, Ray Apollo, like, that's another indication on how good Bourne was. He turned face and you still weren't sure if he was a good guy. Like, you was, you was wondering, like, is, when's he going to snap back into being a bad guy again or doing something you ain't going to like him to do? And then all of a sudden Ray Apollo comes in and he's the complete shit. And it's like, wow, you had it good with Bourne. <laughs> like, how that's how good Doink was. Yeah, I mean, the character completely just completely changed. Uh, the minute that the, uh, the play, person portraying the character changed, that was just it. Yeah. So I would I would give the nod to Doink. All right. Well, I'm not going to argue that. I, I did enjoy him. Out of anybody in the entire roster, I think, other than Bret Hart's wrestling matches, Doink was certainly the uh, most enjoyable for the year for me. So uh, I'll, I'll go along with that. Very interesting. Doink the Clown, newcomer of the year here in 1993. Uh, we're going to close out this segment of uh, the Wrestling Memory Grenade guys by looking at some of the matches and talking about the match of the year here. For 1993, first, we're going to look at the pay-per-view matches and some of the good matches throughout the course of the now five pay-per-views going on here in 1993. Of course, King of the Ring added as part of the year of 93. We go back to the Royal Rumble. You can always argue the Royal Rumble match itself is good for what it is. It is it is the Royal Rumble, after all. Uh, Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels, again, not the match we were wanting it to be, but it was passable and okay. It wasn't necessarily a bad match. Steiner Brothers and Beverly Brothers. I think it was more about the Steiners throwing them around than it was a really good match. But, hey, the Steiners arrived, and hell, man, like you said, that Frankensteiner. Memorable. Memorable indeed. And then, of course, Bret Hart and Razor Ramon. And what was remarkable about that match was I didn't really notice this until we went back and reviewed this. Razor Ramon was working on a bum knee for, like, the first four or five months of 1993, and it started before the Royal Rumble. And he goes out here, and he's, he's a hell of a trooper. It puts on a pretty solid match with Bret Hart. So certainly kudos to Razor Ramon going out there and having this kind of a match, even if Bret didn't give him a lot of offense. Yeah, especially you don't have Bam Bam and Bossman on your list. No, that's, that, that's never going to make. <laughs> uh, that's the worst match of the year yeah, that could, uh, by that far. Yeah, well, Giant Gonzalez and Undertaker, I don't know. It's, it's a toss-up. Uh, you, know, you know what? Taker and uh, Giant Gonzalez, I, I expect. Nothing more than what I got. Giant Gonzalez <laughs> well, is terrible. Enough. Fair enough. Bossman and Bam Bam could have a good match if they wanted to, and oh, they yeah. didn't. Right. It Not... was the complete shit. <laughs> yeah, so that's the difference. <laughs> one of the uh, certainly one of the worst matches of the year, no doubt about that. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, we move on to WrestleMania 9. Tatanka and Shawn Michaels, they had something going there. It was probably one of the better Tatanka matches I've ever seen. Unfortunately, I, I kind of throw it out as the match of the year simply because there's a countout involved, and really, I guess it wasn't match of the year anyway. But it was it was pretty solid for what it was. And having Tatanka involved in it and being that good, I was, I was pretty impressed there. Uh, Steiner Brothers and Head Shrinkers, a lot of people put this over as a lot better than I think that it is. I think it was a perfectly solid match. But I also think it went on maybe a little too long. Uh, but certainly still up there as a solid match as part of WrestleMania. And then something I had actually, I was pleasantly surprised when we went back and watched Yokozuna versus Bret Hart in the main event because that was a lot better than I remember. But probably because I don't watch it all that often. And I've seen a lot of Yokozuna where it wasn't so pretty. And uh, so going back and watching the mobile version of Yoko here against the Hitman, that was a pretty solid match as well. Yeah, I like that match. I think the the reason that the Steiners and Head Shrinkers sticks out to me is Scott taking that dive over the top oh, rope yeah. when when in, in pulled the rope dive, down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like Jesus, they killed each other. And me and you, after watching the grenade on in '89 NWA, I was excited for this just because trying to hope for those flashbacks from those brawls that they had in '89. But um, it didn't really meet those expectations, but it was good. And again, the kendo stick shot that you hear but don't see. And then for whatever reason, Scott taking that dive, I don't think he wanted to, but he had to, and he ate it good. But um, Yeah, that was, was a very dangerous bump there. Uh, Scotty falls. Uh, I don't know what he was doing pulling the rope down. but it's, I don't know either. Uh, what the hell was going on there? But Very, very weird indeed. We move on to King of the Ring, and you have a trifecta right there. Immediately you have to go to Bret Hart. It was Bret Hart's night, Steve, no doubt about it. It was. Uh, I mean, uh, not only this, the angle at the end, which just destroys everything else for the re- remainder of the year up until Lawler gets suspended, the Jerry Lawler-Bret Hart angle at the end of the pay-per-view, but the three matches uh, throughout the course of the show, of course, the opening round against Razor Ramon, Mr. Perfect, we'll talk a little more about that in a minute, and then the finals with Bam Bam Bigelow, which is uh, another solid match. Bret Hart had a hell of a night. It was really good stuff at King of the Ring. If you If you ordered a pay-per-view... For good wrestling in the WWF, chances are you probably weren't going to get everything you were anticipating. But uh, at least with King of the Ring, man, you really got a solid night of wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't really have to say much about that show because Brett has said it all about that show over and over. How great he was that night. He'll let you know. (laughs) So, uh, no, it was a good night for him. Uh, moving right along, SummerSlam 93, lots of solid three-star-ish matches. Nothing really over-the-top awesome, but the six-man tag team match with uh, the Head Shrinkers and Bam Bam Bigelow against the Guns and Tatanka, I had the privilege of watching a match prior to the pay-per-view where these two teams wrestled on All-American. Or maybe it was Wrestling Challenge now that I think about it. But I felt that the Wrestling Challenge match was a lot better than the SummerSlam match. And I'm not saying the SummerSlam match wasn't passable as a pretty solid match, but I thought the TV match that they had was actually better than the pay-per-view match. But I still, I, I left it here on the list because yeah, it was mentionable. It was pretty solid there from the two teams involved. Also on the show, Bret Hart and Doink the Clown. Unexpected surprise. Mad Bourne gets to work the pay-per-view. It was scheduled to be Lawler and Bret. But before we get to that match, we get Doink and Bret. Of course, that ends in a DQ, so we don't really go very far with this. But I would have loved... Loved to have seen uh, even a mini feud between Doink the Clown and Bret Hart as long as the blow-off was a 15-20 minute match between the two because, wow. Yeah, I agree. I didn't like all the shenanigans with Lawler, but when Doink and Bret got in the ring, it was a pretty good fun match. The six-man, I really liked the spot where they all three come off the top rope. 
at the same time with Ed Butt. That was that was cool. And I also see you got the Steiners and Heavenly Bodies on here. That's a good match too. Uh, I even like Razor and um, uh, DiBiase. I know DiBiase was working with a bad back, but that was still a passable match. And Razor had his wheels back under him. Looked pretty good too. Uh, the one thing about this show, I know we, I, I wasn't on the watch alone, but I still don't know why our IRS beat the kid. Somebody explain that to me. I, you know, I think I mentioned during the watch along that uh, my theory was it was just Vince McMahon putting the kid in his place. Well, at the end of the day, you're only 120 pounds, kid. I felt like it was oh. Vince being Vince because, you know, uh, we dissected the house shows uh, following SummerSlam, and the kid was doing jobs to anyone and everyone for basically the rest of the year. So Vince McMahon had it out for the kid after SummerSlam, or apparently at SummerSlam as well. It was like, okay, I got you over, but now I got to put you in your place. I don't want your head getting too big uh, now that you're over. Uh, I don't think it did the kid any favors, but it is what it is. It's Vince McMahon. I'm not even going to try to figure it out here. Did he? Did he have an ego? Did he have any like backstage so. issues? I, I was he hanging out with Sean at I this think, point? I think he was already hanging out with them, but I don't think that it was uh, there was any ego involved here by this point. Thank God, and certainly not by SummerSlam. I mean, the kid comes in in May, and uh, yeah, I just I don't see that. Oh, I'm just curious. You know, uh, and you could argue that maybe another idea, another thought with that is, is they knew coming out of SummerSlam, their next program for Razor was IRS. And they needed IRS to look good going into a feud yeah. with Razor Ramon. That could have been it as well. Yeah, I got, that does make sense because IRS coming out of that match looked really strong the rest of the year until the Rumble. So that that does make sense. You said it already. I think my favorite match of SummerSlam was the Steiners and the Heavenly Bodies. Again, nothing more than your typical solid Steiner Brothers match. Uh, but it was just cool. Heavenly Bodies had just come into the territory, the promotion, I should say. Uh, I think it would have been better if Stan Lane had been out there. Uh, maybe not wrestling-wise. Jimmy Del Rey really lit it up as part of SummerSlam, but I was just a bigger Bodies fan when Stan Lane was in that uh, team. Yeah. just goes to show that Steiners can work absolutely anyone. It doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. Every style, no doubt. And uh, they've proven time and time again, if uh, they want to get you up, you're, you're going to go up. Yeah. It doesn't matter who you are. You're going to eat it if we want you to. Just go ask that big fluffy guy that ate the German. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Can't even remember his name, but he, hopefully he's he's okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, I would yeah, love back, to know back, what happened to him. Back in 89, oh yeah. I would oh, love yeah. to know what happened to that guy. The video's still out there somewhere. Uh, we close out 93 <sighs> pay-per-views with Survivor Series. Uh, it's a Survivor Series, so you're going to get what you're going to get wrestling-wise. I thought the Team Razor versus Team IRS match was pretty solid. Uh, nothing really awesome going on out there, but uh, it was it was pretty solid for a survivor match, elimination match. And then the bodies of the Rock and Roll Express, uh, for the first time in ever, I, I went back and I, and I was really happy that I got to do it as part of the watch along. I was excited going in because it was on mute. And uh, if, if anything I remember about that match is that the crowd really takes away, kills the match because the crowd is so dead there in Boston for the Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team title match that it just kills the match. You can't really get into it. So with the show on mute, you're watching the match for what it is. And I really enjoyed it. And again, eh, for as far as bodies and rock and roll matches go, is it their best? No, not at all. But it was certainly more than three stars. It was a solid match. I think I think I rated it in my head maybe something like three and a half stars, somewhere along those lines. So solid match. So I, I got to add that to the list here of matches pay-per-view matches of the year, but I think you have to go back to King of the Ring. There's only one real top match, at least for me, 
the greatest match on pay-per-view has to go back to the semifinals of the King of the Ring tournament, and that's Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect. Yeah, hard to argue with that one. Since we're talking about it, which one do you like better, that one or SummerSlam? You know, I was going to say, I've seen these two compared so many times online, and almost everyone gives the nod to the match with the King of the Ring. Well, I have always given the nod to the match at SummerSlam 91. I just thought it was, at the time, probably the greatest match I'd ever seen. I'll just, I'll just say it. it was better than Savage and Steamboat to me at the time in 1991. I don't know that I, that I changed that vote. I think I still stick with SummerSlam 91. I don't know if it's just the kid in me that just won't allow me to, to <laughs> change my opinion. I remember the Brett and Hennig match at uh, King of the Ring being tremendous. Obviously, I have it ranked as the match of the year here in 1993. Uh, but at the same time, I'd have to go back and watch them side by side again before I could really make that decision. But for right now, I I guess I'd stick with SummerSlam. I'm going SummerSlam too, and I, I don't know if it's because it's the better match. I'd have to, like I'm with you. I'd have to watch them side by side and compare. But just the fact that Kurt Anning had no back, could barely bend over, and he put on the match that he did. And I think too the there's a little difference between the Nutter Center. It's just a nutter building compared to MSG. Nutter building. And, uh, yeah, the crowd reaction, they were into the match. Gorilla and Bobby and even Piper were so amped up and told the story tremendously. It was Brett's coming out party for the most part, that match. Uh, like He established himself on that night, I think, in, 90, in 91 to be a guy that you could bank on having a good match and people are going to remember. Whereas 93, it was just another match to get to where Brett was going to get that night. And both guys no, not, were, no were baby faces as well. Yeah. No knock on it for that. It's no, just, right. I think the 91 match had way more importance. I just, for just the reaction and the building and the whole story of the match with Brett working the back, and it was just awesome. And Mr. Perfect doing everything he was doing, probably pilled up and taking probably wasn't feeling much of anything going into that match but i'm with you i'm gonna go with SummerSlam. uh honorable mention too here steve and i don't know if this is considered a pay-per-view or not because it aired overseas in in barcelona spain but there was a match that we did back on our european rampage show watch along uh from spain uh the main event bret hart versus bam bam bigelow now we did two different shows from the uk rampage or the uh, european rampage show we did two different events, and the first night was eh, and the second night was eh, but then we got this match to close everything, and I was so, I just felt so happy by the time we got done. It was all worth it, watching all, say, 14, 16 matches, whatever it was, it was all worth it at the end of the night because I got to see this match, and honestly, if you consider this a pay-per-view, and I'm just throwing it in here as one, I'd say that maybe for me, this Bret Hart Bam Bam Bigelow match was probably the second best match of the year. Yeah, it was definitely better than their King of the Ring match. They had more time. They knocked it out of the park. There's really no move was out of place. Everything was it was pretty flawless. I'm not gonna say it was a five star match. It's gonna blow your socks off, but it's right up there with Mister Perfect and Bret Hart for sure. I agree with you there. Yeah, they came to work, and that, that goes right back to why Bret Hart's wrestler of the year. Just so many good matches throughout the year. It's like Ric Flair in 1989, all those funk matches, uh, the matches with Muda, the matches with Ricky Steamboat. Flair had a lot of good talent to work with. Bret Hart had so much talent here to work with as well, and, man, he, he uh, knocked it out of the park, like you said, every time he was given the opportunity. 
And uh, so pay-per-view, or excuse me, match of the year overall, not just pay-per-view, but overall for me has to go, though, to Mr. Perfect and Bret Hart from King of the Ring. And then I just wanted to look at some of the TV matches. No real match of the year here, but just some honorable mentions of some solid stuff we got to see throughout the course of the year. And uh, that has to start with, like, the Steiner Brothers and Money Incorporated at the uh, SummerSlam Spectacular inside the steel cage. It was finally the final chapter in the book. The Steiners solidified themselves as champions, beating the former champions once and for all. It's also the last night we got to see Money Incorporated as a tag team. Scott Steiner and Ludwig Borga, if you ever want to see, you know, we on Monday Warfare, we did uh, Fire and Ice versus the Steiner brothers, and that was a slobber knocker, guys. They beat the shit out of each other, and that's kind of what you got here with Scott Steiner and Ludwig Borga just taking turns, beating the shit out of each other. Really fun stuff. I go back and I think about Mr. Perfect and Doink and that trifecta as both guys tried to advance into the King of the Ring and those qualifying matches. Uh, even the Steiner Brothers and Quebecers match wasn't too bad. Now, uh, obviously, it ends in a disqualification, a little bit hokey there, but not too bad for, for what it was. Uh, the kid over Razor Ramon, and, and not for match, not for a wrestling match, but for what happened, what came out of that and, and everything. You know, it made the kid, but man, it ex- to the crowd just erupts. And I guess that's mm-hmm. what makes a good match, I suppose. Uh, I don't know that it's the best wrestling match by any means, but certainly, no. uh, you know, for uh, some of the reasons I just mentioned, I have to throw that in there. And, I, and that also, for the same reason, I have to throw Shawn Michaels and the kid from, uh, what was it, November, December of 1993 in there as well, because the match was, eh, uh, kid wasn't necessarily there for every bump that he needed to be. But again, it leads to the big story with Razor coming out and the, and the Razor's edges on the concrete and all the big stuff there. So uh, really cool stuff there as well. And hey, a dark horse, guys. Listen to this. See if you guys remember this one. The one, cool. two, three kid versus, and uh, I wrote here, I, it was a typo. I wrote Black Beverly. That's supposed to be Blake, <laughs> Blake Beverly. But then I left the typo, Steve, because it started getting my mind wandering. And I'm like, Black Beverly, what could we have done with that? Bo Beverly leaves the company. Why not get Virgil in there in a wig and call him Blake and Black Beverly? That would have been oh, something. Oh, that would have been phenomenal, wouldn't it? But, Imagine uh, those promos. <laughs> amazing. But speaking, the genius. but speaking of Blake, though, if you can go back to this match, I don't know if you remember this one well or not, but Blake was going all out here. We, we saw him. Oh, he was yeah. a different wrestler in this. But throwing the kid around, I don't know if he was just doing it because he could, because he was trying to keep his job, whatever the story was here. Blake Beverly was eating everything the kid was feeding to him and then beating the shit out of the kid. Even doing the warrior press, tossing him to the floor. At one point, just really good stuff there. And it's, it's a dark horse. Wasn't match of the year, no. But, man, I, I really enjoyed it. It was like a, I thought we were going in to watch a squash match. And by the time it was done, I was like, that was awesome. Yeah, I had the same reaction. It's almost like, where's the Conor McGregor gift? Like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> who the fuck is that guy? Like, who the hell is this in the ring with the kid? Like, my goodness. Uh, Mike Enos. Uh, Beat the shit out of the one, two, three kid, and he looked awesome doing it. And it's like, had so, you been doing this for the past two years, maybe you would have kept a job. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but no, that was a fun match. Definitely very, very entertaining from both guys. Kid ate it, he gave it. Blake ate it and gave it, and that's all you can ask for. Both guys are having a good one down that night. Uh, then, of course, uh, we had a couple over the summer uh, matches between Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty on Raw. Of course, Jannetty makes his return after the Royal Rumble match. He got fired the ni- next day. He returns 
and beat Shawn Michaels for the belt. So it's certainly the more memorable of the two matches. But then just a month or two later, they have a rematch on Raw. And I'd argue that that was better wrestling-wise. But everybody remembers the first one very fondly, as do I. In fact, I really didn't even remember the rematch until I was watching it. Uh, but uh, it, was, it was probably the better wrestling match, I think, at the end of the day. But that first one, the hell of a story, and Marty Jannetty goes over as the new Intercontinental Champion. All was right in the world, even if it was for only a couple of weeks. And I remember exploding, erupting when he took that hoodie off, uh, watching that live when it first happened, and, and then winning the title on the same show. So, and that was the same show the kid beat Razor as well. So they really got their money's worth, did the, uh, the Manhattan Center fans that night. Yeah, I, I remember him taking the hoodie off and winning the belt. I still remember that as a kid. I was like, holy crap. Like, a title change back then was exciting. Now it doesn't have the same appeal. Uh, it's just another thing to try to pop a rating or do something. But, you know, back then, Marty beating Sean for the IC title, those are things Lex Luger beating Hogan on Nitro in 97. Those things stick out because they hardly ever happened up until that point. They hardly ever happened on TV. Uh, it was either a pay-per-view and hell in 93 it was a house show. 92 it was a house show. So you, it was things you didn't really see very often. And to see it, live completely unexpected like that it was like holy shit that's cool it's remember it's memorable if you watch raw and you're barely paying attention to like 93 raw you can turn the thing on and when it gets to this show you're like oh this the show Genetti comes back and it brings back memories like you can still feel it that's what it's all about so yeah absolutely great shit yeah, and I grew up watching the Rockers. I was sitting there with my cousin in the living room the day Shawn Michaels took Janetti and threw him through that barber shop window. I followed this entire story from, you know, my childhood. So watching Janetti win the belt was like a, a huge culmination for me inside. Like I was Marty Janetti right then and there for that one moment. I, I <laughs> you know, I like I really ate up that storyline. And uh so I think that's why I probably remember that match more finally than any other T V match in all of 1993, including this next match, which is probably the better wrestling match. But for me, the Janetti and Sean, the title change, probably the biggest TV match for me in 1993, where probably also similar to why this might be the biggest match for you on TV in 1993. Yes. And that's uh, going all the way back to January and the second or third episode of Monday Night Raw. Third. Third, yes. Uh, right after Royal Rumble, taped before the Royal Rumble, it was Mr. Perfect defeating Ric Flair in a loser leaves the WWF match, Steve. Yeah, um, I think the reason why this one is stuck with me is because I had it recorded after the World Rumble, like I recorded the World Rumble on pay-per-view, and then I had I recorded Raw the next night, so I had the follow-up, so I got the Savage and Repo Man match, and, and this one, so I didn't record any other Raws, so like when I had, that's the only one I had, I would re-watch it as a kid and watch it over and over, and I love it. It's not the greatest match in the world. It's probably not even the best Ric Flair, Mr. Perfect match, but the blood Flair drawing blood and Heenan dropping curse words at the end of the match and just going nuts. And Mr. Perfect, the reaction he gets for sending Ric Flair packing. I don't know, man. It's just I hate to use the pun, but it's perfect. It's not the greatest wrestling match of all time, but the story Perfect getting his comeuppance on Ric Flair, who kind of held him back all of 92. And that story, Heenan did an excellent job. Blood, which you never saw on TV. Right. And it's just so many things that would was in its favor. And when you can watch it, 
as many times as you want because you actually recorded it. I'm sure you recorded way more than I did. I know you did. Um, so <laughs> I had slim pickings. Like I had that, and then I think after that Raw, there's like a random superstars where Doink blinds the big boss man. Like I had that one on tape, and after that happened, like it cuts off. So I had some weird shit recorded, but uh, no, that's that's why it's so it's such a fond memory. And I'm sure if I had marty and sean on record like on tape and i could watch it whenever i wanted I'd, I'd i'd have that same sort of feeling there too it's just nostalgia more than anything yeah it was a really weird dynamic with me and, and the the rockers i was never they were never my favorite tag team i love the heart foundation i love demolition i i was fine with the rockers but they were never my favorite team and then they split up and all of a sudden i love both guys and and eventually yeah. Shawn michaels became my favorite wrestler in the entire company but for some reason, I was okay if Marty Jannetty beat him. He, he deserved that win. And I think that's what made it a really weird dynamic for me because I didn't want anybody to beat Shawn Michaels except for maybe Mr. Perfect, who was already my favorite, or Marty Jannetty. He was allowed to. It was okay based on, based on their history. So yeah, that's it, awesome. it, was, it was just really cool, the vindication. Finally, Jannetty got the win and got the title belt. But yeah, I could see the argument, too, with Flair and... Uh, Perfect, and it's been a long time since I watched the match when we started this uh, 93 project, so it's hard for me to really say the which one was better wrestling-wise, but uh, I could certainly believe if somebody told me Hennig and Flair was the better wrestling match, I could see that. Uh, and certainly the story there with Perfect, like you said, uh, beating Flair, Flair leaving town, there was blood in the match. We weren't even allowed blood in WWF. When we got it, it was by accident or because somebody was breaking the rules and getting fined. So, I, I mean, Flyer was out the door. He didn't give, he a, give a shit. shit. I'm bleeding right. for you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And I think, too, like, loser leaves town. I don't recall. The, I know they had the retirement match with Warrior and Savage, but I don't ever remember, like, somebody getting forced out of town in the WWF. No, that's a then. that's a that's a Memphis gimmick, which is, uh, you know, again, funny because no look, look, who, look, who, look who came into town shortly yeah. before this. Jerry Jarrett on the booking committee there. So. And, you know, it, it actually, he left town because he was in WCW by the end of the year. So it, um, by slamboree. Yeah. It didn't feel like it was just another gimmick to get him to go away for a while and come back. No, it, it felt like he was, leaving. it felt yeah. like he was done. Yeah. That, even as a kid, I recognized like, yeah, he's done. Yeah. Cause you know, at 92 rumble, he does the whole thing. Then in 93, he's almost eliminated first quarter of the match and it's like what the heck rick flair yeah on that quick and then confuse the, the shit next out of night, him. yeah the next night he has to go and the loser leaves town so it just felt like the writing was on the wall and it felt like he's never gonna see rick flair in wwf again and we don't for a long time right certainly not this version of the wwf anyway post wcw wwf yes but no yeah uh, but that does it, Steve. We gave away all the awards. We talked about what everybody was doing uh, heading into 1994 and even beyond a little bit. And we talked, we kind of recapped a lot of 1993 as well. We looked at who was still there from the beginning of the year. Not very many guys. And uh, we even looked at who was still there from two years prior. Well, like five guys. Jeez, not 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 pretty. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on in 93, 94. And by the time Vince fully gets his hands back on it, there's not a lot of talent left. Like the territories are done. There's no small independence that they can pull from. It takes a while to get out of the uh, the slump that they're in. So this was the start of it. I mean, I guess 92, you say, was the start of it. Yeah, but I, I think you're doing okay. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, and I don't know if you can say this in 95, 
uh, spe- specifically, but I think you're doing okay at the end of the day when your wrestler of the year is Brett, your tag team of the year, the Steiners, your newcomer of the year is Matt Bourne is Doink, uh, your match of the year is Kurt Hennig and Bret Hart. I think you're doing okay to some degree. I don't know if you can do, do all that in 1995. So uh, 93 no. is certainly not the worst year in company history. No, definitely not. Definitely a huge transition year. To say even, the least. Even compared to 92, it was pretty big. So, uh, yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's just a very interesting year. And without understanding like everything that's going on behind the scenes, if you're just a, a newbie in the wrestling, you're watching that, you want to watch 93 for whatever reason, you're probably thinking, what the hell's going on? This isn't what I thought it would be. Not all bad, not all good. It's just kind of there, but it's, it's, it's fun to go back and watch sometimes. Yeah, it was fun to relive some things. I, I really got excited for some things. I didn't think I would because I already knew they were going to happen, but watching them play out as I watched all the stories leading in, emotionally, I was actually invested, and it was really exciting. What, to relive uh, some of the things that happened. And it was interesting to watch a few things that I said, oh my God, I remember that, but I haven't seen that in 30 years. Lots of cool little exclusives and stuff in between as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Steve, I appreciate you stopping by for a couple hours once again, uh, coming back to the grenade and talking a little 1993 in the WWF, putting a nice little bow on it here before we move on to the next portion of the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd be happy to come back anytime you have me. All right, well, I'm, I'll hold you to that. Hopefully, we'll uh, have you back here uh, somewhere down the line here in 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. But up next here, it's Ask Us Anything after this. On behalf of the Wrestling Memory Grenade and the WrestleCopia brand, we are proud to announce our very own Patreon account. We encourage everyone to stop on over to patreon.com slash WrestleCopia and check out an amazing 14 tiers. And depending on your budget, we have everything from as little as a $1 tier to as much as a $100 tier. Get you all sorts of exciting offers. It really all depends on what offer you value the most. You can do anything from join Steve and I right here as co-hosts for an episode of The Grenade, all the way down to unedited versions of the show, early access to upcoming episodes, beat everyone else to the punch, see what we're saying before everyone else gets to hear it, Plus, my insanely detailed show notes, which I value ever so dearly. You can even pick the flick. And what that means is, if you subscribe to one of our You Pick the Flick tiers, you'll tell us, me and Steve, what show it is you want us to review. It can be a watch-along on the WWE Network, YouTube, Daily Motion. It can even be a live review of a rare show from my personal archive vault of videos at home. No promotion, no territory, no era is off-limits. You can request anything from your favorite WrestleMania to an episode of 1982 World Class to the 60-minute classic between Jack Briscoe and Dory Funk Jr. from 1970s All Japan. Hell, if you want to put us through the misery, we'll even pull a mystery science theater over here and watch Hell Comes to Frogtown starring Roddy Piper. You tell us what you want us to review, and we'll do our own little watch-along and do our best to entertain you guys and give you guys insight in the process. And it doesn't end there. There's a $5 tier, the all-access tier, Not only do you gain access to everything on every lower tier, but you'll also have complete access to our entire full library of random show reviews and watch-alongs we've done and continue to do as a side project. We review everything from the Flair Steamboat 2 out of 3 fall match from Class 6, all the way down to the Halloween 1985 edition of Saturday Night's Main Event. It's a proverbial hodgepodge of randomness, as you never know what we'll review next. And it's exclusive to the all-access tier or any of the higher tiers over at patreon.com slash russellcopia. Check it out now. That address again is patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's Wrestle C-O-P-I-A. Hey, 
All right, guys, and welcome back to episode 57 of The Grenade, and it is now time for Ask Me Anything! <sighs> Sorry, when I thought about that in advance, I was thinking like more of a game show, Wheel of Fortune type chant, but uh, that's not really in the budget here on the show, so that's what you get instead. And oh my gosh, guys, I asked you maybe three or four weeks ago to send in your questions. Ask me anything, wrestling-related, show-related, nothing at all to do with wrestling. Ask me anything here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade, episode number 57. And that you did. You guys listened. You sent in the emails. You sent in the DMs on Twitter, messages on Facebook, a ton more than I expected. So I want to thank you guys very much for that. Probably got around 50 messages in all. Uh, Some of them repeat questions. So there's probably more around something like 40 questions. So we're going to try to get to all of them as fast as we can. So just bear with me as I've I've broken this down into three categories to keep things organized. Uh, Category number one, first I'll be answering the random non-wrestling related topics. Category number two, I'll be answering questions related to the WrestleCopia podcast network shows and other related topics, whether it's a wrestling memory grenade, Monday Warfare, TR Shocks of the World, the projects we've done here on The Grenade, all of that will be in category number two. And then lastly, random wrestling questions. Questions that don't necessarily pertain to the WrestleCopia podcast network, but they are wrestling related. So we're going to kick things off with category number one, non-wrestling related questions. And who better to start with? Who better than the Eye of Gibson? That's at the Eye of Gibson of Twitter fame. Mr. Canada himself, Bob Gibson, wasted no time in sending in a question as soon as he saw the post on Twitter. And immediately, to give you guys an idea of where this show can go, here's the question Bob Gibson sent in. He asked, Ray, who were your favorite Duke boys, Bo and Luke or Coy and Vance? Now, for those who don't know, this is in reference, and great taste, by the way, great question, Bob Gibson. I love your Matlock posts and Columbo and Dukes of Hazard, Fall Guy recently. These shows definitely up my alley growing up. I watched a lot of these shows. But I was a huge Duke Boys fan, huge Dukes of Hazard fan growing up. And what Bob is referencing here is you guys might know of the show, The Dukes of Hazard. You know, with the orange car with the Confederate flag on top, the car horn played the tune of Dixie. Well, the main two characters were the Duke Boys, the blonde headed Bo Duke and the brunette Luke. And I'd like to throw Daisy in there for honorable mention, too, because mm, Catherine Bach, those legs, yikes. Anywho, getting back to the question, who are your favorite Duke boys, Bo and Luke or Coy and Vance? And the question pertains to the fact that the, the guys who played the characters Bo and Luke, Tom Wopat and John Schneider, eventually wanted to renegotiate their contracts. They weren't getting any money on a lot of the merchandise they were selling, and they, they were technically really felt like they were owed a lot more than they were getting paid, and, and probably so. So they went to those in charge and they said, hey, we want all of this. And if you don't give us all this, we're walking and we're the show. Well, those good old boys were told to get to walking, much to their surprise. And they were replaced by two new Duke boys, Coy and Vance, for most of one season. Coy and Vance, more estranged Duke boys living at the Duke farm. Lots of cousins there in Hazard County. Anywho, Coy and Vance were basically made to look exactly like Bo and Luke. One had blonde hair, one had dark hair. They were essentially replacements for the Duke boys, Bo and Luke. By the end of the season, 
Everything was renegotiated. Bo and Luke came back. There was an episode of Crossover with all four Duke boys in it. And by the end of the episode, magically, Coy and Vance had to, had to leave the farm. They had to go take care of business somewhere else, never to be seen or referenced again. And Bo and Luke were back. Who are my favorites? Come on, Bob. You know the answer to that. The originals are always the favorites. Bo and Luke was a giant fan. But honestly, my personal favorite character is Boss Hog and Roscoe B. Coltrane. Flash. Hot Pursuit. I love it. So shout out to the Dukes of Hazard. Though I don't know if the woke generation will appreciate that. But hey, I grew up on it. It was a great show. Good stuff. So I hope that answers your question, Mr. Gibson. And once again, you can follow Bob on Twitter at the Eye of Gibson. Fun account, if you guys haven't seen him before. And Bob's been here as part of the show. He's been here and done the Power Hour here on the WrestleCopia Podcast Network in the past. Fun times. And I hope to do it again very soon with him. And we move on with more non-wrestling-related questions. But they are, I got some sports-related questions here. And I lumped them all together because sometimes I need a little structure in my life. Les Simmons of Whitby, Ontario, another Canadian, asks, are you a sports fan beyond professional wrestling? Why, absolutely, yes, I am. And I know there's a lot of fans out there that are only glued to wrestling. They only have time for wrestling, and they really don't know anything about any other sport. And I got a a really fun story to tell in the future here about uh, uh, standing in line for a Raw and a uh, NBA basketball team in the finals, walking past us, and nobody in the crowd besides one other person knew who they were. In the middle of the NBA Finals, they have to be walking across the bridge, heading into the arena to practice in the basement area of the arena, and I was the only one who knew they were in the entire line on the bridge, except for one other fan who happened to, I heard them, I overheard them state, they must be basketball players because they're tall. Blew my mind. But I have noticed over the years, there's just a lot of wrestling fans who are just interested in wrestling. They only have time for wrestling, and that's okay. But me, no, I grew up a a giant sports fan. I loved watching basketball in the 80s and 90s specifically. Uh, Football, loved football growing up as well in the 80s and 90s. Still love football to today. Uh, Basketball, a little harder for me to get into. I'm I'm not really familiar with everybody. I used to be able to tell you every starting lineup on every single basketball team back in the 80s, the uh, early and mid-90s. Can't do that anymore. And yes, I love baseball too. I was a late bloomer in baseball. I kind of found it a little boring when I was five, six, seven years old, but I got into it by nine, 10, and, and so forth. And I've been following it ever since as well. Big time into college. Uh, my two teams I follow in football, Ohio State, and in basketball, thanks to my grandfather, I follow the Kentucky Wildcats, who didn't do too well this year. I've had a fallen out with boxing uh, probably for 20 years now. I, I grew up, I loved watching boxing. I just felt like there was more physicality back in the day. I really enjoyed guys like Sugar Ray Leonard, obviously Mike Tyson. I was a little too old for Muhammad Ali, but I enjoyed going back and watching his stuff. And I'm sure there's some boxing fans out there right now going, wait a minute, Ray, it's it's still really good. You just got to go back and you got to know who to watch. And I don't doubt that, but I simply, I just don't have the time to invest like I used to when I was younger into every single individual sport. So I have to pick and choose what I'm going to watch and what I'm going to do. I got to prioritize guys. And especially with this show now, It's even harder for me to make time uh, for things like uh, watching a boxing event. And ditto can be said for UFC. I'm kind of ass backwards, and I'm I'm happy to admit it. I'm I'm like ass backwards on UFC. Remember when it was kind of the inception of UFC? The first 10 UFCs were just kind of finding their way into the sport. The ultimate ultimate. Ken Shamrock, Dan Severn, Hoist Gracie, those guys. 
There were times my brother would come over for the weekend and we would run down to the video store and rent the first 8, 10, 12 UFCs and watch them just straight through all night. Maybe we'd skip a fight here or there, but in general, we would just sit there and watch it all and just marvel over the fact that this is real. You didn't get to see that a lot back in those days, inside a cage, no less. But it evolved into something phenomenal today. And, I'm, and I, I admit that. It's, it's a zillion times better today than it was in the uh, mid, late 90s, early 2000s. And I was still watching in the uh, early part of the Ultimate Fighter TV program. I think that was, what was that on? Spike, if I remember correctly? I remember watching the uh, first couple seasons of that. And, and really still, I was, I was still there when Brock Lesnar, I remember being at the bar watching it with my now wife. I'm not, I'd have to think back what year it was, if we were even married yet at that point. I guess we were. But I, I remember being in the bar, sitting there, having some wings, and watching Brock Lesnar win the heavyweight championship. So, yeah, I, I'm a fan of UFC, but I was a bigger fan during the old days, uh, the Randy Couture days, and, and prior to that. You might say it's evolved and gotten even better since then. And perhaps it has. I'm just, again, I have to prioritize, and I'm just not as deeply infatuated with the UFC, the MMA, now as I was then. Even though, admittedly, it's, it's probably a lot better. So hopefully that answers your question less. Yes, I am a sports fan. We continue on. George Madison of Tampa, or maybe that's Jorge Madison of Tampa. Not really sure there. He asks, are you a fantasy football fan? Well, again, yes, I am. However, the last couple of years I've slacked. Ever since the COVID protocol came into play, ever since everything happened in 2020, I've stayed away from fantasy football. I was doing it about maybe, say, 12 years straight prior to that, at least 12 years straight. Had a blast doing it, but COVID hit. We were just starting up this podcast, in fact, at the end of the summer of 2020, and I just really didn't have the time that I normally do to sit around and make the moves every week to get to those championships and maybe take home some money in the finals. And who knows, maybe even this year I'll return to the fantasy football scene, but in the meantime, I have no problem doing a few dailies here and there throughout the course of the season. But yeah, I have absolutely no problem with fantasy football. And we'll stay on the topic of football just for a second as my son, Connor, from the living room, writes, Dad, why do you hate Baker Mayfield? Well, first of all, Connor, you have to know by now that I I think hate is a very strong word, so I like to say dislike, not a fan of. And in this instance, I can say, let me count the ways. I appreciate what he's done for the Cleveland Browns. He's done things that nobody's been able to do since, since Bernie Kosar back in the late 80s, 1990. But there are just some guys, I'm not a fan of their personality. I wasn't a fan of how he played this year. I wasn't a fan that his ego wouldn't allow him to get off the field and heal properly while the highest paid backup quarterback in the league, Case Keenum, who's been there before, could have been given the opportunity to do something a little more for the Browns. And now, once again, Mayfield with the boo-boo face in the offseason because the Browns tried to upgrade themselves. And all I can say to that is, that's business. That's, that's life. There's no time for hurt feelings. Get out there and prove yourself. Prove that you're the better man. That's all I got to say about that. So why do I hate Baker Mayfield, Connor? I don't hate Baker Mayfield. I don't even know him. But a fun question there from my son. We go on. Valentino Romo, if that is your real name, writes, your favorite video game, wrestling or non? Wow, my favorite video game. Well... I'm sure uh, my brother's chuckling somewhere because he knows I'm not big into video games. He's the opposite. He's way into video games, or at least he was. I know he's very busy at his job right now. It's probably keeping him away from the games. But uh, yeah, well, even growing up as kids, I mean, the Nintendo in the 80s, he was all, I mean, just lived, eat, breathed, and sleep, uh, slept wrestling, or excuse me, video games, I should say. 
I ate, breathed, and slept wrestling. But yeah, as an adult, like I played Nintendo growing up. I loved all kinds of games from Super Dodgeball to Wrestling Challenge. I know that one doesn't get a, it gets kind of a bad rap. I always loved doing that one. Uh, you could be yourself on there. We would pretend, you know, we would team up and be ourselves and, and wrestle some of the other guys. Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, Andre the Giant. I, I loved being Andre in that game. He was like almost unbeatable. Fast forward to Sega, Mortal Kombat, all that good stuff in the 90s. The Royal Rumble video game, the Raw video game. And then we get to Nintendo 64. And oh my God, Virtual Pro Wrestling 2 from Japan was the shit. I had gotten so far out of video games that I never even had a Super NES or a Sega. I would play that at my cousins or my brothers or they would come over and bring it and we would play it. I, I still just had a Nintendo sitting in my closet somewhere by the turn of the 90s into 2000. I, I didn't need anything else. My buddy had a PlayStation. He would bring it over. We would play PlayStation. I didn't need one. I, I was not that interested in video games. But for a brief instant, there was this small-time wrestling shop that opened up in a, in a plaza somewhere. And we go in there, and there's these two guys, the owner and his buddy, and they're playing this video game up on the big TV behind the counter. What the hell is that? Is that Jushin Liger? And Is that Hayabusa? These guys are doing dives out to the floor. There's a, a stage in which you enter on, like the old WCW pay-per-views for the Tokyo Dome. The creator character abilities, second to none, off the charts. There was even an MMA portion where you could ground and pound and choke guys out. At the end of the day, I think there was something like over 100 wrestlers on the game, including American legends that worked over in Japan. But the creative character section allowed you to build pretty much anyone, including any type of mask. So when I saw that right then and there in that store, I said, I would like to purchase a PlayStation 64, the adapter to the Japanese video game cartridge and that game right there. And uh, that's how I ended up with the Nintendo 64. And I played the shit out of the game. Imagine the No Mercy game on steroids. That was what the Japanese game was. We move ahead. Yes, I finally got a PlayStation 2. I had the Madden games. Typically, that's really all I remember playing on PlayStation 2. There were probably other games, but we're going back 20 years. Grand Theft Auto 3, that's for sure. We stayed up many, many nights to my cousin or my brother and I, playing some Grand Theft Auto 3 all around the clock when it first came out. And while I've tried to keep my kids technologically up to date, yes, they have PS4s, not PS5s, they have PS4. I myself, I, I finally purchased myself a PS4 just a few years ago. And I've played a little NBA here, a little Madden there, a little wrestling, WWE. But honestly, the big game I, I got hooked on there for quite a while, probably at least a year, the first year it was out, was the online version of Red Dead Redemption 2. And that's because my brother calls me up one day and he's like, hey, there's this new game. You got to try it out. Uh, it's open world. The fuck is open world? I don't know this shit. So I'm learning as I'm going. I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. But for the first year, it was still in like beta mode, basically, because they hadn't even added like 90% of what they had planned to, add, planned to add to the online world. So uh, we did it the hard way. I, I built up my levels the hard way, busting my ass for six hours in a day to rank up a few levels. Nowadays, these guys can do it in just one day's time. They can rank up 10, 20 levels if they want to based on some of the stuff that you can do on the game. And I think the last time I've even logged into that game was uh, September of 2021. And that was the last time I've been on the PlayStation 4. So am I a fan of video games? Yeah and no. I mean, yes, I don't mind playing them, but that's not my go-to, not my thing. But if any of you guys are out there on, on Red Dead Redemption 2, and I know it's kind of an old game now, but if you are, 
and, and you're looking for somebody to hang out with a posse, I'm pretty leveled up and uh, I'm ready to roll if you guys want to get on there and, and shit around. So contact me. Let me know, guys. Jim DeBuse, or DeBue, not sure how to pronounce that, I apologize, of Birkenhead, England, writes, I've heard you and Tom Robinson down a few cocktails during your shows. Oh boy, do we ever. Was wondering, what is your drink of choice? Oh, good question, Jim. Uh, For the Grenade Show, my drink of choice is coffee. Uh, Maybe a water. Certainly, I I stay off the cocktails when I'm doing the Grenade because I have to stay and follow the format. Uh, whereas it's a lot easier on Tom's show, the, the TR Shocks the World show, to just kind of go wherever we go with the flow. And it almost enhances the show when we're having, as you called it, a, a few cocktails throughout. Now, as for my, my beverage of choice, my alcoholic beverage of choice, various beers. Uh, there's lots of breweries around here, probably a good 30 or so within like driving distance, uh, which is just insane to think about. I didn't even know what a brewery was like 15 years ago. But now they're, they're just everywhere. They've popped up everywhere. Lots of great beer. And a lot of times I'll roll with the season in the fall. I'll do some pumpkin beers. In the summer, I'll do some citrus-type beers. Maybe a Hefeweizen. I like a good hazy IPA. Uh, if I'm feeling cheap and, or I'm just trying to, get, you know, trying to prolong the buzz, uh, drinking the lower-content alcohol beers, I'll just go grab a Coors Light or something like that at the corner. If I'm out with a wife and we're having a, a fancy night, if you will, I'll, I'll do a vodka martini. I'll do uh, a dirty, dirty martini or a royal apple martini. And most certainly, Jaeger bombs, guys. I don't care what you say. They're, a good alcoholic drink doesn't go out of style. And Jaeger bombs, oh, I used to live by those, and they're still phenomenal. I don't drink them nearly as often as I used to. But man, let me just say this. There's a bottle of Jaeger in my basement fridge and a full case of Red Bull. Just in case. Just in case. And we move on to our final non-wrestling question here in category number one. Vicki Larkin of Ashburn, Virginia writes, Recently recovered from a scare with COVID myself. I'm sorry to hear that, Vicky, but I'm happy to hear you recovered. I remember you posting a mini show about your experience having COVID. Can you take me through your time battling the virus and how it affected your work? Wow. Uh, talk about timely, Vicky. Uh, the day this show comes out is the exact day last year, one year from the day. Uh, it's a one-year anniversary, uh, the day of this show coming out, that I was admitted into the hospital with COVID pneumonia. Uh, it, was a, it was a very rough time, and the first three days in the hospital were touch and go. The doctor would not give me a, a thumbs up. He told me that he couldn't promise me that I would make it. But here I am, a year later, thankful. Maybe, uh, maybe not 100%, maybe not where I was before I had the COVID. Yeah, so I'll try to take you through this really quickly. In fact, this story begins with the eye of Gibson, who asked the question earlier. I was talking to him. We were getting ready to do a Monday Warfare show together, and I had sent the eye of Gibson copies of my personal copies of Raw and Nitro for him to watch, take some notes, and we were going to record that night. Uh, on a, it was a Monday night, in fact, to, to begin with, I remember, and... As the day progressed, I started feeling a little ill. And I don't know if everybody feels this, but I can kind of feel the flu coming on a few hours before it actually wipes me out. So I can kind of prep for it like, oh, shit, it's coming and I'm not going to be able to beat it. And I kind of felt that way in the late evening, right around the time my wife got home from work, right around six o'clock. And at some point I contacted the eye of Gibson. I told him, hey, man, I'm, I'm kind of feeling sick. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this tonight. And he was just very supportive. He's like, all right, man, just get better. No problem. We'll do it when you get better. And I said, thank you, brother. And um 
as the week went on, I just continued to feel sick. And there would be times where I thought I already beat it. I would, I would take some medication. The, the fever would drop. I'd feel great. I'd sit up. I'd feel like a new man. And uh, this went on for about four days, Monday through Thursday. And then all of a sudden on Friday, I developed a cough out of nowhere. And Friday and Saturday, the flu was awful. It was keeping me bedridden. I had this cough that just came out of nowhere. It just would not go away. It was constant. It was a very dry cough. And so I told my wife Saturday night, and I never, there's two things I never do. I never go to the doctor for pretty much anything unless I absolutely have to. And I don't take medication for, if I have a headache, my wife right away, take some Tylenol. No, I'm good. I just don't really do it unless I absolutely need to. And so Saturday night, I said to her, I said, you know, tomorrow morning, I I know I'm going to the ER. So I knew then Saturday night that I was pretty fucked up. Uh, Pardon my French. Uh, So you go from Monday to Saturday. So almost a week uh, into this thing. And it's just eating me alive. And I go into the hospital initially on a Sunday, Sunday morning. I woke up at seven in the morning and I felt so terrible. I told her "I I need to go right now. I was going to wait until later in the day, and I said, I need to go right now. And so I go, and they put me in a room, and they don't want me there. They run the test. They come back. They say, yeah, you have COVID. That's the only test they run. Uh, They stick me in in an ER room. They don't want anything to do with me. The nurse that I I had or or whatever they're called down there in the ER, I don't want to say she was rude, but I just felt like I wasn't worth her time. And so she finally comes in and gives me a little pulse monitor to put on my finger to take home and tells me, well, if it gets any worse, come back. Have a good day. And that was it. They sent me home. And I come home thinking, oh my God, I feel like death, ironically. And they're sending me home. And this wasn't because they were overcrowded. They had told me around Christmas time of 2020 that they had something like 109 cases of COVID in the hospital. But when I came in, there were only nine cases of COVID in the hospital. So they had plenty of room. They just didn't want to take me. So they sent me home and it progressively got so bad. By the following Wednesday, yes, at that point, I'd had it for like nine, 10 days. Uh, By that point, I was coughing so bad to, I think I was getting my breath every second. So my, that's how short my breaths were. And I was kind of trying to talk in between the breaths and everybody else was was telling me, get to the hospital. I, I knew I needed to. And there was finally a point that afternoon where I, I gave in. I said, yeah, I, I have to go. And that was, uh, I think it was around five o'clock Wednesday afternoon. My wife had taken one of my sons to therapy. And mind you, this cough had never went away. It was constant. It was hard to breathe in between, but it actually took my breath. And it took me a good, and and this sounds not, it doesn't sound like a very long period of time, but it took me a good 10 seconds to find my breath again. That's a scary amount of time. 10 seconds, you're not breathing and you're attempting to breathe for 10 seconds. Very long time, very scary. So I text my wife, hey, I'm letting you know, I just lost my breath. I got it back, I'm okay. But when you get home, immediately I'm going to the emergency room. She says, oh my God, okay, do you want me to come home right now? And I'm me being the guy that I am. I said, no, no, I I got it taken care of. I got my breath back. It's all good. Two minutes after that text, it happened again, a second time. I cough and I can't find my breath. It's not coming. So I text her back and I go, you know what? Yeah, you should probably come now. This just happened again. So she comes straight home. She drives me like a bat out of hell, drives me straight to the hospital. And it happens a third time in the car on the way to the hospital. Now, I'm not going to get into all of everything that went on in the hospital because there were great days with some of the hospital employees and there were some awful hospital employees. And it's really don't want to take you through that. Take me another half hour to tell that story. But uh, long story short, I got in there on Wednesday. I was not breathing well at all. 
Uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was in and out of it. Saturday morning, I think it was Saturday morning or, or late Friday night, my fever broke for the very first time uh, since I got the COVID. And that's where I finally turned a corner. And by the middle of the following week, they let me out. Now, I wasn't technically supposed to get out that early, but uh, I, was just, I just had enough with uh, some, some, not all, some of the nurses, specifically the one I had the day before I left. And she told me she was coming back the next day. And I wasn't going to, I felt like she was going to kill me. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. That's just how I felt mentally. Like this lady is horrible at her job and she's going to do something and I'm not going to get out of here. So for the first three days, it was touch and go. Not even the nurses wanted to give me a whole lot of hope. They were discouraging. They just didn't want to tell me, yeah, man, you're going to be great. Because uh, that was the thing. I didn't just have COVID. I had COVID pneumonia. And my doctor even said, they sent you home Sunday? Oh, he was pissed off. And the difference between pneumonia and COVID pneumonia is pneumonia starts in one spot and begins to grow. COVID pneumonia is in spots, multiple spots all over. And it's a lot harder to tackle on your lungs. So it's a very dangerous thing to have. And I was just very lucky that I survived. And I did everything I could physically that final day. I said to the nurse that morning, I said, what do I need to be able to do physically to get out of here today? And she gave me a list of things the doctor wanted me to be able to do. And whether I should have been doing those things or not, that's neither here nor there. I made sure I did those for the doctor that day so that I could get the hell out of Dodge. Because if it was up to my doctor, he, was, he had me pegged to be in there for at least another three to four days. So that's my story, about two and a half weeks of living hell. And then by that point, by the time I got home, my legs felt like cinder blocks. It took over a month to even get them to feel halfway right. It was a long process, the breathing, the little breathing treatment, all of the medications they sent me home with. It was a, it was a lot of tough stuff. So it's kind of funny. I hate to say, use the word funny when I'm talking about all this, but here it is a year later, and now I have contracted a cold. So I can only be thankful that it's just a cold. But what are the odds that exactly one year to the day, here I am sick again? Although I'm happy to say it's the first time I've had any symptoms of any type of cold or flu or anything since I had COVID. And Vicky, I thank you for showing your interest in uh, my well-being. And I certainly hope that you're doing okay after your bout with COVID as well. And all right, we'll move on to category number two, show-related questions, and quite a few here. And we move on to Michael Notebloom of Middlesbrough, Middlesbrough, England. Sorry, guys, I'm not proper. I have no idea. But Michael writes, I stumbled upon your network of podcasts this past autumn. I really enjoy your examination of the Monday Night Wars podcast, referring to Monday Warfare, the battles within. Michael goes on to say, it got me looking back to your old shows from your Wrestling Grenade podcast. Bravo on the NWA 1989 examination, by the way. How did your podcasting group come about? Uh, well, Michael, it was pretty simple, but a very long time coming. I can go back several years, maybe even eight years. I'm not really sure off the top of my head which year it was. I feel like it was WrestleMania 30 time. It may have been 31, 32, but I feel like it was WrestleMania 30, where uh, my former co-host, Stephen Eckstadt, actually, I've known him for a very long time. We had been in discussions to do a podcast going back that far. And so we did a couple of practice podcasts. We did one going into WrestleMania and then a post-WrestleMania podcast. So we practiced with a couple of podcasts way back then. And then I kind of put it on the back burner. I did some other things in life. He did some other things in life. And the idea just kind of laid dormant for, for a very long period of time. And then the opportunity opened up. I didn't know anything. 
I didn't know anything about podcast hosting at this point. But an acquaintance of mine from the wrestling message boards, wrestling classics and such, uh, Mickey Yarber was co-running a site called the Retro Network. And basically, they specialize in, in all things retro, specifically the 1980s, but also the 70s and the 90s. And I thought, hey, man, all I like to talk about is retro wrestling. All I like to review is retro wrestling. So this, this might tie in good here. And Mickey, hey, he's a, a huge wrestling fan. So maybe, maybe I can get my foot in the door here. So I kind of nudged Mickey a little. I asked him, hey, Mickey, what would it take to get a podcast going on your site? And we kind of discussed that back and forth for a little while. And in the meantime, I said, you know what? I, I don't want to do just one type of show. But they already have so many other shows here on the Retro Network, including another wrestling-related podcast that they don't want to oversaturate themselves with all of my ideas. And I don't blame them. Again, they're not a wrestling site. They're a retro site. And I wanted to create that Monday Warfare show. And I came up with the name WrestleCopia like 20 years ago online at a small little news site, you call it a quote-unquote news site, where I just kind of took news from other sites and posted it on there for a matter probably of months, certainly not even a year. Uh, this goes back maybe 20 years. So I had the name WrestleCopia in my back pocket walking into this. So I began doing some research, studying up who was the best podcast host to go with for my particular vision. Meanwhile, Mickey comes back to me and says, yeah, Ray, come on in, man. We're going we're gonna to give you a spot on the Retro Network for your wrestling memory grenade show. And off to the races we were, and I think we were something like eight or nine episodes in when I finally gathered up the uh, correct amount of money and uh, all of the information that I needed to finally get my podcast ever going. And I, I went to Mickey and his uh, co-runner, Jason, as well. And I, I talked to Jason. I talked to Mickey through DM, and I talked to Jason verbally because I wanted to do things right. I explained to him, hey, man, I just invested $1,000 into this podcast network. All new equipment, new software. I've not only paid for the hosting for my podcast, but I paid for a hosting for my podcast network website as well. So I've invested a good cool grand into this thing. And I'm, uh, I don't want to leave the retro network. I'd like to still stay here if that's okay with you. But at the same time, I, I'm moving here to the WrestleCopia podcast network so I can start Monday Warfare, the battles within. And some of the other shows we've done since then, including... TR shocks the world. And Jason could have been more cool about it. He's no problem, Ray. Hey, man, if you put $1,000 into something, you go make it work. So I appreciate those guys for that. And that's really how it all got started. We move on as Tom Robinson and Tina Fey's illegitimate love child from Shoreham, Vermont writes. Wow, that's a lot. So, Tom, apparently you and uh, Tina Fey have a child in Vermont. Obviously, someone listens to TR shocks the world here. But this illegitimate child, this alleged illegitimate child, writes, What's up with Tom Robinson? Don't you mean your father? But he asks, What's up with Tom Robinson? You mentioned of an illness or an injury. Okay, so here's the deal with Tom. I actually had planned for him to be part of this show. He was going to do this show with me today. But Tom's had a lot going on this entire year of 2022 so far. And that uh, definitely all revolves around an injury he has, uh, if you want to call it that, with, with his eyes. And Tom called me up, explained the whole thing to me. He's, you know, giving me a lot of information, not just on his health, but his life right now and everything. So that's, you know, all up to Tom. If he ever wants to discuss that on his show, he's more than welcome to do that. However, that's not for me to say, but Tom's been pretty open about his eye issues. He's even posted pictures on his Twitter account, which you guys can go to at TR Shock and uh, just 
warning in advance, uh, very graphic pictures of uh, Tom's eyes. Anywho, Tom had agreed to do the show, be part of the show, but unfortunately, uh, with everything he has going on lately, it's uh, a lot of last-minute changes happen with Tom, a lot of last-minute cancellations right now, a lot of last-minute attempts at recording a show. In fact, he contacted me around 8.30 p.m. on Easter and said, hey, you want to do a show in an hour? And I said, Tom, I'll try, but I'm at my grandmother's house right now. It's Easter, yada, yada. And he got it, but I just sometimes I need a little more advance notice than an hour to put something special together. But again, Tom wanted to be part of the show. He texted me, apologized that he couldn't make it. Just a lot of things going on right now for Tom. But uh, as far as I know, physically, I think his eyes are doing much better. Hopefully, he'll uh, be back on the road for his job again soon. And if you're listening out there, get well, buddy, Tom. And like I said, last text message I sent you back, you can call me anytime, brother. I'm here. We've got a repeat question here. Two of our listeners both asked, Terry Cornetti of Winchester, Virginia, and Nicholas Taylor of East Brunswick, New Jersey. They both write in basically the same question. When will we see some WrestleCopia merchandise? You guys want some merch, huh? Well, that's been in the works for a long time. I just haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. But yeah, we do already have some designs and ideas out there and ready to go. So to answer your question, I can't give you an exact date. But be on the lookout this summer for some WrestleCopia merchandise. Uh, Really some fun ideas coming out to you guys very, very soon. And I appreciate the question. A former winner of our free prize giveaway at P80s of Fairfield, Ohio, writes in. He said, hey, Ray. I enjoy your stories about your interactions with your non-wrestling fan grandfather. Oh, boy. Do you have any untold, and he capitalized untold, stories you can share publicly about any other instances where your grandfather commented on what you were watching? Well, I mean, I've told this in the past. I said I'll wait for a good time to tell the story. So I already have one uh, pertaining to Saba Simba I'll get to in just a second. Uh, But there's another fun story. I might have told this on a Patreon show, maybe one of the watch-alongs or something in the past, but everybody that's a wrestling fan knows people that are not wrestling fans. And it's always at the worst moment that they seem to walk into the room, whether it's your wife or your parents when you were growing up or whatever the case may be. It's always at the very worst time they walk in there and the most ridiculous thing is happening on the screen. Maybe Mae Young's giving birth to a fucking hand. I don't know. But it's always seemed to work out that way with my grandfather for the most part. And one of those times uh, was an episode of Primetime Wrestling, and I remember this like it was yesterday, 1990, Primetime Wrestling. They go off to Madison Square Garden, and my grandfather just randomly comes in the room of all times and sits down as they're going off to Madison Square Garden. (gasps) So we're going to get a competitive match. Instead, we get Iron Mike Sharp, and that's 1990 Iron Mike Sharp, versus a man who hadn't even been in the company, who may not have even been wrestling for the past several years, in Special Delivery Jones, who randomly comes back for one night in 1990 to wrestle Iron Mike Sharp in the opener of a Madison Square Garden card. And I think they go the 10-minute time limit on top of that. Ugh. To say it was rough would be an understatement. And my grandfather's just sitting there, not understanding why the fuck I watch this shit. And even at the time, 10 or 11-year-old me is sitting there in, my, in the back of my head going, Why is this match on when he's in the room? It's almost like I I felt like I was disappointing him. So that's another little fun little story from my youth. But uh, I had referenced telling this story in the past, so it's a good time time as any to do it right now. And again, I get to go back to to 
1990, this time in the fall of 1990, a new character bursts onto the scene of the WWF by the name of Saba Simba. Of course, Tony Atlas. That's Tony Atlas, says Roddy Piper. And if there's anything you remember about Saba Simba, very stereotypical, quote-unquote, African tribeman. He had found his roots, so to speak. And on his way to the ring, he comes out dancing. This just happened to be a weekend where my brother stayed the night over at my house, so we're watching Superstars. It's Saturday morning. We're pumped. And into the room comes my grandfather, who's watching this unfold before his eyes. Tony Atlas in this odd African garb, this shield, this spear. But the most notable thing to my grandfather was the odd dance that Saba Simba did all the way down to the ring and into the ring as he's kind of just sticking his derriere out for everyone to look at. Just kind of an odd dance, tribal dance. I can only envision Vince McMahon teaching Tony Atlas this dance, by the way. This is how they do it. Yeah, I know. I'm Vince McMahon, motherfucker. So as Saba Simba enters the ring, he begins to do this little dance around the ring, kind of just gyrating his hips outward, his buttocks towards the camera, towards the fans. And my grandfather, out of the blue, goes, the fuck is this shit? Look at him. He's just walking around saying, kiss my ass, kiss my ass. And me and my brother were, you know, young at the time. So it's funny. Our grandfather's cussing and he's making fun of something. So it's funny. We're laughing at it. And then, then he drops the big one. He goes, if he was gyrating the other way, he'd be saying, suck my dick, suck my dick. Now, my grandfather was uh, an interesting character. Now, mind you, I was probably about 11, 11 years old at the time. Though, for some reason, I, I did know what that meant. And I do want to clarify that may have been the very first time ever that he mentioned anything sexually related in front of me. So it wasn't like this was a thing that was ongoing constantly. Too. He was uh, tremendous awesome. He did me right my whole life. He, he was really uh, the reason I'm still here today, I'd like to think, and as successful as I am as a human being. But in this instance, he was just trying to have a little fun that morning. And he comes in there and Saba Simba's dancing around the ring. And uh, this is supposed to be wrestling. And here's a guy shaking his ass in front of the fans and my, my grandfather, look at him, kiss my ass, kiss my, he's singing it, kiss my ass, kiss my ass. If he was doing it the other way, he'd be saying, suck my dick, suck my dick. And it was just the most hilarious thing uh, at the time. We died laughing probably for an hour. We till every once in a blue moon, we still bring that up to this very day. So it stuck with us for over 30 years. And I'm uh, sorry, Papa out there in the sky, if uh, you didn't want that story told, but uh, just hilarious. And I'm sure he never thought of it again for the rest of his life. But here it is more than 30 years later. And me and my brother still have fun with it. And that was my grandfather's take on sports entertainment in a nutshell. So I want to thank at P80s for bringing a smile to my face this morning. As we go on, we get a popular question. Not one, not two, but three people ask this question, including the original fleek. Of Toronto, Ontario. Is Fleek still a thing? Is that still a word? The original Sheik, I think they're going for here. The original Fleek of Toronto. Curtis Bowling of New Bedford, Massachusetts. And Grant Kirk of Yuba City, California. They all ask, do you have a list of ideas for future projects on the grenade? Do I have a list? No, I haven't written anything down. I have some ideas in the back of my head. I'd love to tackle UWF 1987, WCW 1992. Anything pre-87 in the World Wrestling Federation as well. So many ways we can jump and go and, and lots of ideas, guys. And Jacob Trimbley of Montreal, Quebec, Canada writes, Can we expect you to tackle any wrestling 
pre-national expansion? Well, I think I just kind of answered that question without meaning to, Jacob. So I'll answer it again really quickly. Pre-national expansion, that would have been before Vince McMahon took over, at least certainly pre-Hulkamania era. And the, the answer is whether it's here on The Grenade or another podcast completely, yes, I have every intention of doing pre-national expansion projects because as much as I love, and I grew up on 1980s, early 90s, WWF, WCW, one of my biggest passions is the territory era. And I'm not just talking Dallas and Mid-South and Memphis. I'm talking Roy Shire in San Francisco, the LaBelles in Los Angeles, Portland and Don Owen. I've studied them all for more than 30 years. I love watching the footage. I love all of the wrestlers from the time period. And I'm just dying to talk about that era. So yes, uh, in the coming months, you can expect me absolutely to talk in depth about the territory days of professional wrestling. David Mitchell of McGehee, or McGehee, Arkansas asks, is there a set time period that the Memory Grenade show evolves around? Or revolves around? Can we expect anything from other promotions besides the big two? And what's the latest year you think you'll handle? Okay, good question there. So beyond the big two, again, this kind of goes in with the other questions, why I put them all together. Yes, I, I have every intention of doing other territory. I'd love to try to throw something together for global. Oh, man, that would be fun. Just kind of a quick history through the Global Wrestling Federation, at least the ESPN era global, maybe even beyond. Uh, I'd love, again, Watts, UWF, 1987 selling off to Crockett, or even 1986. You know, the Dallas version of the USWA, I hold that very near and dear to my heart because I grew up watching ESPN and I got to see a lot of Chris Adams there after he had moved away from the UWF. I got to see a young man by the name of Stunning Steve Austin as well, another young man by the name of Dustin Rhodes get their first big pushes in the uh, wrestling business. Down there, I got to see Jimmy Jack Funk beyond his WWF days. I was always a big fan of gorgeous Gary Young. Lots of Jeff Jarrett, Robert Fuller, lots of fun stuff there. So there's so much I'd love to do outside of just the WWF and WCW. Now, as for a year, a year we're going to stop with the grenade? Well, it's a memory grenade. So technically, I guess we could go just about anywhere. I mean, even the early 2000s now are, are a long time ago. But for right now, my big thing is to try to stay out of the 2000s, even try to stay out of the late 90s, really, because the Monday Warfare show really tackles everything that was going on in the WWF and WCW at the time. And of course, we do Patreon-exclusive pay-per-view watch-alongs of the WWF and WCW pay-per-views that coincide with the Monday Night War era, 95, 96, and beyond. And I wouldn't mind doing, like, maybe, say, ECW from 1996 at some point. That might be fun. And I don't really have a set time that we're going to cut the grenade off at. But right now, for me, my interests that could hold me for an entire year's worth of analyzation here on the show, I, I would easily have to say uh, no later than the mid-90s. Uh, like I said, Raw and Nitro start in 95, so I, I, I'm going to try to stay pre-95 for as long as I can. Although 96 ECW definitely would, would be an idea. And beyond, I mean, much, much further down the road, who knows what we'll do from the early 2000s. There's some fun eras there in the WWF, don't get me wrong, or some early TNA, things like that. So yeah, who knows? But for right now, I think we're going to try to stay on the other side of, say, 1995, at least for a while. Cooper McClintock of Denham Springs, Louisiana asks, any chance of breaking down Herb Abrams' UWF? Well, now... 
Herb Abrams' booking of the UWF was about as coked out as Herb Abrams. So it would be very hard to try to navigate through what the UWF was, but I wouldn't mind watching all the shows. I certainly, I think I have access to all the shows, the ones that I don't, didn't record myself. So I think I could put it all together and kind of go through and see everything that happened. So maybe that's another option at some point. Just kind of go through the Herb Abrams UWF. That could wind up being a whole lot of fun. Bradley Klinko of Liverpool, New York, and this one's kind of a long question here. It says, I enjoy the watch-along episodes you guys do because unlike some other podcasts, I don't feel like I need to actually watch the shows to follow along. I'm always learning something new with all the little tidbits that you drop throughout those episodes. My question is, with there only being two pay-per-views in 1987 WWF, have you thought about doing other watch-alongs of events from Madison Square Garden, Boston, the Spectrum, etc.? Excellent question, Bradley. Uh, yeah, in, in the past, we've, we've tried to do watch-alongs of all the Clash of the Champions and pay-per-views in 1989. We've done watch-alongs for all five pay-per-views of the WWF in 1993, including two European Rampage show watch-alongs as well, not counting Patreon-exclusive USA Special watch-alongs. As for here in 1987, I have a lot of ideas. I don't really want to break them this week. I don't even know if we're going to follow through with some of the ideas that I have. Uh, there's a lot going on right now in the works as far as watch-alongs go. Obviously, we're going to do WrestleMania 3 and Survivor Series 87. I thought about doing the Saturday Night's Men events. It may wind up eventually becoming a thing. We'll have to wait and see. But as of right now, they only run about an hour, six, seven minutes without commercials there on the network. So... Not really long enough of a show for me. I feel like I'm ripping you guys off if I put out in an hour and 10-minute episode of The Grenade. But yes, we do have some ideas about where we can go with some of the watch-alongs and some of the house shows you mentioned as well. So just stay tuned to The Grenade, and we'll have answers to those questions probably in the next couple episodes. Terrence Ingram of Toronto writes, Take me through an episode of The Grenade. Uh, I'm assuming, Terrence, you're... Uh, probably referencing how do I put together an episode of The Grenade. It's a lot of work. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, I don't get paid nearly enough for what I do, but I do it because I love it, and I hope that one day it pays off and people uh, maybe get an idea of how much work goes into putting together a show. Now, I don't want to scare away potential future co-hosts, by the way, guys. All you guys have to do to be part of the show is watch some footage, maybe take a few notes, and then record the show. It's all I need from the co-host. Now, on my end, the first thing I do is I go in, I go through all the shows we're going to be covering for said week, and I grab all of the sound bites first, any of the promos, localized promos and things. I grab those first and cut those out so they're out of the way. So when I go back to watch the shows, I can just go straight through without having to stop and grab the sound bites, and that's consuming. It's That's a day's work right there, just grabbing all the sound bites. Then you spend another day maybe grabbing some video clips, throwing them up on YouTube, social media, kind of shilling what's coming up on the show, selling it to everybody so they're, they're anticipating the show, reading the observers, the torches, other, the other fanzines, if you will, of the time, gathering any information I might not have, digging out certain shoot interviews from my collection, trying to find answers to questions that maybe I don't have the full answer to or I'd like to hear from the source themselves. And at that point, we're two days into the weekly project, and I have yet to start watching the footage. And then, of course, it's time to watch the footage. And no, you can't do that in a day. It can take two, three days just to get through the footage and take all of the notes. And that's another thing in itself, formatting an episode. And for anybody who 
subscribes to our Patreon account and has my insanely detailed show notes. You see how insanely detailed they are, but I also have to format the page first. I have to type up all of the episodes and then kind of fill in the matches and promos as we go along. So now you're up to, on a great week, four days of work, but on an average week, five days of work. And then comes record time. I get up in the morning, I get the kids off to school, I get a little work done, and it's time to record. And sometimes if I'm lucky, I can do it in a day, but a lot of times, even two days it takes to record a show. And so during the day, I'll record, and during the night, I will edit said episode. So it takes me the full week. There's no day where I have any downtime. Do I schedule a few hours here or there to spend with the wife or to do things around here? Yes, absolutely. But there's never a day that goes by that I'm not doing something related to one of my shows here, in particularly The Grenade, which eats up a little bit, at least a little of my time every single day of the week. And then comes social media time, time to shill everything, time to put everything over, time to post everything everywhere, to WrestleCopia.com, to our podcast host, to Twitter, to Facebook. It's, it's a lot of work, as you might can imagine. And that's why I appreciate our listeners and our patrons so, so much because you guys make it all worthwhile at the end of every single week. All right, and as we continue to roll on, it looks like we're about at the halfway point here in the Ask Me Anything segment of the show. And up next, Joshua Ward from Wallingford, Connecticut asks, how did you come about 1989 NWA slash 1993 WWF? Lots of good questions, guys. Honestly, 1989 NWA was kind of a no-brainer for me. I'd watched the pay-per-views a thousand times. I've watched the clashes a thousand times. I've watched the Saturday night shows hundreds of times. Obviously, I'm exaggerating all of that, but I've seen all of that stuff. But I never really went back and went through all the worldwides, the pros, the main events, as, as deep as I did. And yes, I, I've read through the observers a number of times as well from that time period. But it's just a really classic year for the NWA, a transition period from the old school into the new school. The Turner Company had taken over, purchased from Jim Crockett Promotions, and it was a little rough start to the beginning of the year, almost a throwback to what it was even prior to what it had been the last few years, it felt like. But most specifically, when we got through that George Scott era, man, things just boom, they took off. It was like a new company, the Steiner Brothers, the Skyscrapers, just so many good things that came with NWA. Terry Funk, what great stuff that was. The sound bites, oh. Lex Luger's heel turn, Ricky Steamboat in there during 89, really good stuff. It just seemed like a no-brainer to me that that's a year I wanted to tackle, a year that I thought I knew a lot about, but there was a lot of things in between, the little stories, the little things that happened on some of the shows I maybe I've never seen or certainly haven't seen in a very long time. And it's just a favorite year of mine in the NWA that I just hadn't given proper time to really go back and, and do a deep dive into it before, so it just felt like a perfect year and promotion to start with here on the grenade. And then as far as 1993 goes, that was actually honestly me throwing a bone or attempting to throw a bone to my former co-host, Steven Eckstadt. Now I've known Steve for a number of years and, and somehow everything always goes back to 1993 with Steve. That was like his first full year of watching wrestling, like, like every single week. So he has fond memories of that and I get it. 90, 92, 93, honestly, all the way to 95. Not really my cup of tea, but I did watch it. I grew up on it. I know it. And of those four years, 92 to 95, if I had to pick a year to do, it would be 1993. Outside of the Hogan run, everything just felt so fresh and new. And I felt Steve kind of losing interest, maybe, maybe kind of winding down as we were closing up 1989 in the NWA. And I thought, what better way to, hey, you know what? 
he did this for me. Let me throw him a bone. Let's do 1993 WWF. Now, I never told Steve that. In fact, this is the first time I'm even stating this out loud. But that was my, my theory was, you know what? This will re- rejuvenate him. We'll get going. We'll, we'll get right back into the swing of things. But unfortunately, with his schedule and other things, just Steve still didn't manage to make it through the entire year of 93. And by the time he left the program, we were far too deep in to get back out. So I said, you know what? I'm going to finish this myself. I always finish everything I start. And maybe others don't have that drive, but that's me. That's who I am. That's what I do. So Steve came along for the ride. We did January through April. I did May by myself. He came back. We did June and July. And Steve hits me up and says, hey, man, I just, I don't have the time for this right now. I said, no problem. No sweat. I'll just keep rolling on along like I always do. And that's what we've done since July of 93. And I'll admit, had I known in advance that, the, you know, that was the situation, that was how it was going to unfold, that yeah, I probably would have went with something else. I did start with the NWA, so I probably would have certainly chosen a, a year of WWF, uh, most likely 1987, which is what we're going to start next week here on The Grenade. You know, I don't want to be stuck inside a, a six- or a seven-year bubble of professional wrestling, like the late 80s and early 90s. I want to I go all over, and that's, that's the entire plan, or that was the entire point of the Wrestling Memory Grenade. Maybe teach not just myself, but maybe some others some new things along the way. And that's what I plan to do moving forward. But obviously, we started with NWA 89. It was it's kind of a passion project for myself. I, I came up with 93 in the WWF Next because I thought, I thought that would really intrigue Steve. And now here we're moving on to 1987 of the World Wrestling Federation because I wanted to go backwards. I definitely didn't want to go forwards from 1993, but I wanted to go back beyond 89. And I thought 87 was a great place to go to another year of the WWF. And who knows where we head next? But that's really all there was to it in the decision making. We roll on. Billy Herb from Naples, Florida asks your favorite wrestlers from 1993. Who were my favorite wrestlers from 1993? Well, moving into 1993, I have to say Mr. Perfect was probably easily my favorite. Shawn Michaels, a close second. By the end of the year, Shawn Michaels was easily my favorite in the WWF. And over in WCW, while we're at it, I, I know I was always a big fan of Sting in that era. I was a big surfer Sting, if that's what you want to call it. Surfer Sting fan, the spiked blonde headed Sting. I was a big fan of that version of Sting. I was never a Crow Sting fan. I didn't care for it at all. But to, to get back to the question, 1993, my favorite wrestlers in the WWF, Mr. Perfect and Shawn Michaels over in WCW had to be Sting, had to be Vader, and Lord Steven Regal, believe it or not. And I know everybody will say, well, I believe that, and you believe it now, but maybe not so much in 1993. Between the character and the style he worked, it just wasn't the end thing for the average wrestling fan to appreciate. Billy Jerk Haynes. Oh, wow, that's going to tie into our WrestleMania 3 show upcoming. Uh, Billy Jerk Haynes of Newburgh, Oregon, writes, Who was the biggest bust of 1993? We actually wound up giving that away as an award, and it wasn't initially on my awards list, Billy Jerk. But thanks to this question, I said, you know what? That question is good enough to, to give an award to. And, of course, we wound up giving it to the Giant Gonzalez. But honorable mention, surprisingly, Steve says Lex Luger for biggest bust of 93. And as far as what you were expecting to get, I'd have to agree. Lex Luger could have taken that award home. But in general, I got to go biggest bust, the Giant Gonzalez. Eight months of absolutely shit. Megan Ferguson of Kelowna, British Columbia asks, would you consider following up through WrestleMania 10? Another question I answered with Steve in the earlier segment here on the show, I've been asked this by a few other people throughout the last several weeks on the show, would I consider 
a continuation of our 1993 project, at least through WrestleMania 10, due January through March 20th of 1994. And as, as much fun as doing the Rumble and WrestleMania would be, I just absolutely have no desire to make it through that TV. That time period of TV, no thanks. Not at this point in time. Philip Gold of Woodland Hills, California writes, Do you have connections to other podcast hosts? Um, that's a good question, Philip. Do I have connections? As in, do I, do I know some other podcast hosts? Yes, I do. Uh, some of them probably don't want me to mention that I know them on here because they work for other podcast networks who are very strict on who their, uh, I don't know, quote-unquote employees, their podcast hosts speak to. So there are some that I do know very well, and some I know just eh, as an acquaintance that contact me fairly often through DM. Uh, very, very good human beings. You could probably guess who they are by that statement alone. Very good guys. And I've even spoke to several more, including the good people at the Good Cop, Bad Cop Wrestling Podcast. We're talking about doing something joint here fairly soon. They've already invited me onto their show, and I've been talking to them about coming on here to WrestleCopia for a joint show as well. So looking forward to those potential guest spots in the very near future. But do I have connections? Do I have connections to Conrad Thompson? Absolutely not. Do I have connections to Brian Last? Uh, Brian Last surprised me. Doesn't really know me. He did reach out a little over a year ago when my wife, uh, you know, had her issues in the hospital and things. He he sent a very very kind message online. He didn't have to do that to me, uh, showing his support, his prayers and thoughts, and we really appreciated that. Uh, but outside of that, I've I've never spoken to Brian Last, so I don't really know him. Obviously, Tom Robinson, one of my co-hosts here at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. He knows Brian Last, but a bit of a falling out there on the 605 Super Podcast, but I don't know Brian. I have uh, nothing against him or, or really any other podcast host. I don't really know uh, too many of them on that level. So do I speak to some other podcast hosts? Absolutely. Um, do I have connections with them? Uh, not really. Jason Jam Garvin asks, ooh, I like what you did there. Jason Jimmy Jam. Jason Jam Garvin asks, how are you going to handle the big shows for your watch-alongs here in 1987? Okay, I think we already kind of touched on that question, so I, I, I misplaced this one. I should have put this one with the other question, but we're definitely going to be doing episodes focusing on WrestleMania 3 and on Survivor Series 87. Outside of that, I have some ideas of what I'm going to be doing with the Saturday night's main event shows, but going back to the house shows, the Madison Square Gardens, the Boston Garden, Philadelphia Spectrum, Maple Leaf Gardens, those shows, again, I have some ideas in the works. I don't want to announce them yet just in case they don't work out. Let's just say I do have plans to do some of those, and uh, it's probably a good idea to sign up right now to the all-access tier over at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. AEWBot asks, AEWBot, oh, okay, so they're even contacting me now. Must be from Cupertino, California. That's where all my spam comes from on the WrestleCopia website. AEWBot, though, nevertheless, asks, what were the biggest surprises? Of 1993 in the WWF, looking back, what were the biggest surprises? The biggest surprises. Uh, some of the things, I, I, I jotted down a few notes here uh, in order to answer this question. Uh, kind of a little bit all over the place. Things that I, I didn't really remember that some people are probably going to laugh at and say, how do you not remember that? Or how did you not know that? Uh, one of the things was that Adam Bomb sucked, quite frankly. I, I, I knew Brian Clark was green. But man, I guess, you know, being a young teenager and just loving the look, the size, the agility, just the overall look of Adam Bomb, the colors that he used on his singlet, Johnny Polo during the time he was his manager, 
everything was right about Adam Bomb. So I never noticed until I actually was forced to go back and watch his matches that I can't say that he sucked. He certainly had lots of agility. So I don't know if I, I guess maybe sucked is too harsh. He was just simply too green and, and didn't capitalize on the, the push he was given. I just feel like with that ability, he could have been so much more. So Adam Bomb sucking, that certainly is uh, one of the things that uh, shocked me looking back. Because I used to always ask myself and my, my cousins, my brother, why aren't they pushing Adam Bomb? Look at this guy. Why? Oh my God, he jobbed to Brett. He jobbed to Razor. Why is he jobbing on TV? How do you job out a guy that looks like Adam Bomb? And, and now, I don't know if I agree with the jobs on TV, even to this day. But at the same time, I see why they couldn't rely on him as a main event heel. Other little surprises I didn't really notice until we dissected this, this 1993 was that Giant Gonzalez was off TV from the weekend of King of the Ring all the way until his match with The Undertaker, essentially, at SummerSlam. I think he, was, he came out and stood in the aisleway of SummerSlam Spectacular, but that was the week before the pay-per-view. The Giant Gonzalez was off TV for a good two and a half months leading in and off the road, too. He wasn't wrestling The Undertaker on the house shows. So it was clear when they brought Mr. Hughes in to kind of supplant the Giant Gonzalez that the entire point was to give The Undertaker somebody else to work on the house shows moving forward before Hughes was also fired. But yeah, just surprising that Gonzalez came in at the Royal Rumble. He stunk it up at WrestleMania. And by King of the Ring, they had realized this is awful. And just kind of send him home and say, we'll give you a call when it's time for SummerSlam. We'll blow this thing off. Uh, some other things that... Uh, I don't know about the use the word surprise to me, but just things I, one thing I hadn't remembered was it was a pleasant surprise, by the way, was there was a brawl, a confrontation going into WrestleMania nine between Razor Ramon and Mr. Perfect, which I just totally escaped my memory banks. And I don't know why two of my favorites of the time, Razor Ramon and Kurt Hennig going at it brawling at ringside there. And you had to wonder how much better would WrestleMania have been with the Mr. Perfect and Razor Ramon match versus the matches we got with those two. But again, Ramon's still rocking that injured leg at the time. And a couple other things. Actually, there's a lot of things here that I didn't remember involving Razor Ramon. How good the selling was between Razor and DiBiase. When I remember the Razor Ramon face turn vividly. So that wasn't much of a surprise to me. It was the way they sold it with their facials, their expressions, their responses. Uh, even on Superstars, where DiBiase does the job to the kid, they did a much better sell job. And DiBiase specifically... It just meant more to me here in 2022 watching that little feud than it ever did in 1993. I just wasn't into it. Now, I was into the, the face turn. I just wasn't into the person Razor was working with. And I love me some Ted DiBiase, so I don't know why. But watching it now, I really appreciate it a lot more. Now, the match itself, it was just, it was there. DiBiase on his way out, but he did the favors. So no complaints. Uh, another one, a third one involving Razor Ramon was near the end of the year there. I did, I popped, I remembered it vividly again, the Shawn Michaels attack, a diesel attack in the aisleway, the Razor's Edge on the concrete on Razor Ramon. I remembered all of that, but then we find out that IRS stole Cheesemo's gold, as he put it, and I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. So I totally forgot that IRS stole Razor Ramon's gold leading into the Royal Rumble. So that was kind of an oh yeah moment for me. And then probably my, my most personal oh yeah moment of the entire year, and I just posted the video again recently. Actually, it, it exploded on Facebook just a couple of weeks ago. 180,000 views in like a, a matter of a few days was the uh, mirror, mirror on the wall promo when the narcissist was up on the stage and Mr. Perfect comes out and puts the perfect towel 
on top of the mirror. Really good stuff there. Uh, I love that. I haven't seen that probably in nearly 30 years, so I marked out for that when I saw it. I knew what Mr. Perfect was going to say before he said it by the time he came out. But until that moment, I'd forgotten this. So it was uh, really cool to see that again. So those are just some things that I either forgot about or I just totally didn't remember at all. But yeah, it was just a, a fun time navigating back through 1993. And before we move on to our final category, category number three, we have three more listeners who sent in, well, they're not really questions, but more like Kind words, which I truly appreciate from you guys out there. Bill of uh, Dundalk, Maryland says, no questions. Just letting you know the show rocks. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Bill. Really appreciate that. Arthur Ashford of New Malden, England writes, cheers, mate. You run an ace of a show. Please tell your bloke, Tom Robinson, that he is missed. I miss Tom Robinson. too. I miss recording shows with Tom. It's always so much fun. I've done my damnedest to get Tom to jump on board. Tom has told me in the past, uh, in just the last few months, that he wants to jump in and do some grenade episodes. And I've given him, I've left that door open. I've given him that opportunity. But of course, again, it goes back to Tom's just not in a, a great place right now to be able to get on and record during this time of day. So uh, yeah, uh, I will tell Tom Robinson, you said hello, Arthur. And I have no doubt TR will be back sooner rather than later here. And finally, Brent Solomon of Altoona, Iowa. I had heard of Altoona, Pennsylvania. I didn't know Altoona, Iowa here, but Brent Solomon says, I've been listening to your show since the summer of 1989 episodes of the NWA. Good time to join. Outstanding work with the sound bites and use of audio snippets. Well, thank you, Brent. I try. Brent goes on to say, the sound bites are one of the many reasons I love to listen to your show while at work. The nostalgia and your knowledge are second to none. A very underrated podcast. Very appreciated, Brent. Can't thank you enough. I do feel underrated, and uh, I feel like my knowledge is uh, second to none. Not to pat myself on the back, but I'll pull a little Barry Horowitz here. I feel like I can hold myself up against pretty much some of the best out there in their knowledge of wrestling history. I've been studying the business for 35 years-ish, and hopefully as the listeners keep putting the name WrestleCopy out there, the Wrestling Memory Grenade out there, Monday Warfare, and so forth. Hopefully, it just continues to grow until other people realize, hey, this guy does know what he's talking about. But I thank you guys, thank all of you guys for your kind words. As we move on to final category, category number three, wrestling questions. Now, these aren't related to our shows here or the podcast network. These are just wrestling questions. And right out of the gate, Stephen Letker of Tyrol, Austria. I hope I pronounced that right. Tyrol, Austria asks, Ray, what is your favorite other podcast? Now, my answer to that many years ago would have easily been something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. I remember being in the store with my wife, pushing the cart around while she did school shopping, back to school shopping for the kids. And we spent I know, God, several hours going through the stores. So I got to listen to those very early episodes, Dusty Roads and things like that. It really passed the time. Yeah, it was just uh, it was a great show during that time period. I know Bruce went back to Vince, and but honestly, the market—I I can't believe I'm saying this because I do my own podcast as well—but it kind of got oversaturated, at least with the big names for me. And I, I really got to be interested in the topic they're talking about. So starting out, I listen to every episode of Bruce. I listen to every episode of Tony Schiavone. I love Tony Schiavone, by the way, guys. But as everybody else got a podcast, Jim Cornette has two. Jim Ross, and so on and so forth, I started going, I don't have time for all of these. 
And there are people out there who love themselves a specific movie star, a certain actor. And no matter what they play in, they will watch said movie. I can't do that. I'm a big fan of Bruce Willis, and I'm sad to hear, you know, what's come out in the recent weeks about Bruce, but I'm a big diehard fan. But there are a dozen other Bruce Willis movies that I won't even watch. I enjoyed The Sixth Sense, but you won't catch me watching Disney's The Kid, if you get my drift here. So it's the same way with podcasts for me. The topic has to be something that I'm interested in, and I find that sometimes on, for instance, Conrad's podcast network, he's very selective of the time frame he enjoys talking about, and that's okay. It's his show, and he can do whatever he wants, and hey, he's a multimillionaire, so he's He's doing something right somewhere. And yeah, he does go back in time and he talks about the 80s. He talks about the early 90s. I'm not saying he doesn't, but he seems to really want to focus on the late 90s, especially 19. There was like a long period there where me and my brother would joke almost every week. It was a topic about 1997. And it just uh, it feels like there's a lot of 90, late 90s, very early 2000s. Not my cup of tea. I lived it. Yes, I watched it. Yes, I attended the shows in the late 90s. Absolutely, I did. But I don't necessarily want to relive those years before I want to relive all of the other things. So, yeah, I'll still go on those podcasts and I'll look and see, oh, Bunkhouse Stampede? Sign me up. WrestleMania 6? Sure, why not? Bruce wants to talk about Houston? Oh, man, I'm there all day. And there may come a day where I'm just kind of bored and, and, and Halloween Havoc 97 looks good. I click play. But on the, on the average day, I'm not just listening to any specific podcast because of who it is. I love listening to Jim Cornette. Probably if I had to pick one person I like listening to, it's probably Jimmy more than anybody else. But even then, I can't listen to a whole show because I don't follow the current product like Jim has to right now or like Tom Robinson loves to do. I don't want to follow the current product, so I only do it really for Tom when we're doing the show so I I know what's going on. And yeah, I do read up every week online. I, I try to keep up with the news, the results, things like that. But am I sitting down watching the programs? No. I'm not. So when Jim reviews AEW or Raw or SmackDown, tune me out. I'm just, it's, I don't want to watch it, so I, I don't want to hear about it. But I love listening to Corny when he's discussing pay-per-views, because I watch the pay-per-views. And there's tons of other, uh, you know, questions he gets on the drive through that I like uh, listening to the answers to and things. So Cordette's probably my favorite out of anybody out there right now. But in general, I don't listen to anyone religiously. I just don't have the time with my own podcast. Justin Green of Lexington, North Carolina writes, who is your favorite wrestling announcer of all time? That's a tough question because there are a lot of different types of wrestling announcers and depends on what kind of mood that I'm in. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon, I can go to sleep on that guy. And I'm not saying that as a knock. I mean, he soothes me to sleep. Gorilla Monsoon and Bobby Heenan, primetime wrestling. I can go to sleep on that all night long. It's my comfort show. It's my comfort voices. It's the voices I grew up listening to. So. I, there's always a soft spot in my heart for Gorilla. Now, as far as actual commentary goes, it's, it's a different story. I have different tastes for different days. Bob Cottle, always another, another guy I always have a soft spot in my heart for. Bob probably wasn't the greatest announcer of all time, but another guy that just kind of soothes you to sleep. Just somebody that you, you, you want him to be your grandpa. I don't care what anyone says. I think Vince McMahon did a phenomenal job on commentary all those years. He really hyped things up. He knew what to do. He knew how to get shit over. Vince McMahon was always fun. In fact, when he stopped announcing right after, uh, right around Survivor Series 97, I was so bummed. Probably the best at the craft uh, would have to go to Jim Ross. My favorite? Maybe not. But JR is definitely high up there. 
Tony Schiavone, another name I grew up on, always loved me some Tony Schiavone. Uh, Lance Russell, though, maybe the overall, the most fun to listen to is Lance Russell. Now, that's a name I can't go to sleep on. There are many nights I'm like, you know what, I want to, and this is this goes back years because I don't really get the opportunity to go to sleep listening to wrestling anymore, but uh, there would be nights where I just, you know what, I want to put some Memphis on and go to sleep, and no matter how tired I was, I found myself, I just couldn't go to sleep as long as Lance Russell's on the call, just that, that voice, not for sleeping. And I promise I do a better Lance Russell than that. I'm just, it's like I said, I, I got a cold, so I, I apologize. So I don't know if I can give you my favorite wrestling announcer, but I think I did, uh, did a fairly good job of my favorites of all time there, listing all of those guys. And I can even go back, go back to Portland, man. Uh, Frank Bonima, before he passed away, he was uh, a hidden gem of the Pacific Northwest. Really good. And much like Bob Cottle, Bonema never tried to get himself over. It was always about getting the product over. Brian Moore of New York, New York, asks my first wrestling memories. First wrestling memories. Well, my first wrestling memories uh, come very sporadically, almost like in still photos. It's, it's kind of like when you have a, a drunken binger one night and you black out. That next morning, you remember bits and pieces. It starts coming back to you. In like still photos. Oh, I remember that. Oh, no, I did that. Oh, my gosh. Where's my wallet? How much did I spend? It was kind of like that. Those are my earliest memories of wrestling. I remember Georgia Championship Wrestling being on uh, the local channel. I think 61 here at the time before it became the home shopping network later in the 80s. But Georgia Championship Wrestling, Ole Anderson had taken over because there was no territory. She could kill the territory years before. There was nothing, no wrestling here in Ohio no major wrestling here in Ohio for uh, quite a long period of time there. And then they only was wise enough to bring Georgia championship wrestling up into Michigan and Ohio and things. And so I remember bits and pieces of guys like Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer. I remember Ronnie Garvin on there. And that had to have been during the period where Vince had taken over on TBS. Cause I think when all of the guys left Georgia, Ronnie Garvin was one of the guys that came in and tried to help out. So, but I do remember Ron Garvin being there in Georgia. Over in the WWF, my earliest memories are of the magnificent Morocco, Jimmy Snuka, Bob Backlund. I remember thinking how cool the mask superstar was, even though at the time I didn't even know his name. That, that mask guy with the stars on his mask. That guy, yeah, he was so cool. Hillbilly Jim being plucked out of the audience. I remember Saturday morning cartoons in between on the commercials. Uh, Hulk Hogan and Mr. T jogging through New York City as they prepared for WrestleMania 1. So lots of great memories from the uh, late, early to mid-80s. I remember when the Killer Bees first got their striped tights. They were called Bees, and they had Bumblebee trunks. So, hey, that was pretty damn cool for the time. But those are my earliest memories. And like I said, most of those come in still photos. I remember hating Paul Orndorff, fearing Roddy Piper. He's just so crazy. I was just scared of the man. Like, what, what this, what's this guy going to do next? Loving the Junkyard Dog. A huge Junkyard Dog fan in the mid-80s. Because I got news for you, Meltzer. Six-year-olds don't give a fuck about work rate. Now, I didn't discover Crockett until uh, we finally got cable. So that would have been somewhere around 86 or the beginning of 87, something like that. So until then, I never really discovered the NWA, that there was another wrestling company. I remember Georgia, and I don't know what happened to that. It disappeared one day. But other than that, everything I was watching was in syndication. We didn't even have cable available in our area. That's how far back we go, guys. We didn't have cable available in our area until around 86 or so. So we didn't have cable. So you were watching everything. And that's what syndication ruled the earth. So there was nothing wrong with that, watching championship wrestling, all-star wrestling, superstars wrestling challenge. But eventually, oh, 
Primetime came onto my screen. I fell in love with that immediately. And then one night, one Saturday night when my grandfather was outside hanging out with the neighbors or something, I'm flipping the channels and it was channel 17 WTBS flipping the channels at 605. What is this? Another wrestling company? So I guess you can say I've been in love with the sport as far back as my memories go, really. And this, kind of, this question, next question kind of ties in with the last question. Carlos Arroyo of Queens, New York, another New Yorker, asks, you seem to be reliving your shows as you discuss them rather than just reading results. When did you become a full-fledged fan? Well, that's another fun thing about 89 and 93 and going back to 87. I am reliving memories that I actually lived through the first time around, so it's really fun to go back, and you kind of know what's coming anyway. But again, I spent years studying, so, so there are so many other promotions and years that we haven't even touched on yet that, I, that I'm very much looking forward to. But yeah, it's, uh, it's fairly easy to get lost in some of these storylines and matches because unlike when you're just sitting on the couch and watching these shows, eh, you're watching the show. No big deal. I've seen Bobby Heenan get thrown out of the building a million times on Raw and go off to WCW. But this was the first time where I emotionally felt sad again watching him leave the company when I went back and did it for the show like I did the first time when I saw it happen live that night back in 1993. Now, obviously, I'm not as sad as I was in 93, but it still was just a sad moment for me to see no Bobby Heenan's done with the WWF. And that's another thing that's really uh, very blessed about this show is that when I'm watching these things and, I, and I'm passionately writing about them, these memories and these passions from 30 years ago, 35 years ago, they come out. And that's what makes it really fun. So yes, uh, Carlos, in some instances, I am reliving my childhood. Dead Whalen, oh, Dead Whalen, from the Calgary Saddle Dome asks, what is your favorite era and or promotion in the history of wrestling? Favorite, that's, that's again, that's span, that's impossible for me to say. I love pretty much every territory. So you're, you know, so there's, is that my favorite era? I don't know. It's 50-50. I love that era, but I also love the late 80s and early 90s as well. I like that national expansion era because I grew up watching the NWA and the WCW and the WWF. On the other end, I love the territories. I love that era of wrestling. I love the storytelling, the promos to get people into the buildings to make the money, the storylines, the realism, the rawness of it all. So it's a toss up. My favorite era, uh, there's two, and that's uh, pretty much the late 80s and early 90s, and then everything before that as well. So there you go. My favorite, my favorite era spans a good uh, 50 years. Thuggin' and Buggin' asks, what is the worst pay-per-view that you can recall, and why? Worst pay-per-view that I can recall? Well, if you mean from the big guys, uh, WWF, WWE, it would have to be December to dismember. The only thing good that came out of that was I was living with my ex at the time. And the best memory I have about that was the pay-per-view sucked. And less than two weeks later, we were separated. I was moving out. And a week later, I met my future wife. So the, the only thing that came out, <laughs> the only good thing that came out of December to December was a few weeks later, I met my wife. So that's how I, I kind of lump that in there because it's kind of close. That's how I remember the pay-per-view. But at the same time, pay-per-view wise, easily, probably, no, not probably. Easily the worst piece of shit the WWE ever put out that I can remember. Uh, although, you know, honorable mention to In Your House 4, uh, King of the Ring 95. There's, there's some other bad ones out there. You know, a lot of people give Great American Bash 91 shit, but I've went back and reviewed that myself, and it's not a good pay-per-view, but 
to call it shit, I, I think it's been an over-exaggeration for a very long time. I think that's uh, observer narrative that's just kind of caught fever throughout the years. Uh, another another terrible pay-per-view, Heroes of Wrestling. And I know the Eye of Gibson has asked me in the past, would I be interested in doing a watch-along with them for that pay-per-view? I said, well, sure, hell yeah. I haven't watched it since it happened. I remember sitting there live watching the pay-per-view with my cousin Crystal, who was over. I don't remember how the day played out, but I was, I was kind of tired, but we were sitting there watching the pay-per-view. I was really excited based on the lineup. But, you know, I'm forgetting how old these guys are now. And as the show goes on, the matches are kind of slow. They're kind of plotting at times. Uh, I remember Scorpio and Julio Fantastico, Julio De Niro, having a fairly solid opener. Although, if I remember, like, whoever won, I think it was Scorpio who won, but maybe it was De Niro. But one of them, like, missed the finish and still got the win, if I remember correctly. But uh, I just remember thinking, holy shit, Fatu, or excuse me, T Tama got fat. I remember thinking that. I remember just... Uh, it was an interesting show, to say the least. And then we got to the semi-main event. It was Snuka and Bob Orton. And uh, whew, I, I dread having to go back through that match again. But that one put me out. I was laying on the couch. My cousin was sitting at the foot of the couch where my feet were. I fell asleep while the match was ongoing. So I fell asleep in the semi-main event. After being hyped and pumped and, and excited for this pay-per-view, based on the names, I get to see all, all these guys again. It was, it was great on paper. And then, then we got the delivery. So all these things go on. We know Yokozuna's weight caused an issue, forced a, a tag team match. Maybe Jake's issues also forced the tag team match. Hard to say. But basically, I fall asleep during the semi-main event, and I don't wake up until two seconds after the pay-per-view. Like, I remember seeing the ending credits or whatever the case may be. I remember waking up right as the pay-per-view's fading off, and I look down at my feet, look down at my cousin. She's sitting there with these eyes, these, these bug eyes. She turns to me very slowly, and she said, You've got to rewind this. And I'm just like, what the fuck did I miss? And she's just like, you've got to rewind this. And that's all she said. I'm like, rewind what? What do I need to rewind to the beginning of the Jake the Snake interview? Oh, my God. And so that I did. And we go back and, and we watch the promo again. And it was visible immediately. Like, what the fuck is going on? And then the match itself. Well, I mean, for those who have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. I remember that. That was not a good pay-per-view whatsoever. But. December to Dismember, uh, equally shitty, I think. Maybe for other reasons, but equally shitty. So those are my worst pay-per-views ever, and which leads into the next question, ties right into this one. Marianne Parker from Montgomery, Alabama asks, my favorite wrestling pay-per-view ever, and why? All right, Marianne, well, uh, another good question. My least favorites, I, I gave you those, so my personal favorites, I think, from the NWA, my personal favorite, Great American Bash 89. I haven't made that a, a secret. Uh, for the longest time, the WWF, WrestleMania 6, I think, you know, for, the, for all of the 90s was always going to be not just my favorite pay-per-view, but my brother's favorite pay-per-view. I think my cousin's favorite pay-per-view. We just all loved it. That was the culmination of the Ultimate Warrior. None of us were really Hulkamaniacs. We were all Warrior fans. And we just remembered it with rose-colored glasses, that era, uh, 89, 90 and so forth. So I think forever, WrestleMania 6 was the last big peak WrestleMania 2 where something major happened, although WrestleMania 10 had two amazing matches, don't get me wrong. But I guess it also, it also really depends on the, the era you grew up in. And for us, I think, and, and for me specifically, for a very long time, I, I would say WrestleMania 6, always a fan of the Survivor Series pay-per-views as well. So Survivor Series 89 right up there. And it wasn't until WrestleMania 17, WrestleMania X7, where I said, Holy shit. 
I think something finally beat WrestleMania 6. Now, that's silly when you think about it from a wrestling standpoint. Absolutely. It fucking murdered WrestleMania 6 from a wrestling standpoint. But again, you got to have those rose-colored kid glasses on and your memories. And did WrestleMania 17 make you feel like WrestleMania 6 made me feel? And I don't even know if that's uh, possible. But it was. It was a fucking hell of a show. And I'd have to argue that that's probably the greatest pay-per-view in wrestling history. WrestleMania 17. Honorable mention to uh, WrestleWar 92 as well. Now, I know it get a little rocky start there. All of the job guys, all the underneath guys getting matches because all the main eventers are in the main event. But man, that Steiner's match where they just didn't want to cooperate with the guys from Japan. Poor Takayuki Azuka. And then, of course, that War Games. Five stars all day long. Sting Squadron versus the Dangerous Alliance. Bill Watts, you dropped the ball when you separated the Dangerous Alliance way, way, way too soon. The Ghost of Gilberto Roman asks, favorite 80s tag team? My favorite 80s tag team. Well, in the NWA, it was absolutely and easily, in the 80s, the Midnight Express. I don't have a lot of memories, like like real-time memories of Eaton and Condry together, but I have tons of great memories of Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton. I was a big fan of theirs all the way up until the split after Halloween Havoc 90 when Lane and Cornette left the company shortly after that. So I was really sad when Cornette and Lane left and Bobby Eaton was left alone. I was still a gigantic Bobby Eaton fan. Don't get me wrong. I followed his career after that still. But the Midnight Express were always my favorite in the 80s. Probably the Steiners, WCW 90, 91. Now, as for the WWF, I was always a big Demolition fan. Now, wrestling-wise, like, well, we always have the fans that are going to say, oh, they're the rip-off Road Warriors. Well, I, I love the Road Warriors in the NWA, but again, I like the Midnight Express better. I was never high on the Legion of Doom in the WWE. Now, when they came in, I was for the first few months. But after that, eh, I mean, I, I don't think they supplanted the Heart Foundation for me, obviously, until the Hearts split up. Then the, the Legion of Doom become the de facto tag team because we were almost out of tag teams by that point in 1991. And I liked the Rockers. I thought Power and Glory was pretty awesome, to be honest with you. Mostly because of Hercules, but I just, I liked the look. It was something different. But that's 1990. Now we get back to the 80s. The Bulldogs were awesome. Arn and Tully coming in were awesome. But growing up at that time, my favorite 80s tag teams were in the WWF, the Hart Foundation, and Demolition, depending on the day. And I just, I thought Brett and Neidhart, they just complimented each other so well. Brett, the excellence of execution, just ask him. Jim Neidhart, not only power, but agility, those, those slingshot clotheslines, shoulder tackles, even the one to the floor on the, on the one pay-per-view. So uh, just uh, amazing stuff from both guys. So the Hart Foundation probably sat atop my favorite WWF tag team, at least during their babyface run. And all right, guys, we're getting down to the nitty gritty. I think we've got about four questions left here as Leonard S. of Pickering, Ontario asks, what is your guilty pleasure in wrestling? Something most people consider bad, but you enjoy. Ooh, that's a good one. So first, I'll start with the so bad it's good department. Not a guilty pleasure because I liked it, whereas others didn't. It was because it was so bad it was good. And that was Quang the Ninja, the character we just saw the first vignette of leading out of 1993, debuted at the Royal Rumble in 94. And I go back to my cousin Crystal again because I was over her house and maybe we had a magazine out or something. Quang's name was on something. That's all I remember. And we're sitting there and we're being silly. We're being goofy. And she writes underneath it is cool. Quang is cool. And she took the page and she ripped it out and put it up on her wall and it sat there for, I'm telling you, a year. Quang is cool. And it just became a thing. Like, we just loved Quang. Quang would come to the house shows. We literally brought a Quang poster. 
Not a Bret Hart poster, not a Lex Luger poster. A Quang poster is what we would bring to the show. A giant Quang poster. It's all it said, Quang. And we, we used to usually sit ringside, maybe third, fourth, fifth row. And I would hold it up and yell, yeah, Quang. And he, I'm sure Savio didn't hear that quite often back then. So he turns and he looks and he sees the sign. And even with the mask on, he just nods like, thanks, guys. I appreciate that. So he'll Quang, breaking kayfabe a little bit there. Like, yeah, I got one fan, two fans. Uh, so Quang is cool was a thing. And then after he was written out, after his match with Hakushi, he goes on to become Savio Vega. My cousin kept the paper for a while. And uh, I go over her house the one day. I go, do you still have that paper? And she had changed Quang is cool to Quang was cool. So funny little stories there. Uh, but that was, that was a guilty pleasure that we forced to be cool. Now, I'll use this analogy here. Sometimes I go to watch a movie and I've never heard of the movie. I'm not really sure what it's about. And you, you kind of want to look it up or at least get the Rotten Tomatoes percentage, see, see what people are saying. And you see up in that corner, it's, it's got 10% fresh rating. 20%, maybe 16%, 4%. Oh, this, this movie's going to suck. So I got to the point where I just started watching the movies before I looked at the ratings. And, and it works out much better that way because there's a lot of movies that have very low ratings overall that I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I think that's the same way here. I think that's with everybody in wrestling. I think we all enjoy some things that maybe others consider not so good. And I wanted to share that Quang story with you guys, but uh, I'd have to say, I'm sure there's a lot of things out there that I enjoy that maybe others did, like the Chambers of Horrors match. How about that? The Chamber of Horrors match from Halloween Havoc 91. Was it good? No, but we watched the shit out of that as kids. Let me tell you, every weekend somebody came over, we would pop that tape back in. It was the opening match, so it was easy to get to. We would pop that tape back in and watch that Chamber of Horrors match because where else are you going to see eight guys, including Sting and Cactus Jack and all the like, and the Steiners uh, beating the shit out of each other. There's guys popping out of coffins. Abdullah's getting electrocuted. Was it good? No, but we loved it as kids. We thought it was fucking awesome. Or we can talk about the Lethal Lottery. I loved the concept overall. I didn't mind the 1991 version. I thought the execution of 92 and the Battle Bowl show in 93 were eh, terrible. Let's not even get into the 1996 version where DDP wins the Battle Bowl. So terrible execution overall, but I love the concept of the Lethal Lottery, and I know a lot of people... A lot of other people have, have shit on it in the past. You know, I also feel like Battle Royals, uh, the, the art of the Battle Royal, and there, there is an art to a degree to the Battle Royal. I feel like uh, Battle Royals get a bad rap nowadays, and I haven't enjoyed one myself in probably more than 20 years. But uh, say going back to the mid-90s and any earlier Battle Royals, my God, growing up, me and my family, we lived and died on the Battle Royal. If there was an announcement of a Battle Royal, holy shit. It didn't matter who, what, where, when, why, or how we were going to watch said Battle Royal. You better believe it. In fact, I dare say as a kid, I would much rather have seen a Battle Royal than, than a title match, to be honest with you. They were just so cool seeing that many guys in the ring at the same time. And yeah, I know, it's just a bunch of lifting guys over the top rope, lots of punches and forearms and shit like that. But at the time, it was just so cool. And once it got down to that nitty gritty, it was, it was always fun to start seeing who was going to team up, who was going to turn on who speculate on who's going to win, try to keep track of who, who dumped who out. But yeah, guilty pleasure-wise, I'm sure there's several wrestlers, and I can't think of not a single one of them off the top of my head that I actually really actually enjoyed that maybe gets a bad rap online. Uh, Brother Love was a character I enjoyed during the time period of which he existed in the late 80s into the early 90s. Uh, I know everybody looks back now, and they probably go, man, that was such an awesome character. But uh, no, I, I actually loved it as a kid the brother love character. So 
Maybe I was uh, in the minority there as well. But we move on to our final three questions here. Angelo Paul Matthews of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And this is a bad time for this question. I already see it coming. I've heard your impressions throughout the 1993 shows of the Macho Man, Crush, Stan Lane, Bret Hart, Vince McMahon, and I think the Mountie. I assume your impressions go beyond 1993 scale. Well, yes, yes, they do. Uh, Growing up, I I tried to mock almost each and every professional wrestler at some point in time because we were always wrestling in the backyard, wrestling in the house, and we were... I was this guy, and and he was that guy. And so I don't know that we were cutting promos on each other, but we would do some of their basic lines, some of their catchphrases. So it started early, and as I became an early teen, I had a tape recorder. You guys, you know, the guys are my age. You remember the old cassette tape recorders. And my cousins would come over, and my brother would come over and spend the night on the weekends. And one of the things we did was we would pop a tape in, and we would kind of make our own radio shows, comedy radio shows, so to speak, just us bantering back and forth. I still have a lot of those old cassette tapes, by the way, from the early 90s. And on those tapes, I would do a lot of wrestling characters. And when I first got this question, I had planned to do a few of them here for you today. But unfortunately, because of my nose and my throat, that's just not going to happen. But I promise I'll follow up on a a later show. And for the record, for those going, well, he doesn't do the greatest macho man. He doesn't do the greatest Vince McMahon. I take pride in my macho man for years, years, guys. I had so many people tell me that it was spot on, and I felt it was spot on. The reason I don't do perfect voices on my shows is because I don't prep in advance. And Tom Robinson, he's the same way on his TR show. He does, he does a phenomenal job at several wrestling impressions. But when you don't prepare in advance, get the vocal cords right, get the delivery right, and you're just kind of zooming through it, it's not going to sound perfect. And that's kind of the situation when I'm rolling through a show, sometimes I don't really plan to do the Macho Man's voice. It just comes out. I don't plan to do Vince McMahon's voice. It just comes out. Uh, same with Bret Hart. But it goes beyond just having the voice. You got to do the cadence, the delivery, and all that stuff. That's why it's a lot harder to get some of these guys like Crush, who kind of speaks in rapid fire sound bites sometimes. Bruh. But yeah, there's a ton of, of wrestlers that I, I do fairly good impersonations of. And in fact, if you go back a number of episodes, and it's probably right after the Quebecers win the tag team titles. I do a sing-along with the Quebecer song here on the show, but when I went back and listened to it, I tried to mimic Jacques Rougeau so well that it's almost just like an echo of Jacques Rougeau. You can't really tell that I'm singing along with it unless you listen very carefully. So go back and check that out. Uh, I am, in fact, singing with Jacques Rougeau. It's just that I'm doing it in his voice, so you can't really tell him there unless you're really listening for it. All right, we go on. The Norwegian Angel, all right, asks, what is the oldest wrestling memorabilia that you own? The oldest wrestling memorabilia that I own. Hmm. Well, I have a ton of uh, boxing and wrestling magazines from the 50s, but uh, the, the oldest stuff I own goes far further back than that. I actually have a 1930s wrestling magazine. No boxing involved, a wrestling magazine from the 1930s. I also have tons of newspaper clippings, and I'm not talking about those little tiny clippings you see people post online. I'm talking about full-page ads and full-page news pieces from the early 1900s, of 1920s, and things like that. I have a, a giant, full-spread newspaper piece on Farmer Burns down on the farm. He's literally sitting on his fence with his pigs around him. A really fun news piece on Farmer Burns. Uh, there's one with, uh, it's funny, your, your handle here is the Norwegian Angel. Well, I've actually got an ad, a full-page ad of the French Angel, Maurice Tillet, or to lay, if you will, a full-page ad of him trying to destroy 
neckties. He's trying to rip them. They're trying to show how durable their neckties are. They're using the French Angel as their advertisement. This big, tough monster wrestler can't even rip these ties. So buy one today. Very cool stuff there. I got a lot of old ads, uh, some other news pieces on uh, some of the earliest gimmick wrestlers of the times. And a lot of pictures there of guys I'd never even heard of, and I don't know where they were working. This is like pre-Jack Pfeffer, I'd have to think. And there's guys dressed like Satan. And of course, you got to have your Turk and some other ones as well that kind of blew my mind. I'm like, wow. And I've had those pieces at least since the 90s. I used to go to a lot of flea markets and pick up a lot of old wrestling memorabilia. So that's where I got it. But I also have unopened board game, Mill Mascaris board game, unopened, still sealed in the plastic. Lots of unopened WWF products from the 80s, board games, puzzles, the old Superstars sticker book. But yeah, if you want to go back, talk about my oldest stuff, it's got to go back to the early 1900s. Uh, lots of old Toronto ads with Whipper Billy Watson and all that crew. So lots of lots of good old cool stuff downstairs in uh, storage. All right, guys. And uh, I'd like to say I saved the best for last, but that's simply not true here as, uh, oh my God, listen to this one. Buddy Landell's cocaine writes in. Yes, Buddy Landell's cocaine is speaking to me. Buddy Landell's cocaine asks me my thoughts on the current situation involving Sonny. That would be Sonny, the former manager of the WWF, Tammy Sitch, Tammy Fitch in Smoky Mountain. Uh, my thoughts on Sonny. I've made him very clear online. If you go on my Twitter account, I'm not, I'm not shy about contacting Sonny directly and telling her my thoughts on a lot of the, the nonsense. And it really blow, it, it doesn't blow my mind, but it, it's still sad to see uh, how many people come to her defense because they have some holdover, sick, sexual obsession with somebody from 30 years ago uh, that's clearly still ongoing today for whatever reason. Uh, some of them are clearly uh, mentally impaired as well, the people that are defending her. And I'm not saying that you have to be mentally impaired to defend her. If that's what you want to do, that's your thing, that's fine. I'm just saying a lot of the responses... Clearly, there's, there's some uh, mental health issues going on with some of the people coming to her defense. Now, I won't get into the whole situation with the, the last latest car accident, the, the, um, the unfortunate passing of, of the uh, other driver. I mean, Sonny said her piece in recent weeks, days, about her version of the story and what, what had transpired. I don't know. I wasn't there. I just know this girl has gotten well over a half a dozen DUIs and continues to keep driving vehicles. Illegally, mind you. So let's pretend for a moment like this incident with, with the, uh, the car crash didn't even happen. You've already been told you're not legally permitted to drive the vehicle. You don't have a license. There's no insurance, which is just dangerous for all other parties involved. And you don't give a flying fuck. And that disgusts me for somebody that age that does this thing. I've been disgusted with Sonny for a very long time, going online, giving nobody anything. For years and just posting lists of things you guys can buy me on Amazon. Buy me this furniture set. Buy me this. Buy for fucking what? What are you doing for people? Like, and you have no shame. And I think this goes back to Sonny, Tammy. And this is just my personal opinion. This is not fact, but my personal opinion is, I think the girl has her own mental health issues. I think that goes without saying. Far beyond being an alcoholic or whatever you know, whatever she's on, whatever she's doing. Because it's not like she just keeps getting pulled over for a suspension of her license. She's drunk every fucking time she's been pulled over. And then there was the incident at the beginning of this year where she was threatening to stab her boyfriend or whoever it was with a pair of scissors. 
Oh, that was just a misunderstanding. Everything seems to be a misunderstanding. And she's already spent uh, damn near a year in jail because of all these DUIs. And it just continues to do it. And there's rumors. And I, I say rumors. I'm trying to cover my ass here from credible wrestling sources that maybe Sonny had told them or somebody they knew that she was planning to skip town, move to another city, maybe down to Florida where her boyfriend is uh, to get away from some of the charges that are coming towards her up north. So again, uh, just rumors. I have no idea. But my overall is just absolutely disgusting. I think one of my responses to her on her Twitter account was just puke. Puke. That's what I wrote her. Puke. Uh, you make me want to puke. You, you disgust me. I can go into further detail, but that's not what this show's about. And I apologize if I upset some Sunny fans out there. I can't say that there was no bigger Sunny fan. I'm sure every teenage male felt about Sunny the same way I did back around, say, 1996. So I'm not going to say I was a bigger fan than, than, than the next guy. I think we were all gigantic fans of Sonny. I loved me some Sonny more than any other female on Earth during periods of time there. There was only ever one wrestling poster on my wall in the history of my life, and that was of Sonny. Again, going back to, well, you know, right around 1996 or so. But because you were a beautiful woman at one point in your life, that doesn't give you the right to be what you have become. Now, it's a free world. You can do whatever you want, I suppose, until you break laws, which you just continuously do. But at the same time, am I a fan? No, I'm not a fan. And I haven't been for a very long time. And I'm honestly just absolutely disgusted at the fact that she has been able to abuse the law up until this point. And I hope it honestly, honest to God, I hope it catches up with her. So just to protect everyone else out there on the road and everyone, just everyone else out there in general. And maybe, maybe some of these guys that are forking over money for next to nothing, maybe they'll be able to spend their money a little wiser as well. So that's my thoughts on Sonny. So thanks for asking, Buddy Landell's cocaine. And that'll wrap it up. That's the end of the Ask Me Anything segment here. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We covered a, well, a lot of ground here. From my favorites to my least favorite wrestling pay-per-views, memories of my grandfather walking into the room when wrestling was on, my favorite set of Duke boys, and some really good and well-thought-out questions pertaining to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. So I appreciate all you guys who wrote in and asked questions, and I appreciate the kind words as well. But that's going to wrap things up here for episode 57. We covered all of the 1993 year in review, the awards. We looked into 1994. We moved on here to this Ask Me Anything segment, which I hope you guys enjoyed. But the train, it just keeps a moving, guys. And yes, we'll be back next week. And hopefully my throat and my nose and, and this cold will be gone. And we'll be returned back to the normal Ray Russell voice. And I appreciate you guys for sticking with me this week. Because this is the absolute worst cold I've ever had. It just won't go away. And I don't know if that's because ever since I've had COVID, maybe things affect me a little more than they used to. Or if this is just a hell of a damn cold. I really don't know what the situation is, but I appreciate you guys sticking with me either way throughout this episode. But the fun, it begins, guys. Next week, we kick things off. We set the stage for 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. All right, guys, and that should wrap everything up. A nice, neat bow put on 1993. We touched on some of the good things coming in 1994 without actually having to fall down that rabbit hole. Thank God. Want to thank Stephen Eckstadt for coming on the show and joining us for the review portion of the episode. 
And how about that Ask Us Anything segment, guys? We didn't exactly unearth anything groundbreaking, guys, but I still had a lot of fun getting a little personal and answering some of your wrestling-related questions as well. But with all of that out of the way, that means next week, it is time to start our next project here on The Grenade. That project is 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation, and I absolutely cannot wait to dive right in. And we'll be setting the stage for 1987 by looking at all of the fallout from 1986. Vince McMahon pillages yet another territory, this time the Montreal Territory. We'll take an in-depth look at some of the big feuds of the time, including adorable Adrian Adonis and Rowdy Roddy Piper, the Macho Man Randy Savage and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and the big moneymaker of 1986, Hulk Hogan versus Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, plus Andre the Giant reinstated to the World Wrestling Federation, Hockey Talk Man's abrupt heel turn, referee Danny Davis's questionable officiating in the latter half of 86. We'll look at some of the newcomers here to the WWF. Plus, while Ken Patera is being released from prison, Jim the Anvil Neidhart finds himself in some serious legal trouble. We'll look into the major injuries of both the Dynamite Kid and Paul, Mr. Wonderful Orndorff. The WWF getting in with a new fledgling TV station. You may have heard of them. They're called Fox. We'll also talk some of the wrestlers getting the Hollywood bug taking the time out of their busy wrestling schedule for some acting lessons. Plus, WrestleMania 3 right around the corner. And this is going to be really fun. We're going to break down the entire WWF roster heading into 1987. We're going to look at each and every individual and what to expect as we move out of 1986 and into 1987. It's going to be a fun ride, guys. And I'm inviting you along for it. So head on over to our social media. Follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Follow and like us on Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Stop on over to YouTube and our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Wrestling Grenade for all of the latest videos we put up there. The Grenade's still looking for a new full-time co-host. So if you're interested, you can email me at WrestleCopia at gmail.com. That's WrestleCopia at gmail.com. And last but not least, please help keep the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, the Wrestling Memory Grenade, alive by heading on over to our Patreon account, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Over a dozen tiers to choose from, as low as a $1 tier just to show your support. And of course, as always, I recommend that $5 all-access tier, which features all of our insanely detailed show notes, early access to many of our WrestleCopia podcasts, You can listen days, sometimes more than a week early, plus unedited versions of Tom Robinson's TR Shocks the World, our Patreon-exclusive watch-along series featuring all sorts of WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday night's main events, and so much more, and now added to the $5 all-access tier, remastered versions of early episodes of the Wrestling Memory Grenade featuring enhanced sound quality and new content originally edited out of the initial broadcast of the shows. Bonus content, guys. And you get all of that for just $5 at patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. No subscription. Cancel anytime. Give it a go for a month, and I think you'll like the content we offer. And with all of that out of the way, it's time to move on to episode 58, setting the stage for 1987 in the World Wrestling Federation. 
So until next time, this is Ray Russell saying from pillar to post and coast to coast, you pull the pin and we'll pick up the pieces right here on the Wrestling Memory Grenade. I'll see you next week. Don't miss it. Be there.